Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well, our 20-year engagement in Afghanistan has come to an end. I think I might have more to say about this next week. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which is obviously significant for the world, but uh, it's also personally significant. 9-11 was definitely a hinge event in history, but uh, it was also a hinge event in my life, even though I was not directly connected in any way that I'm aware of to the events of that day. I don't believe I knew personally anyone who died, but it really did change my life. I began writing my first book, The End of Faith, on the 12th or the 13th, the latest, and the events of that day really determined a lot of what I focused on for more than a decade. So anyway, I think I'll probably have more to say about that next week. Perhaps I'll do an AMA there too. But the topic of today's conversation is not entirely unrelated, because viewed from one vantage point, 9-11 certainly seems to have hastened the unraveling of everything, which is the topic of today's podcast. Today I'm speaking with Balaji Srinivasan. As you'll hear, Balaji is a jack of many trades. He's a serial entrepreneur, an angel investor. He was a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, a major venture capital firm. He has a very technical academic background. He's a PhD in electrical engineering and a master's in chemical engineering, both from Stanford. And he also taught computer science and statistics at Stanford. He is all in for blockchain technology and cryptocurrency, which we talk a lot about. And he was actually the first CTO of Coinbase. Anyway, Bonlogy is very active on Twitter, and that's where I think I discovered him first. He was very early to recognize the problem of COVID. Uh, And he may be very early to sound the death knell of much of what we once considered stable in our world. And there was a lot to talk about. Balaji and I had a five-hour conversation, which I believe is my longest podcast ever. We had a few sidebar discussions, so the final edit came in at four hours. And there's certainly a lot here. In general, we talk about the challenges to civilization and the possible remedies. We discuss the abundant evidence of American decline, the rise of India and China, centralizing and decentralizing trends in politics and elsewhere, the relationship between politics and technology, the failures of the FDA, the TSA, how regulation actually preserves monopolies, the significance of Bitcoin and blockchain technology, the challenge of cybersecurity, the Chinese government's attack on Bitcoin, the threat of U.S. regulation of cryptocurrency, the problems with enterprise blockchain, blockchain scalability, creator coins, and related matters, life in Singapore, the idea of virtual government, the future of decentralized journalism, independent replication in science, wealth inequality, his notion of ubiquitous investing, social status, non-zero-sum capitalism, the very strange and arresting idea that one could start one's own country in the cloud and then have it come crashing down to earth, 
and other topics. As you'll hear, there was a time zone difference due to his being in Singapore. Uh, so at some point around 2 in the morning, I tapped out. But we covered more or less everything I wanted to get to. You'll hear me push back more and more as the conversation progresses. I think that starts around hour two or three. As most of you know, I'm very worried about the degradation of our institutions, but I'm even more worried about the growing consensus on the left and the right that we don't need institutions. And what Bology is proposing here is a crowdsourced, peer-to-peer, blockchain-enabled, quasi-utopian alternative to our current institutions, governmental, financial, journalistic, etc. And I must say, I remain skeptical and worried. I wish I could share his optimism here. And who knows, I may yet get there. But I found the conversation fascinating. If nothing else, it's a harbinger of some very interesting things to come. And now I bring you Balaji Srinivasan. I'm here with Balaji Srinivasan. Balaji, how are you doing? Great. Good to be here. Okay, so there is a, obviously a lot to talk about. I went out on Twitter and asked for questions, and um, I, w- I won't hit you with actually Twitter-shaped questions, but it did gauge a, a very high level of interest in, in our covering really the totality of uh, your interests and uh, our intersecting interests. And um, mm-hmm. a lot of this focuses on, I guess, civilizational challenges and American decline, and then the possible response to all of this, I mean, how, we, how we move forward, how we reboot to something more hopeful. And uh, you, you have thought a lot about this, but before we just jump into everything all at once, uh, perhaps you can summarize your intellectual and professional background. How do you think about your place in the world and, and the tools you've acquired thus far? Sure. So, you know, you know, of Indian descent, parents from India. Basically, I grew up on Long Island, came to Stanford for undergrad, you know, got my BSMS PhD in electrical engineering, MS in chemical engineering, taught computer science and statistics at Stanford for a few years, primarily in the areas of computational statistics and genomics and bioinformatics. And then started a genomics company, which ended up selling for more than 300 mil. And um, that was in the area of like Mendelian genetic testing. Actually, um, you know, Steven Pinker is, you know, a one-time collaborator of mine and and friendly, who I I believe you know. Mm -hmm. And um, then, you know, went completely from genomics into a totally different area, Uh, got into venture capital and uh, joined Adrian Harwitz, which is a $20 billion venture capital firm. Help set up our crypto and our bio arms there when crypto was not a thing. You know, Bitcoin was not a thing. And uh, recruited Vijay Pandey to the firm, who's uh, now the head of the bio fund there. And our investments have been really quite, quite good on both the crypto and the bio side. Um, also an angel investor in Bitcoin, you know, Ethereum, Zcash, most of the major coins, uh, as well as lots of, it's funny to call it this, we have a traditional tech companies. Mm. Like, you know, Soylent, Replit, Superhuman, Lambda School, 
a mighty, a bunch of other things, you know, cameo.com, for example, many of which have been quite successful. And then uh, I took over uh, one of our portfolio companies when I was at A16C and uh, took that over, turned that around into something called Earn, earn earn.com, sold it to Coinbase, became CTO of Coinbase. And that was my kind of most recent thing. And in addition to that, I've sort of been, you know, I guess a part-time tweeter, writer, public, you know, it's funny to put it this way, a public intellectual, I guess everybody's an influencer or whatever, you know, but, you know, at least I've, I've. Put some ideas out that I think have helped influence conversation in some ways, and I also taught a MOOC course online with more than two hundred fifty thousand students back in twenty thirteen, and I've wanted to repeat that at some point. Hmm. Um, and right now, I've just got a little newsletter thing called one seven two nine dot com, which is sort of the seed of maybe something bigger, where I'm just kind of putting some essays out and you know tweeting and doing angel investing right now. So, all right, that's that's me, Jack of all trades, nice. master of none, brings us to the present day. Nice. Well, um, it's a polymathic picture, uh, which is definitely a lot of fun and gives us a lot to cover. When were you at Stanford? What years were you there? Oh, um, 1997 to, really, I guess, 07, almost 10 years. Uh You know, it's it's funny, like the first 10-something years of my professional life was sort of spent in, you know, meditating on mathematics, right? And, you know, I kind of thought that the world was just you know, who could solve the most difficult integrals. And yeah, the kinds of stuff that I do then, you know, for example, actually, just just to talk about that for a second, lots of stuff in undergrad, you know, when people learn it, they'll learn the algebra formulas, but they won't really have an insight into what underpins that. That's perhaps most apparent in like probability versus statistics. You know, people will learn how to manipulate probability distributions, but they won't actually understand how a collection of data maps to that. Hmm. And a lot of that is actually not taught. It's just something you have to sort of figure out in grad school. You know, this is something which I've wanted to write a text on or, or something at some point. But it's, it's kind of a general thing that people kind of understand symbols on a screen, but they do not understand how it maps to real life. So why did you, you know? go into EE and uh, chemical engineering rather than, than math ah, or something? That's a great question. Well, Stanford actually did not have an applied math degree. So EE was sort of the closest to that since mm. there's a pretty close, close correspondence between, you know, the, the like signal processing in particular, and then what's actually useful in real life, you know, you know, Fourier transforms, functional analysis, you can throw a lot of math at it, you know, wavelets, hard basis. A, a lot of that stuff actually has a tight correspondence between the math and then what's actually useful in real life. And both of those were important to me that, you know, there was something that was interesting and challenging for a mathematical standpoint and useful in real life. As for chemical engineering, it was sort of the most quantitative way I could get into biomedicine because I was interested in life extension and stuff like that for many years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm kind of coming back to that early interest. Plus, they're both very broad, right? They, they touch a lot of different areas. You yeah. know, I, I, have, I have at least some grounding in, you know, everything from Navier-Stokes to antennas, you know, certainly not an expert in these areas, not all these areas, but I I at least know enough to know what I don't know. You know what I mean? Right. So that that was helpful. Right. Okay. Well, let's um, turn you loose on the problems at hand. (laughs) Yeah. You asked, you asked. It's just, you know, I just wanted, yeah, go ahead. It's good. We'll we'll be talking about almost none of that stuff, but uh, we'll give a a very uh, technocratic inflection to 
and a numerate inflection to much of what we do touch. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny. I, I like your I like your second you know asterisk on that, which is you know John Allen Polos many years ago in the '90s wrote a book that was influential on me when I was growing up called uh, Innumeracy, yeah. and I actually think that's a good way of kind of defining what the new class is as opposed to the old class because there's people who sort of are self-styled technocrats or they're kind of called that and it's kind of got a bad name, but they actually can't do math. Right. You know, they, they style themselves policy wonks or, or what have you, but, you know, they can't code. They can't, you know, the, I think this century, the numbers overpower the letters. Yeah. And although that's a broad it, concept a, we can talk about. Amazingly, it still gives enough scope for motivated reasoning that you can you can get objectively, uh, you know, perfectly numerate people who are no longer persuaded by numbers when they go against their cherished beliefs. True, true. I'm not saying it's a uh, you know, panacea, yeah. but, I, but I do think that th- there's a greater degree of check on flights of fancy yeah. if you're going with numerate people who are more likely to be logical or what have you, or at least there's a greater check. Uh, you might you might disagree that we could we can go and talk about that. Yeah. Okay. So let me just set up the problem as I see it. Mm. I, I think there, there's so many intersecting issues here. I mean, a main one for me is the the failure of institutions you know, from government to the media to universities to science journals to major corporations. I mean, this is just a it's a story of bad incentives and incompetence and ideological capture, hyperpartisanship in our politics. And there's, there are many things intersecting here. And we can see the, the failures more or less everywhere. I think in the last year and a half, our astoundingly inept response to COVID has been the clearest example of the problem here. Yep. Uh, although now we have a, a, a misadventure in our in an exit from Afghanistan, Afghanistan. in the last week, which is, gives it yep. a, a run for its money. But um, it's just I mean, everything but the development of the vaccines, at least to my eye, we've proven unequal to the moment. And yeah, I do view this as a, a dress rehearsal for something that is more or less inevitable and and will be quite a bit worse. And I mean, it's, you know, there's an, Amer- it's an obvious American failure here, but, you know, there's the, the international system generally has failed. And I just, we see the issue on a dozen other fronts. I mean, there's this, the moral panic of wokeness that has captured our institutions, which I've spoken mm-hmm. about a lot on the podcast. There's the rise of populism at home and abroad. There's this slow moving collision with China and the capitulations of our major corporations to these increasingly Orwellian demands that come from the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, we've got LeBron James literally doing the bidding right. of the CCP. We had four years of Trump, which culminated in a mob of QAnon-addled lunatics storming the Capitol. But then under Biden, we have, which was, you know, billed, you know, even from the perch of this podcast as a, a very likely return to competence. But as I said, we have this suddenly spooked exit from Afghanistan that has alarmed our friends and charmed our enemies all over the world. So across the board, we, we seem to be advertising what a ramshackle superpower we are. So I, there's mm-hmm. so many aspects of this that we could start with. I guess um, let's start with just the phenomenon of American decline, as you see it, and then, and then we'll eventually get to possible remedies and and the path forward. So it's, how, what do you, what's your 30,000 foot view of America at the moment? Great question. So, you know, one thing that you said that I wanted to sort of 
like slightly poke at for a second, sure. as you said, the one thing that we were successful on was the vaccine. And I think it's important to just determine what we was there because what we was, was the, uh, was really in many ways, you know, it's funny to put this way, the private sector or technology, you know, biotechnology and the state mostly got out of the way and, you know, they, they, you know, it wasn't the FDA that was developing right. the vaccine per se. They were sort of forced to get out of the way of blocking it, you know? Yeah. So, so I think broadly speaking, what we're talking about is a decline in American state capacity. And what's interesting is this is mirrored on the other side of the world in China. And actually, and this is surprising, very surprising to me, to a lesser extent, but a real extent in India, both China and India have had a rise in state capacity over this period. And, you know, the Chinese story is well understood. You know, they've, they've built all this stuff. And, you know, there, there's a lot of a lot of negative things uh, that I can and will say about China, mm-hmm. but it's also important to understand the things that they are doing that are unambiguously like impressive, right? You know, yeah. the, the build out. So they have risen in state capacity and India actually also has where, uh, for example, do you know what India stack is? No. Okay. So there's an article you might want to Google. It's called uh, The Internet Country. I think it's tigerfeathers.substack.com. I believe that's right. And it basically just kind of describes how sort of out of the global eye, India's built national identity and payments and so on APIs for Mm -hmm. a billion citizens. Okay. And they're not as good necessarily, I would argue, as the Chinese versions, but they exist. And that's incredibly impressive. And that, you know, and are in some ways are better because they're public as opposed to sort of the WeChat-ish, you know, private versions. I'm not beating them up, but India stack guys are probably, probably will listen to this. It's actually quite, quite impressive that you could do something like that for India, which did not have a functional public sector for many years. And on the, uh, you know, moreover, like 4G LTE, uh, they, they have, uh, they've done something, there's, or not, there's, a, there's a project there, a private project called Reliance Geo, which has given wireless internet to hundreds of millions of people. So basically, on the other side of the world, we're seeing essentially something where the winners of the 20th century, right, the US and Western Europe, have gotten like, you know, one way of thinking about it is civilizational diabetes, you know, Mm -hmm. so fat and happy at the end of history that they had to sort of invent internal conflicts and drama to make things meaningful again. And now they have, you know, they've, you know, to the, they've set a fire and they're they're burning down the house. That's one perspective on it. I think there's others, there's a technological one, but the, the other part of it is on the other side of the world, you know, the Indians and Chinese that sat out the 20th century are going to be extremely important players in the 21st. And right now in 2020, you know, there's sort of this uh, overdue American, you know, cross-partisan like understanding that, whoa, this China thing, it's actually become a big deal. But I think the realization in 2030 is going to be that India is actually also a big deal because India is actually on an amazing growth trajectory right now that's not being reported on. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, there is an interesting aspect where, thanks to the vagaries of history, you know, there are now millions of English-speaking Indians who are broadly West-aligned. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, part of what the Chinese use is their justification for being anti-West are, you know, the opium wars and, you know, the Boxer Rebellion. And these are things, you know, actually Adam Tooze, who I don't agree on many things with and is actually in some ways communist sympathetic wrote a pretty good history of kind of China in, you know, I think the New Statesman recently that's worth browsing for people because, you know, most, most folks, very few Americans I speak to have any idea of how China got rich, for example, or, you know, how 
you know, like, like India's rise in state capacity. It's just a complete hmm. nullity, you know? And this is kind of related to, you know, the, the, some of the phenomena that you mentioned, which is, you know, pre-2016, there was, there was an American internationalism. And, and of course, it had been declining before then. But, you know, reflected, let's say, George H.W. Bush or the sort of Democrat with a broad view of the world. It was both on the Republican and the Democrat side of sort of understanding other countries, you know, and understanding mm-hmm. the other guy's point of view and overseas, right? It wasn't, you know, Trumpian chest thumping, but it also wasn't, you know, sort of this woke narcissism, which, you know, is this is also narcissistic and inward looking in its own way, right? Um, it pretends to be really tolerant and universal, but assumes that everybody is basically, you know, has has the the values of a Oberlin 2021 graduate or whatever, right? And so because of that, there's actually very little, surprisingly hard news about other countries. It's just, you know, are they good? Are they bad? You, you know, these these basic facts have simply not mm-hmm. been communicated, you know? Yeah. Anyway, okay. So coming back up the stack. So th- the point basically being that the... I think in many ways, the 21st century, for some angles in which the 21st century is a mirror of the 20th, one of them is that, you know, if it was about like a capitalist West and a socialist East, it's sort of reversing, you know, where, you know, now in many ways, like um, you could say the new political spectrum of the world is something where the US is at the left. Right. Basically, Europe is center left. India, Israel, uh, you know, like they're center right and China is far right. And the spectrum I would put there is ethno masochist left to ethno nationalist right. And in the center would be pseudonymity. And that's crypto. Should I elaborate on that? Yeah, well, I, I want to get into crypto. Well, let, let's keep talking about the problem. And then because crypto, I know, is a big part of the solution, as you see. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Okay, so, but I'll, I'll describe the spectrum for a second. Basically, yeah. um, you know, during the Cold War, the first Cold War, you know, you roughly had the US on the capitalist right, and then Europe was on the, like, you know, call it, I don't know, center right, at least the US was the right pole of capitalism. And then you had a bunch of countries in the center, maybe the third world that were like kind of non-aligned. And then you had, you know, there, and some of them actually, you could call them center left as well because they were Soviet sympathetic, but they weren't feeling troops. Then you had the far left, which is the USSR and the Soviet bloc and whatnot, right? And in many ways, that spectrum has sort of flipped where, you know, Eastern Europe would be considered to the right of the US in many ways, the Visegrad countries, not necessarily, I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm just saying, you know, it's mm. like flipped, right? China is certainly to the ethno-nationalist right. Their, their belief is China is the best. And whereas the U.S. is like, you know, the ethno-masochist left where, you know, the, the, the statement is that, you know, basically whites are the worst. And, you know, that's what's funny is it flips around into its own kind of supremacism, you know, where once you've given yourself license to hate, you know, to send white people to the back of the line for vaccines rather than people of another color, right, which is actually policy in some states, if you mm-hmm. saw that. It's its own form of sort of racial obsession. And um, so, so, so in that way, like this, the spectrum of the 20th century has flipped around. And in another way, it's also flipping, which is that I think of the 20th century as the centralized century. And a large part of what happened, this is, by the way, there's a book that's really worth reading. Have you ever heard the book, The Sovereign Individual? Yeah, I haven't read it though. Okay. 
So very worth reading. You know, it's on Kindle. Your audience might might want to mm. read it. I think of it as an important book to understand where we're coming from, where we're going. It actually holds up very well, despite being written about 20 years ago. But briefly speaking, one way of thinking about, you know, the time period from, you know, you could say from 1492 or, you know, depending on how far back you put it, up till about 1950, is that technology favored centralization. And that meant you know, for example, the centralized union won over the Confederate states. You had uh, mass media and mass production. You had, you know, by 1950, you had peak centralization, which was, you know, one telephone company, which is AT&T, and two superpowers, US and USSR, and three television stations, ABC, CBS, NBC. And all kinds of diversity, all kinds of, you know, uh, intellectual diversity, schools of thought, all these kind of funny princes and principalities, all of that was crushed. And, you know, you had these giant homogenous masses by 1950, right, which were sort of controlled by, and, you know, antenna towers, broadcast towers. And people couldn't really talk to each other very easily because it was capital expensive to go and set up a television station or a factory or, or something like that, right? And uh, this is also reflected in sort of the, the political organization where you had these gigantic polities. You know, you had the U.S. and you had the USSR and you had China. And, you know, basically it was just like these giga states, you know, slugging it out. And the ideologies were adapted for the technology. There were ideologies of, you know, mass media and mass control and, you know, a huge number of Nazis and communists. And then fortunately, democratic capitalists as, you know, basically the three factions. Okay. And uh, so then what you see, though, going from 1950 to the present day, with the invention of the transistor, things start, things start changing. And I wrote an essay on this, or gave an interview rather at uh, Satonye, S-O-T-O-N-Y-E dot substack dot com. Hmm. Um, I gave an interview with, with him where I talk about this uh, in a little more detail. But basically, you know, from 1947 to the present day, you have the transistor, you have the personal computer, you have the internet, you have remote work, you have smart smartphone, you have cryptocurrency. These are all decentralizing things, right? And because of that, institutions that were set up during the centralizing era are out of their depth. And, you know, basically the entire regulatory state that FDR set up in the 1930s, which you can think of as sort of the last major tectonic plate moving of the U.S., right? Like the U.S. government arguably dates back to that. Um, and the reason I say that is so many aspects of the Constitution and other things were sort of overturned during FDR's reign, like the Tenth Amendment, the idea that, you know, states basically can do anything that isn't, the, the, the federal government doesn't explicitly have. That's, that was basically a non, became a, became a non-issue or a dead letter during FDR's reign, right? And, you know, one way of thinking about it, by the way, is uh, FDR was a dictator who ruled till he died. Okay. Mm. Now, you know, it's funny to put it that way, right? But basically, notice the economy started picking up a few years after he, he left. And, you know, he had done all this stuff like Naira, like the, you know, the National um, Industrial Recovery Act. And, you know, he tried to pack the courts. And, you know, there was the, uh, the poultry case, uh, you know, Schechter Poultry Company, I believe, where, you know, he tried to get them like to kill chickens, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. He actually did a lot of things that various dictators would would do. Uh, you know, he didn't put well. I shouldn't say he didn't put people in camps. He did. Um, you know, which was the Japanese internment. It wasn't as bad as um, you know the, the the other countries. But essentially, what was happening was there was uh, you know nowhere near as bad, obviously. But you know, essentially, what was happening there's a pressure for centralization. You saw similar things happening around the world, and the U.S. was just like the least bad of them. 
there were enormous reasons, both ideological and technological, for the formation of these centralized states. And I think of the technology as being upstream of it. You know how like there's a sort of common thing that says, you know, culture is upstream of politics. You've heard that before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And th that's true. But technology is upstream of both them. Technology influences, you know, there's a different view which says technology is the driving force of history. And every ideology has been out there for all time. They're just way, you know, around in the matrix, but technology determines which of them are feasible and infeasible by parts. Okay. So, so, so are you are you arguing that okay. the that centralization itself was not the problem? It's that we had a, a centralized system of, of authorities that became incompatible with the prevailing technology? Yes, exactly. Right. So with India and China, they had sort of refounding moments, right? India, you know, China was sort of refounded in 1978 under Deng Xiaoping, India in 1991. So they're still young enough as states to sort of ride the decentralization curve, which was in apparent, like basically they were refounded on capitalism, mm -hmm. you know, which is part of the sort of latter half 20th century trend away from centralization, right? And so they, you know, for all their many flaws, many, many, many flaws, they're sort of riding the right wave of decentralization. Now, there's many asterisks and reversals and things you can put on this, because of course, China's built this gigantic surveillance state, and India's built a centralized, you know, payment stack and so on. But, and I'll get to that, but even with those sort of reversals and, you know, things, overall, they were sort of founded or refounded in the decentralized era, and they're sort of riding that wave to a better extent than the modern U.S., which was set up pre, you know, like like 1950, right? Like our, the, in the 1930s. It's about 50 to 60 years older. Let me illustrate what I mean when I say FDR's regulatory state was set up for mm -hmm. the centralized world. So, you know, the FDA, for example, it's set up to go and regulate Merck and Pfizer, right? Not a million people doing personal genomics. The FAA is set up to go after Boeing and Airbus not a million drone hobbyists, right? The SEC is set up to go and regulate, you know, Goldman and Morgan and, mm. you know, the NYSE and NASDAQ, not millions and millions of crypto people trading at home, right? The right. presumption is that you can have this TLA, this three-letter agency that pulls the CEOs of the major things in the room and jawbones them and says, this is the way it's going to be. And that's sufficient. There's two reasons for that. First is, you know, the, it's sort of easier to have the points of control be corporations that the regulatory state can kind of give instructions to to do X, Y, and Z as opposed to individuals. But second, and much more subtly, but very importantly, there's a book called Reputation and Power by Daniel Carpenter. And he is, you know, FDA sympathetic. Um, it's, a good, it's a good book, though, because he is honest enough to actually give first party testimony of the executives who are regulated by FDA. And their testimony is similar to that of like a somebody who's like a captor, you know, captive of a Vietnamese, you know, torturer during, during, you know, the, uh, the seventies and, you know, they, they'd be blinking, you know, I'm being tortured, even if they're forced to say something, mm. you know, positive. Right. right. So th these executives, you know, are basically blinking, I'm being tortured. And, and some of them are saying it outright. And then Daniel Carpenter kind of says like, but they were of course exaggerating, you know, but he includes the quotes from them. Right. And so the thing is that the, the FDA was kind of, you know, for many years used to being able to torture these executives for, for various reasons. One of the most important is that companies are unsympathetic, right? This is a big, bad corporation. 
Obviously, it's trying to cheat you. You know, we have seen thousands and thousands, countless numbers of movies and, you know, books and so on, where the villain is some mega corporation, right? I mean, think of how many movies you've seen where that's the plot, the, right. the reveal at the end is that it was an evil, greedy mega corporation that, you know, turned the mutants loose or something like that, right? Yeah, but but villains aside, we we have to confront this problem of, of bad incentives and the, neg- the negative oh, externalities of, of yes. people's greedy, quote, greedy profit motive. I agree. I totally agree with that. I totally yeah. agree with that. And, and I'm, not, I'm not somebody who is against regulation writ large. I just think that the current regulators, like you can go from nation state regulators to cloud regulators and actually achieve a better result. A very mm-hmm. obvious version of that is, and you might disagree with this, but I think it's true, is, for example, the transition from taxi regulations where you have a rare medallion inspection, maybe every six months, there's a cozy relationship between the taxi drivers, the union and the taxi regulators and the the customers of those taxis. They don't put in any star reviews or anything like that. And then you move to an environment where every ride is GPS tracked. Uh, Driver knows that the rider can provide payment. Uh, Rider knows the driver is being rated and can be decommissioned. You have real-time star rings and reviews on both sides. You know, there's a uniformity of service to some extent and so on and so forth. Like Uber and Lyft are not just better, you know, like taxis are better taxi regulators. And this is actually a broader concept. If you think about it, what is PayPal doing? What is eBay doing? What is Amazon doing? What is Apple doing? What is Google doing? These are all actually all cloud regulators for a significant part of their business where, you know, Apple provides. But, but what do I mean by regulation there? I mean, star, star uh, reviews, right? basically ratings of, you know, actors and then bands of bad actors, right? So you're doing quality scores and bands of bad actors. Those are the two components of regulation in a regulated marketplace. The distinction is in the first, you're giving like a star rating one to five, like this is good or bad. And the second, you're identifying an actually fraudulent actor who, you know, is not incompetent, not a one-star actor, they're a zero-star actor, okay? And so, so, it's, so it's a, if it's you think a currency about, of, okay. it's a reputational currency and, and a, a level of transparency that is causing it, yes, it, it, and, what otherwise would be a trustless situation. Uh, it's, it's allowing for something like trust. Exactly. That's right. So the, the subtlety is not that we are against all regulation. It's that we are against this technologically inferior form of regulation based on paper, based on these 20th century obsolete processes when you can do it way better. Hmm. You know, like, why lots of people use Amazon? Why? Just to look at the star ratings of products. Right. They have built a sophisticated regulatory system that is better than you know the FTC or the BBB or anything like that, which is you know on its back foot. Except when you go to when you have to buy batteries on Amazon. I don't know if you've noticed that, but everything is awful. Everything is none of the batteries were real. This, these are so, Chinese so fakes. The cap- Right, right. So the counter argument is now people have learned to game some of those things. Okay. And I would agree with that, that some of those reviews online can be gamed because there's a huge financial incentive to do so. And then I think we're going to see the next generation of crypto reviews, which make it harder to game where you have proof of human and you have web of trust and you have so on and so forth. But I think broadly speaking, being able to get a product review for anything under the sun for free in seconds is superior to the you know 1980s or 1990s environment where one could not do that. Okay, but if we if we revert back to the FDA for a moment, mm. 
Yes, popping back up. So, yeah, but, so but just, seems, just to close up. Just a question. I think many people would consider it a problem, even a looming one, that the FDA is not built to regulate the true democratization of CRISPR technology, say, or sure. the desktop manipulation of novel viruses, right? And the fact that it's not built to handle that is one problem. The other problem is it's nowhere written that the ongoing survival of our species is compatible with the true democratization of that tech, right? It's like it, it, so, some tech just shouldn't be spread, right? And and we need something like the FDA to put its foot down. Now, if they, it may be incapable of doing that, or we'll do it too late, or maybe it's not even possible given just the nature of, of the spread of technology. But it's not intuitive to many people that the solution here is necessarily to ride this curve of decentralization down to you know, a truly peer-to-peer free-for-all. So you raise an important point. And basically, I think it's something where we're going to a very high-variance world because the FDA is also stopping life extension and it's stopping anti-aging and stopping reversing of aging um, for many different reasons. But you know, the, the bureaucratic roadblocks that it puts in place, the idea that everything has to be sort of forced into the new drug application, you know, format, you know, all of that is something which is also preventing people from living forever. And when I say living forever, I mean, at a minimum, reversing aging, you, you can demonstrate that, that, that in the lab. David Sinclair has written about this. There's long, you know, books on this. But, but no, but why would that you, be you the know, case? You, because again, this is just, just a sure. first principles intuition, but there should be a massive incentive. I mean, take one component of life extension. So someone, so it, there's some path by which we're going to cure Alzheimer's, right? There's so much money to be made in a cure for Alzheimer's. There's so much money being spent in, the, in trying to mitigate the appalling suffering due to Alzheimer's. Why would the FDA in any way stand in the way of that progress? Excellent question. So this actually gets back to the so I'll give a couple of concrete examples, which are observable variables, right? Do you recall how the FDA basically with the Johnson Johnson vaccine, despite extreme large scale benefit from having it out there, went and amplified these very rare edge cases and used it to yank the vaccine, causing people to in part become vaccine uh, skeptical or, or whatever you want to call it. Remember that a few months ago? Yeah, I mean, around uh, thrombosis issues. Yeah, thrombosis yeah, issues yeah. is a very rare edge case. Yeah. But basically, they're not optimized for making the correct trade-off between type 1 and type 2 errors. Right? Another example that's even more egregious was last February. The FDA was, you know, and, and by the way, you know, when you say the FDA, the FDA is made of institutions, and those institutions are made of people, right? So, you know, Jeffrey Shuren at CDRH is actually, like, it's funny how it's always reported as, like, this abstract thing as opposed to a guy. Right? Isn't that interesting? Right? Because mm. the reporting doesn't actually. Yeah, people. Yeah. But by reporting this abstract institution, it makes it seem like nobody was making a decision when you report the person, right? So CRH is run by a guy, Jeffrey Shuren. And last February, there was a decision that was made basically to make it very hard for people to run diagnostics on the novel coronavirus. That is to say, they weren't actually given a, uh, an emergency use authorization. Yeah, yeah, that, that, was, that was really well, appalling. Yeah. Yes, but it was, it was critical because during those critical few weeks, the information supply chain was messed up. That's to say, the state was inhibiting 
decentralized testing for the novel coronavirus um, until the Seattle flu study, I believe, literally just did civil disobedience, broke the law, mm. tested for the coronavirus yeah. um, using you know, the tools they had, even if they didn't have the respective certificates. And you know, in that unusual situation, what happened was the New York Times company sort of you know, retroactively blessed their civil disobedience because you can bless civil disobedience as good or as bad based on that holy writ, right? And by kind of writing an article where they said that this was good, that indicated to the FDA that they couldn't go and enforce on them and beat them up later, that actually the FDA was wrong. They were, you know, the, the journalist was the adjudicator in that scenario, which I'll come back to. But now, wh- wouldn't you as- ascribe this more generally just to the dynamics of bureaucracy and the principle of it's, um, you're not going to get fired for the good thing that didn't happen that nobody on your watch that nobody knows about, but you will get fired for the terrible thing that happened. So there, there's just a risk aversion built in, you know, or, or, or a loss aversion. I mean, it's a loss, loss aversion built into the human psyche, but there, there may be an even greater principle of loss aversion built into bureaucracies. Well, yeah, but basically one way of thinking about it is you've seen a thousand movies on evil capitalists. You have mm. lots of different, you know, you also see movies where the police go bad and so on and so forth. So you have that mental model of greed is what makes them go bad. Okay, just in a sentence, what makes a regulator go bad? In the current environment, I guess, overzealous regulation in a time of emergency. Yeah, so you could, you could call it power, okay? Yeah. That's their failure mode, yeah. right? If, if, the, if the CEO's, you know, like failure mode is too much profit, the regulator seeks too much ambit, you know, A-M-B-I-T, like too much also just territory. Following the letter of the rule when obviously a life-saving exception is warranted. I mean, there's, there's no, there's, it's the rigidity problem and there's just no flexibility well, to intelligently respond the thing to is, it at the moment. They're conscious of that. So when they choose to be, they can be flexible, right? It's really about power for them. That's why you should read the book Reputation and Power mm-hmm. by Carpenter. Like we're familiar with this, let me give an example, which is more familiar to people, because most people have not actually encountered the FDA. So you only know about them through what you read, right? Right. And, you know, everything that one has not sensed directly, you know, one has not actually acquired information on, ideally, tables of data that you kind of systematically correct, but at least personal experience, you, you're, in, you're vulnerable to the intermediate, the media corporation or media entity that is reporting on them, because they can be a very noisy camera, they could distort what's on the other side, it's a noisy sensor, you have to kind of Go back to, to sensors. Okay, so let me go to something which we, we definitely have interacted with, which is the TSA, right? Yeah. So with, with the TSA, okay, back when we were all flying much more, but you know, let's say warp yourself back to 2019, okay? And uh, with the TSA, basically, you, you walk up to you know, the airport, and what do you do? You don't make any jokes in the line, mm-hmm. okay, when you're being uh, you know, t- forced to take out three-ounce bottles. You know, there's this new terrorist technology called mixing that can take two three-ounce bottles and mix them into a six-ounce bottle. It's the most insane and illogical regulation in the world, that one alone. They take off our shoes and kind of go through this, you know, metal detector or, or the, the, the actual, like this, this sort of somewhat radiative scanner. I forget the exact name for it. And you, you don't make any jokes. You don't talk about how ludicrous, you know, anything is. Uh, you just kind of comply and get on the plane. Why? Because if you were to make a fuss, well, you might suffer what's called a retaliatory wait time where mm-hmm. you're forced to go and sit in the corner, you know, and they ask you a bunch of questions and you miss your flight. And the cost of that, a few hundred dollars and, you know, the opportunity on the other side is not worth it to you. So you just sort of 
quietly comply with these illogical regulations um, until you deplane on the other side and you leave. And the thing is, it's a cost that is imposed on literally millions of people every day for 20 years. So the cost is in the many incalculable billions of dollars. Mm. But you reminded me of the time when I came back from India with a um, long hair and uh, probably wearing kurta pajamas. And uh, at that point, a fairly long established commitment to not lying under any circumstance. And when asked by customs whether I had used any drugs overseas, I said, yes, yeah, definitely. (laughs) And and, uh, the custom official's eyebrows rose to to the back of his head. And he said, well, what drugs did you use? And I said, well, I took acid in Nepal, and I um, smoked some opium in in India. <laughs> then I could I could see you know the, the full table of guys preparing to search my bags down to the, the last molecule. I, I hope I hope you got to the airport very early. Yeah, the, um, this, yeah this was on, on my return, so I just had to get out of there without being strip searched. But well, so, so to that point, though, basically, you know, if you look at how the TSA justifies themselves today, it's all about the guns and the drugs that they've seized. And of course, if you repeal the Fourth Amendment, you will search everybody and you'll find some bad guys. Hey, mm-hmm. look at this. Look at this table of all these guns and knives and drugs and so on we found. You, you know. But the, the thing is that you know, what is not seen, it's a boss yet seen and unseen, is, the, is the, not just the economic loss, the loss of privacy and all of the abuses of that system. And you know, more to the point, the initial raison d'etre, like stopping terrorism, people have done things like sanction tests where they try to get things on a plane and like fool the TSA. And it's like this very high percentage chance that you can fool them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, moreover, by the way, something the FDA did fast track through were those uh, detectors, right? So basically, I think back in 2010, like, you know, Ars Technica had a long article on this. If I can I mean, what are the, the, find like it. Backscatter I, x-ray detectors that you, uh, yeah, you exactly. see people the body scanners, There were... Yeah, professors who wrote in on the safety of these things, right, um, and wrote a letter. And because, see, the thing is, the, the FDA's mentality, the mentality of these, these agencies is, if it's a dot .com, it's evil because it's for a profit. If it is a dot .org, it's good because it's not for profit. If it's a dot .gov, it's a sister agency, so it's not for profit, and so we should let it on through and, and approve it. And if it's a dot .mill, well, uh, they're not exactly the same culture, but at least they're not for profits, so we'll wave it on through, right? And essentially, when it was TSA.gov to FDA.gov, you know, basically, they, they were given the benefit of the doubt. And so what's happened is the FDA waved through these body scanners that are irradiating all these people, and we will see what the long-term health effects of those are. But it's not obvious that they actually do anything relative to, you know, the Israeli style of actually looking for the person mm. as opposed to the object, you know? And, uh, you know, Israeli style has, you know, its own merits and, and demerits, but Israeli, you know, airport security is focused on who could actually be a terrorist. Yeah. And, you know, the, the American is very much not. It's try, it tries to enforce a sort of egalitarian thing that irradiates everybody, you know, equally, right? Well, listen, and, you're, you're talking um, to someone who once wrote an article in favor of profiling at the TSA. Yeah. And, so, so and I mean, so the, the issue is you, you can, you ima- you can imagine have... how comfortable the aftermath was on social media. Right. 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 So, so look, you know, the problem basically is that if, you know, any kind of you know, profiling itself has gotten a bad rap, but any kind of humant, right, like human intelligence, you know, where you're actually looking at the person as opposed to the process has been made, you know, kind of a, a like a, like a taboo thing to even think about. Yeah. And so the result is that everybody is 
not just inconvenienced, the, the, the process supposed to detect, you know, quote, terrorism doesn't even work, right? So it's just this giant tax on society where people, terrorists could actually get past the TSA. Okay, so what's my point, though? Um, and, and as, as evidence by those tests, if you need evidence, that show that people could get past it, right? So the thing has type 1 errors. It has type 2 errors. It's not actually set up to be what you want, which is sort of a metal detector for terrorists, not a metal detector mm-hmm. for objects, you know? Um, you want like a, like a scintillation detector, like something that's detecting this extremely rare event of an actual terrorist, right? And, you know, the, the thing is that despite this complete irrationality, despite the enormous destruction of value, despite the fact, by the way, that many well-heeled executives and politicians and so on must submit to this, we're in a bad equilibrium where to talk about abolishing the TSA, you know, would be, oh my God, you know, you can't possibly do that, right? And it's a very hard thing to change. Go Are ahead. you saying we have something like, so... People are familiar with the concept of security theater, theater at the, at the TSA. Exactly. So we have something like regulatory theater elsewhere in the government, including the FDA. Exactly. And the difference is that with the TSA, you know, why don't you say anything? Because there's retaliatory wait time, right? You can complain mm-hmm. after you get out, right? right? But if you're FDA regulated or FAA regulated or SEC regulated or something like that, you know, especially FDA, but, you know, you, you enter this dark tunnel at the time that you start a company. And then you're beaten with truncheons through the duration and you can't say anything because to say anything is to invite total destruction of your company because you can just be, you know, passive aggressively shunted to the back of the line with infinite denials until your venture backing runs out Mm -hmm. and then you're throttled to death. And when you fail in such a way, it looks like you just sucked, right? right? It looks like, oh yeah, your thing couldn't pass FDA clearance. And so that's why you, you've got sour grapes. But are, right? are you arguing that um, we actually don't want an FDA? Because I, I, I want a TSA, right? I mean, like, I, I want a TSA ah, that functions so, rationally. So this gets to my point of, I think you can build something much better, okay? And just as an example, let's take post-market surveillance, which is phase four, okay? So why can you not take your phone, scan a barcode of a drug at the store, and see every single review that any, anybody's ever had of that drug, right? ideally linked to their personal genomics and ideally linked to yours. So if you have AA, you know, at this spot and, and you can actually see, meaning, sorry, it's a technical point. If you have a genetic variant of a particular kind, you can see a table which shows everybody else who has the genetic variant. And then what they, you know, reported, was it a five star or one star mm-hmm. for this drug? You know, basically you could see the pharmacogenomics in real time. Right. But okay? short of that integration with the full genome sequencing of the entire population, what you have is something like the VAERS database, which now is well, being well, gamed by anti-vaxxers who are reporting that, you know, our COVID yeah, vaccines so, so, are killing them. By, by the way, so by the way, the, the high level thing here is what you're identifying is something true and important, which is that the internet means more variance, more upside and more downside, mm-hmm. right? More highs and more lows, right? And so on almost any issue, we can identify a downward deviation. We can identify QAnon, right? But we can also identify often an upward deviation. We can identify Satoshi Anon, mm-hmm. right? And you know, so so to your point, yes, there's going to be people who come up with crackpot, you know, medical maybe, things. Maybe online. maybe just drop the two sentence explanation of of uh, who Satoshi is, because I, I guess oh, most sure, people sure, sure. know it, but not everyone. Sure, Satoshi Anon, but I'm just kind of it's like a funny way of referring to it as parallel to QAnon. Satoshi Anon, uh, meaning Satoshi Nakamoto was the pseudonymous programmer that uh, created Bitcoin and then disappeared. Right. 
and we know he existed because there's, you know, like a, a lot of contemporary evidence and people who spoke to him electronically, but he maintained perfect operational security, was able to develop something that has changed the world and, you know, created trillions of dollars in wealth and, you know, is the subject of every, you know, banker and, you know, financier and, uh, you know, government, you know, they care about, right? So that was something where, you know, is a very different anonymous online kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Another one, by the way, was the, the lab leak theory. Last year, there's a website called, I think, projectevidence.github.io. And what that is, is basically a compilation of all the evidence for the lab leak, I think, last April. And, uh, you know, it took about a year before that bubbled to the mainstream. But the critical thing it was pseudonymous global scientific publication. And in a sense, we're going back to the future because Newton and others used to do this. They used to publish something where it was under a pseudonym. So people would sort of have to go after the ideas rather than the person, you know? And uh, so we're sort of back to that future. And so that there's, there's an upside as well to like anonymous internet stuff, not just a downside. So coming back to your point, and we're, we're like several things down the mm -hmm. stack and we'll pop back up, right? But absolutely, I think it's naive to say no FDA, right? It's sort of like, you know, Ron Paul saying, end the Fed. I'm actually sympathetic to that in some ways because, you know, like the Fed prints all this money and so on and so forth. But I'm a pragmatist as opposed to a doctrinaire libertarian. And, you know, the problem with, let's say, ending the Fed or ending the FDA is they're the center, they're the hub at the center of like millions of spokes. The entire system is built around them. You know, like to, to an in, like incomprehensible extent, you know, every mm. wire transfer, you know, is, you know, it's ultimately linked to like Fedwire or, or something regulated by it. And, you know, every single biotech company, drug company, device company has something pending with the FDA, might use an FDA database. It's not like they do zero things of value. Um, they do a fair amount. And, uh, and so just simply having that be a black hole is so impractical as to be laughable. And so you can't really say, end the Fed or end the FDA. That's like, you know, what people will hear sometimes, but that I don't think is practical. What you can do, however, and this is very important, is you can exit the Fed, exit the FDA. And what that means is figuring out a way, uh, which is non-trivial, to build a different system in parallel and have that be buggy and incomplete and risky to use at the beginning, such that only early adopters are in. But over time, it proves itself out and handles more and more and more of the criticisms and the V2 and the V3 and the V4 and the V10 and so on ship over years and decades. And then eventually it can stand up and take over from the, the previous entity. Okay. So we're actually doing that. That's what Bitcoin was, right? Bitcoin inverted the premises of the financial system. Satoshi, he said, hey, actually, yes, deflation is good. Gold is good user-level custody of your own keys is good as opposed to having a bank custody it for you, and so on and so forth. And he flipped the premises. Mm. And by flipping the premises, he put the ball at the 100-yard line, and a completely different system with different axioms was built up from that. And that system has proven to be superior to one that was just edits around the current system. Right. Edits around the current system get you Dodd-Frank. Edits around the current system get you, you know, what happened in the you know, the after, aftermath of the financial crisis, you know how they regulated the banks? By banning competition entirely. No new bank charters were issued for almost a decade. Mm. Okay. So it was, a, you know, I mentioned this previously, it was a coronation disguised as regulation where, you know, essentially they're like, oh, you're so bad. Let's ban all your competitors and enshrine you in law as the monopoly providers for eternity. 
this, by the way, is a fundamental thing is a lot of people think that regulation is like against big companies. It's actually for them. And it's a way of locking them in place and setting up barriers like all this antitrust stuff and so on against Facebook and Google is ultimately something that's meant to make them fuse with the state. And, you know, I say meant to, you know, let's say that is the emergent effect. It's not like they're going to shut down Google search or Facebook. What they're going to do is uh, a set up regulatory barriers to any competitor and B have a direct backlink, you know, or, you know, backhaul connection to the NSA so they can hoover up all the data. The national security state will get every single thing they want as part of any settlement. You know, all the, the problems they've had with Google or Facebook executives resisting them since the Snowden revelations in 2013 will all go away. So they'll get like this sort of pure link. The only way to actually compete with that is not by regulating them, but by having a bunch of startup piranhas and decentralized competitors go and devour them and build something better. And that's coming back to this point. We understand that in the context of a company, that you can have a startup that starts out with nothing. And it is, but, but you might have 100 of these startups, by the way, and 99 of them fail. It's actually not that high a failure rate, but let's just say 99 of them fail, but one of them has the right ideas and it gains strength over time and it reforms the existing incumbent, right? We understand that's a legitimate way of doing things for companies. Yes? Yeah. I mean, it seems like we're in a situation where it's not always possible. I mean, that hence antitrust. Well, so, I mean, but the thing is that what's interesting is th- there's so many folks who are chewing at pieces of Google and Facebook, like from the tech standpoint, right? From the VC standpoint, it is very much not obvious that antitrust is necessary or useful to disrupt. Antitrust is ostensibly pro-competition, but really it's pro-power. They say like the people who are interested in this kind of thing are not the people who have actually built companies that have been such a disruptive threat to these incumbents, they've had to pay billions of dollars for them. You know, for, j- just, to, just to harbor on this, I know we're kind of going yeah. all the way down the stack yeah, yeah. and we'll come back up, okay? But, you know, one meme out there was, oh, you know, we need to regulate these big companies to stop them from buying up all their competitors like Instagram and, you know, so on to, because they're, they're too, they're, you know, they have too much money to stop the competition. Now, the thing is that Zuck's acquisition of Instagram was something where like a billion dollars at the time was like a quarter of the cash on hand. It was a few weeks before the IPO. Instagram had zero revenue. Instagram was valued at $500 million a few days before he valued it at a billion. He didn't even get the board's like, you know, sign off on it. He had to do it himself. And John Stewart at the time mocked it. And he said, oh, Instagram? Well, the only thing that's worth a billion dollars for an Instagram would be something that instantly gets me a gram, haha, of cocaine, right? So, so it was mocked and derided at the time. It was actually like an extreme, you know, extremely non-consensus thing for him to do right. to buy the thing. And everyone thought it was a huge waste of money. And now, of course, 10 years later, everyone's forgotten that. Now, and now it looks, now it looks it predatory and, and obvious, but it was it yeah, entailed exactly. a lot of foresight. Yeah. It, simply, it simply wasn't. And when you are next to the CEOs and the founders of these large companies, the entire environment looks much more unstable than it looks from the outside because you have disruptors coming at you. I mean, why did Google not win with Google Video? Because... YouTube was basically more risk tolerant than they were, you know, and so they had to actually go and buy YouTube for 1.6 bill. And here's the critical thing. People think, well, let's just stop those big companies from buying these, in, these, these up-and-comers because then the up-and-comers will become successful. Actually, no, what you do is you then cut off the pipeline of the up-and-comers. And here's why. As a venture capitalist, when you fund a company, you have a few options for an exit, right? One of them, yes, is an IPO, but one of them is an M&A. And if you cut off 
every intervening gas station where there's a possible fill up, it becomes less likely you've reached that destination. Right. 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 And if there wasn't a YouTube exit, if there wasn't an Instagram exit, there isn't funding for every exit like that yeah. results in funding for a thousand more competitors. Right. And that's why we have Snapchat. And that's why we have, you know, like Discord and all these messaging apps. Why doesn't Google run messaging? They have Allo and Duo, these like kind of, you know, sorry to some of my friends there, but they had this very confused messaging strategy because they're a gigantic company that, you know, can only do the things that, you know, they, they were able to do, you know, 10 years ago and they can't easily do new things. And all those things are done by startups. But are, so you, are you denying that there's a potential problem of monopoly that needs to be responded to? I mean, um, you, you seem to be mostly you, yes. You think but, there's a problem but, of, of centralization? Yes. Can't you imagine a, what I'm a monopolistic takeover of one sector of the economy that needs to be well, uh, as the same, broken? As up? the saying goes, right? You know, the thing about tech monopolies is there's so many of them. But like, what, right? they're not that many competitors to Amazon or Facebook or Google at this well, point. Well, so so yeah. Well, there are actually with Facebook. I mean, so first, let me give the sort of first order version on that. And let me give the second order, right? Mm-hmm. Where I give something to your view. Okay. The first order version is there are a lot of competitors to them where, you know, first of all, obviously there's Chinese competitors, but leave those aside. For the average American, um, do you have to buy something at Amazon? No, you really don't. There's all these e-commerce specialty stores and stuff out there. Amazon is the most convenient in some ways, but it is like, you know, if you buy if you're buying a chair, you do not have to use Amazon. It gives you an extra level of convenience, but it's really not that much easier than you know, going and buying it online. There's almost except, no except Amazon is expensive. in a position now to, if any one of those competitors really starts succeeding, I, mean, I think they even did this with. I mean, Shopify is doing extremely well versus Amazon. Well, right? that's it, a, isn't there a story with like company. with diapers.com where they just said, okay, we're going to start selling diapers at a loss forever? Yes, the predatory pricing thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and, so, and I mean, let, you let, let is, us buy you for the price we think is appropriate. I mean, the, the thing about this is. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I've heard that story. It may be true. And it's something which a large company can do to you. But this is life in the NFL. You know, if you're doing a startup, you are basically going against giant companies that will do all this stuff. That's why startups are hard, right? Mm. The funny thing is, the kind of people who say that story are also the people who hate tech entrepreneurs, typically, right? They're not like pro-entrepreneur. The kind of person who's funding or founding a new diapers.com would be like, yeah, no, that's a tactic they could use. They could also cut off API access. They could go and muscle this or that, right? And the thing is to retroactively deem that to be illegal to cut prices is, um, I mean, this is the whole antitrust thing, like when is hard competition illegal and, and so on and so forth. And a lot of this stuff is just, you know, deemed illegal in, in retrospect, right? Where, you know, the winner to win is to lose. Right. You know, if you win in the market and you provide a better product to the customers, notice, by the way, they're not saying Amazon was bribing. They're not saying Amazon was, you know, like, like sending saboteurs in. They weren't like, you know, breaking the law in that sense. Right. What they were doing was, oh, they were cutting prices to give cheaper diapers to the customers of diapers.com. Okay. Well, the diapers.com customers are benefiting and Amazon is like holding its breath to do that. Now you might say, well, they're big and that's unfair and so on and so forth. But like that, that's just like one one thousandth of what you deal with when you're you're you know a tech founder going up against incumbents. It's not meant to be fair. Like the whole point is, have you heard the term unfair advantage? Sure. Yeah. Like they have an unfair advantage when you start out. Okay. You know what's unfair? What's unfair is Gmail has a billion users and your new email product has zero. Why don't they give you some users? Right. That's unfair that they're only sending Gmail notifications to their users and not yours. 
This, this line of argument can be extended to any asset that any incumbent has. And it's not actually pro-founder or pro-entrepreneur because it puts a effectively lawless state above every founder and entrepreneur where really, even if that thing is marketed as being better for customers, who's actually serving the customers? It's not the government. It was Amazon and diapers.com. Laissez-nous-faire, you know, let, you know, let, us, let us be. Laissez-faire actually has, has, a, has a logic to it where you let them slug it out in the market so long as they're not like killing each other, right? So long as they're not doing things like sabotage or, you know, things like that. Um, and then see, see where it comes out because that's actually better for customers. Now, this is actually related to you know, I believe Lena Khan's whole antitrust thing was that customer harm was insufficient as, as a theory of antitrust, right? So they're moving away from, you know, customer harm and consumer welfare to like a different kind of thing. So the law is sort of being changed in, in a mm. retroactive way, right? So just to finish this point, then let me argue the other side of it, right? So the, the key thing here is, as a venture capitalist, you need to have the possibility of a hundred million and billion dollar exit to fund the riskier ten billion and hundred billion dollar IPO. If you don't have, because those are rarer, right? That's mm-hmm. like you know, you, you you need to have the possibility of singles and doubles, uh, not just you know swing for the fences every single time because you'll get fewer hits, right? There's there's you know, and so if you cut that off. What actually happens is it's not like, oh, there's way more companies that go IPO. It's way fewer because when you remove the deepest pocketed bidders from the auction, right, when these big companies can't buy it anymore, there's a whole buyer that's being taken out from the market. And that means a venture capitalist makes less money. And that means there's less money for venture capital. And that means there's less money for startups. So the number of startups shrinks. Mm. So when you cut off acquisition, you cut off the number of startups. And so you actually cut off competition to these institutions. So it's, it seems like a first order thing. You know, it's, it was compelling to some people. I think it's the stupidest thing in the world if you're on the other side, but it seems to some people, oh, if you stop the big companies from buying their competitors, then we'll have more competitors. Actually, if you stop them from buying their competitors, they'll be far fewer because venture capitalists will fund far fewer of them. Right. Okay. So now let me argue the other point of it, right? Which is, you know, Glenn Greenwald, who, you know, has, uh, I'm, I'm friendly with on Twitter or whatever, but basically, Mm. Him and I have sort of had kind of parallel migrations in some way, where over the last eight years, I have become much more skeptical of centralized corporate power. And I think he's been much, become much more skeptical of sort of legacy media. And, you know, if over the 2010s, you could say that the conflict, a lot of the conflict was tech versus media. That was just one theater of our global social war, you know? And that's why I think of it as, by the way, not the civil war, but the social war. I'll come back to that point. You know, what, what it is now, it's not tech versus media, it's decentralized tech and media, like Substack and crypto and so on, versus centralized tech and media, namely the legacy incumbents who are losing a lot of their smartest people, but still have the distribution. And um, the reason I have become skeptical of corporate power is that the argument that, you know, folks will do things that are in the you know, interest of their customers and their shareholders and so on is not the case when you have these ideological mind viruses out there, or at least it's not obviously the case. They may have, you know, they may be responsive not to their fiduciaries, but to the Twitter mob, okay? They may be responsible not to the customers, but to the politicians who are funded by the Twitter mob. And I've seen that take over and brainwash and put employees and crazy people into many of these companies. And so, you know, for that reason, you know, I, I can't give three cheers for antitrust, but I can give half a cheer for it 
in the same way that sort of uh, one can argue that the antitrust attack on Microsoft in the late 90s and early 2000s, what it did is, and this is, you know, there's people at Microsoft who might argue with this, but here's like one history of it, right? Essentially, Gates, who was this, you know, Nietzschean will to power CEO, um, you know, despite looking, you know, like, like a nerd in, mm. in the digital realm, he's like a level 99 super jacked, you know, like avatar, right? Mm-hmm. You know, with all the muscles and gigantic flaming sword. So, you know, Gates basically had won everything going up into the, you know, year 2000. But he, but he caused a bandwagoning among everybody who he'd beaten, right? From Sun to Netscape and, and so on and so forth. And the antitrust sort of, you know, what do you call it? Prosecution, persecution, whatever of, of Microsoft distracted them enough. And then it led to Bomber's ascent. And then under Bomber, basically, you know, Microsoft sort of was number two in everything. You know, that's to say they did Xbox because PlayStation was out there. So they couldn't be accused of being, you know, a monopolist. Uh, they're doing Bing because Google was out there. So not accused of being a monopolist. They did the Zune because the iPod was out there. So they can't be accused of being a monopolist, right? So like, I'm number two, right? I'm in a competitive market. And, you know, once you start thinking that the goal is just to maintain competition, while the other person, you know, Google or, you know, what have you was playing to win, you know, you, you just had a, a different mindset creep in. Microsoft could no longer play to win. It is remarkable, you know, in a testament to Gates and to Bomber, frankly, you know, that he stepped down and, and that Satya was able to take over and turn the thing around. It's very, very difficult to turn around, you know, a tech company of, of any scale, let alone that scale. It's actually mm-hmm. Satya's, Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, is one of the most unheralded like super geniuses around for what he did, the surgery, the speed of the surgery he did on Microsoft to turn it into what it is now, um, where he gave it a second, you know, set of legs. He, he rebooted it for open source. It was like a refounding moment or whatever. You know, he mm-hmm. has this book on it called Hit Refresh, uh, where it changes some of the elements on the page, but not all of them. That was why he said it was a refresh. Point being, though, that basically the antitrust attack on Microsoft, you can argue that it distracted them enough. It made the giant, you know, blink, and then it cleared the way for the tech disruptors to take place. But the critical thing was that without those tech disruptors there, the government action alone would have simply like frozen Microsoft in place. Okay, you needed the tech disruption component. And frankly, that was actually the more important component because simply regulating Microsoft would not have gotten you Google Maps, right? Simply regulating Microsoft mm-hmm. would not have gotten you the iPhone. Uh, right. Simply regulating Microsoft would not have gotten you PlayStation or open source or GitHub or any of this other stuff, right? And in the same way, like, uh, you know, the antitrust thing, what it will do is it will distract these, you know, five tech giants, right? The Google, Apple, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, and the wokes within will now be busy producing lots of documents for the federal government. That's somewhat amusing, you know, and um, basically what it will do is it will result in many of their best leaving. But for where, and that's a critical thing, there has to be that second component because you need a vision of something better. Again, going to the connected to the earlier point, it's not simply end the Fed or end the FDA that's impractical, end Google or end Facebook is impractical. You can exit them and build something better. And what does that look like? And I argue it basically looks like uh, a crypto version of everything. So now should I talk about that? Like the kind of crypto plan for disrupting every yeah. tech company? Yeah, let's, um, let's give a maybe a 10-minute primer on blockchain and cryptocurrency. I, you know, I don't know how much knowledge to assume on the part of my audience, but I think it's worth 
put putting the most important concepts in view and just w- why migrating away from a an environment of trusted third parties is important. So sure, okay. So there's a ton, obviously, I can say on blockchain and cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and so on. But first, you know, if you only understand one thing, just to motivate Bitcoin, you know, you can get there in four steps. Okay, so step one is when you have physical cash, right? So Sam, I give you a dollar bill. Okay, we take something for granted, which is the physicality of that. I have it, then I no longer have it, you have it, right? The debit of me and the credit of you is obvious, it's manifest in the physical world, the dollar bill can only be in one place. Right. If we transplant that naively into the digital realm, okay, if I try to just take the serial numbers on that dollar bill and email them to you, and we try to treat that as cash, because after all, it maps one-to-one to each dollar bill, what happens? The issue is that I still have those serial numbers, even as you do. So you can't just spend it with the serial numbers because I could still spend it. This is a so-called double spend problem. There isn't a native form of scarcity in the digital realm. Right. Okay. So what we did until 2009 is we worked around that where we interposed a third party, a trusted third party, uh, a bank or a PayPal, which is running on top of a bank in the middle, where when I sent you a dollar electronically, there was a central entity that would debit me and credit you in a database, right? A minus one and a plus one, Hmm. right? The fundamental breakthrough, the, the problem, of course, is if you have that central actor, the guy who has the permissions on the financial system, that bank can also award themselves a lot of money, or they can block your transactions, or they can do lots of things where they're not just a, you know, neutral actor, but they're a motivated actor, and they're taking actions that are adverse to you or to your recipient or both, right? And so it's it's inelegant from a computer science perspective to have a, let's call it privileged node in the topology, this sort of permissioned, you know, actor in the center that can you know, debit you or credit the other person or choose not to do so or credit themselves. And so that gets to step four, which is decentralized digital cash. And the fundamental innovation of Satoshi Nakamoto was coming up with a data structure that could record those debits and credits and be updated in such a way that no one party had control over the updates. And this is Technically complicated, you know, it's not like super, super complicated, but it requires introduction of a bunch of concepts that, you know, I, I won't be able to do right now. But the fundamental idea is that rather than just a list, a predetermined list of banks that can do the debits and credits, anybody with sufficient compute can do the debits and credits. Hmm. Yeah, so may, maybe just internet. introduce the concept of the ledger. Yeah, that's right. So basically, Every debit and credit is entered onto a ledger, and you go from the centralized ledger that is essentially hosted at these banks to a decentralized ledger that anybody can, you know, read from and write to on the internet. And one way of thinking about this is blockchains are actually radically egalitarian and radically decentralizing because every user becomes a root user. Okay. So what I mean by that is, you know, for example, you have the root password to your laptop. Right? You have full permissions over it. You know, but you don't have full permissions over the Twitter database. You can't see it. You can't see every row and column in that database. Or to the PayPal database. Right? But everybody can download the Bitcoin blockchain, which is the database of all transactions. So everybody can read from it. Anybody who has a little bit of BTC can write to it. And anybody who has sufficient computation can write blocks to it, meaning approved transactions, approved debits and credits. So it's it's like open source, you know, where anybody can download code and run it, 
but it's not just open source code, it's open state. We've basically mean, managed to go from simply making the source code readable by everybody to making the database readable by everybody and writable by anybody with corruption protections and, and so on and so forth. Now, that may be you know, clear, maybe unclear, but the main thing it does is it's now a native way to represent digital scarcity. Recall the double spend problem that we, that we mm-hmm. talked about, right? The, the thing is now you have a third party, this distributed ledger that's recording the debit and credit, but everybody can see it or everybody who you designate can see it with so-called viewing keys. So it can be totally public. It can be totally private just between you and the other party, or it can be something intermediate where you allow your board of directors or, or a regulator to see it. Okay. And the thing about this is uh, it unlocks the digitization of every scarce good. Just to give you a sense of this, okay, with the internet, you know, before the internet, we had, you know, telephony with AT&T and we had television with NBC and we had mail with the US Postal Service, right? And afterwards, you know, these three things were integrated. Things that were regulated and thought of in totally different ways were all reduced to packets. And now you think nothing of sending somebody uh, an email with a link to uh, a Zoom that does both the telephone and a video call at the same time, which combines aspects of mail, television, and telephony, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Yep. And th- the reason for that is that all information was able to be represented in the form of a packet that could be sent over a packet switch network like, like the internet. And that meant that once we understood that fundamental thing, we could represent books in this way, movies, telephone calls, you know, as well as things, all, all legacy forms of information, but also new forms that weren't around prior to the 1990s, at least at the same scale, like search engines and social networks. Those were internet native, you know, forms of information, right? And, you know, one thing, mistake that people made, by the way, with the early internet is they thought of it as another channel, you know, like they're like, okay, we're going to have our radio strategy, our television strategy, our magazine strategy, and our internet strategy. And do you know why that was wrong? Um, Who's we in this case? This is like the media company executives, like Hollywood type executives in the late 90s, early 2000s. Well, ultimately, the internet strategy was going to have to swallow everything else. Exactly. That's right. It wasn't internet in its own box. It was internet radio and internet television and internet magazines and internet this, internet that, right? So today, some people make the same mistake where they think, oh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, they're an asset class, and that sits alongside stocks and bonds and mortgages and so on. No, actually, blockchains are a general way of representing digital scarcity in the same way packets were a way of representing digital information. So every scarce asset in the fullness of time will be blockchainified. So every stock, every bond, every loan, every mortgage, but also other things like passports, marriage certificates, birth certificates, debt certificates, every valuable scarce asset, both you know, fungible, like you know, a, a dollar, and non-fungible, like a birth certificate, will go on chain. And the reason is it's sort of like a fundamental set of primitives for programming with scarcity. So like, you know, the thing is a trillion dollars today, but it'll be like 10 or 100 trillion dollars by 2030. That's like, you know, unless the internet goes out and the world is hit by a meteor, that seems very clear to me. Mm. Well, let's you differentiate know, blockchain from cryptocurrency. I mean, it was, it's implicit in much of what you just said, but I mean, people are, are, will be most familiar with Bitcoin, which is a yes. one of, among many cryptocurrencies. And uh, well, that was Satoshi's uh, breakthrough. 
what yeah, so, um, so, just parse these concepts sure so bitcoin is the most important cryptocurrency it's the first it's also i would argue something that is categorically different than the others because it's very hard to replicate what bitcoin did because first it was like you know the first successful one the creator has vanished it's meant to be a digital gold the protocol seems to be you know mostly unchangeable you know and you know monetary policy seems immutable and so it's kind of solving its own problem of being digital gold and i think it has what we call product market fit for that and it's on a path to you know becoming essentially the the center of the world economy mm-hmm. and if you think about how important gold was in the medieval era everything was built around it empires you know wanted gold gold you know was a big thing for the spanish gold was a big thing for everybody because it was a scarce resource that powered all these kingdoms. So, so you, if we, maybe, maybe let's right. just linger on Bitcoin for a second. You don't think Bitcoin is uh, likely to be superseded by any other cryptocurrency? In the role of digital gold, no. Hmm. In other roles, like as a private currency, for example, that can be encrypted, something like Zcash or Tornado Cash or you know maybe Monero or some of the newer stuff like, uh, like Beanstalk, which I'm a small investor in. I assume I'm an investor, by the way, in every cryptocurrency. Just, just FYI, mm. I hold Bitcoin, I hold Ethereum. So, so I have enough interests that you know I just want to disclose that. I assume right. I'm an investor in everything. Yeah. I don't have to give 500 disclosures. So, but I think that I maintain a mostly, uh, I think it's impartial, but at least let's say broad-minded stance. And I'm not, a, I'm not any coin maximalist. Bitcoin, because of its acceptance by institutions, because of its name recognition, you know, if you talk to somebody who's outside the crypto space, they'll ask you something like, "What Bitcoin should I buy?" Mm-hmm. You know, so so Bitcoin is just like, you know, people may not have heard of something, but they've heard of Bitcoin. And because of that, it's like this sort of traveling wave bubble of information where it, its brand recognition is so high that so long as there isn't a catastrophic failure, it's going to it is going to, I think, win the digital gold role. And certain aspects of it that were you've heard that saying, you know, it's not a it's not a bug, it's a feature, hmm. right? Certain aspects of it, like, you know, the fact that it's globally transparent, that the blockchain is there and so on. These are things which I think, you know, will actually make institutions more comfortable in the long run, where, you know, the at some point by 2030, you know, the Bundesbank of Germany may have not just gold reserves, but Bitcoin reserves, you know, right. 2035, you know, and right. so because you're, you're, it's on so you're chain, bullish. It sounds it. like you're bullish from a, I know you're you're not um, eager to give investment advice, but it sounds like you're bullish on Bitcoin at any current price for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean, like, I think basically the thesis on it is, you know, gold is at a few trillion dollars market cap. But today's gold is a neutered version of what gold used to be. Gold used to be the main event, right? Mm -hmm. Gold used to be the center of the world economy. So gold in 2021 is not gold in like the pre-modern economy, which was a much, much, much bigger deal. So if we can recenter the global economy around gold, digital gold, uh, meaning not physical gold, but digital gold, it's way more valuable than just a, a trillion dollars. It's like the whole, it's like the main event. Then the question becomes at that level of value, every possible cyber attack and so on will be waged against it. And so that is a test that we have to see whether it'll be able to survive. But well, it survived. Is it robust? I mean, I'm, I'm sure people have um, analyzed its uh, robustness against attack and uh, the ways in which yes, someone could... could uh, but computer security is hard. Yeah, computer security is no very doubt. hard. And, and you only need to screw up once. And you know, there's libraries that have vulnerabilities that are discovered later. And there's very But, but even, even now, there are hundreds of billions of dollars to be made by successfully attacking it, right? 
Yes, that's right. And, yeah. and you know, I think, you know, the economist talks about like the, the famous economics joke, like, oh, there's a hundred dollar bill on the sidewalk. Well, it must not be there because no one's picked it up. Right. Mm. You, you've heard that one, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming. So in the same way, it is true that, you know, the, the market cap of a protocol is roughly correlated to its ability to resist compromise, which itself, by the way, is a deep point. You know, right now, the way that the U.S. government, for example, you know, how does it rate that a system is secure? You know, it has some bureaucratic process, some ISO 9000-ish kind of thing. Uh, so I forget what it is. There's actually an ISO process, like ISO 8000 something, I forget what it is. There's some bureaucratic process where people go with a checkbox to rate where something is secure. And this is not what actually matters, which is can you code attacks, right? Can you get a blinking cursor on that other guy's machine? Can you view their private keys? Can you exfiltrate their data? Can you gain egress or can you not, right? And the most direct test of the security of a system may turn out to be the market cap of its chain. And now I'm getting into a little bit of computer security stuff here for a second, but essentially, you know, like future governments will only be able to survive if they have sufficiently good information security. And we're just at the beginning of, you know, have you seen like some of the US government hacks that have been happening recently? Yeah. Yeah. Solar winds. Yeah. yeah. Solar winds. There's the OPM hack from a few years ago. The tech, like they are basically defenseless, right? And so we've got this weird combination of, you know, the surveillance state and the Keystone cops where they're hoovering up all the information, then leaving the back door unlocked. Yeah. And so sometime this decade, all of your stuff, all of our stuff will probably just be like sprayed on the internet. Uh, and it'll be much more tangible as to what it really means to kind of hack all these systems because these agencies, their, their, their concept of cybersecurity is passing regulations and doing things with paper. The alternative paradigm is something where for all its many flaws, a blockchain is under constant economic attack. And if somebody compromises it, you immediately see that the damage has occurred. It's not like a silent compromise. The damage has occurred because the money has been moved. There's an incentive to all accept, you know, a nation state attacker to immediately make public that they compromise it because they moved the money. You know? How, was, there, uh, was there evidence of compromise? I didn't actually follow the story very closely, but in the recent ransomware attack where there was some number of millions of dollars in Bitcoin paid to the attackers, wasn't uh, the FBI or someone able to get back some of the Bitcoin in a way that suggested that there was a, a security problem with Bitcoin itself? Ah, so it's so funny you say that because that was misreported by the New York Times. Hmm. Uh, because basically, you know, these Salzburger employees don't actually know math or computer science. They had reported it as if like ECDSA had been compromised, right? They've reported it as if these, you know, like without getting into details, like these fundamental math problems had been solved. Right. Actually, it was like a search warrant for an exchange. So what happened was the legacy system was broken, you know, and the, the, say the, the system that had the ransomware attack on it, but Bitcoin certainly was not. And it wasn't like the FBI had some master key to be able to like reverse Bitcoin transactions. Not at all. It just basically, I think, served a search warrant to an exchange. This was misreported at the time. Mm. Preston J. Byrne actually had a thread on this where he kind of gives more detail on it. Yeah, Preston J. Byrne on Twitter. Um, if you just Google Twitter, Preston J. Byrne, ECDSA, I think you will, you, you, might, mm. you might find it. I, th I, th but, think you, yeah, so, I think you right. said at the top, given your, your backstory, but you were the CTO of Coinbase, right? Yes. And so it's, you, it's in my ambit, or, or yeah, yeah, it's, in my, it's in my wheelhouse. Yeah, no, no doubt. 
Coinbase would be the exchange where many people would have bought Bitcoin if they bought Bitcoin at all. Do you- I, I don't know which exchange it was, if that's what you're asking. Right. But basically... No, I'm, yeah, I'm but more the, asking, is there a vulnerability with these exchanges? I guess we're kind of going down a rabbit hole with respect to Bitcoin here, but... No, it's not, it's not a vulnerability versus an exchange. It's basically... So So here here's the thread um, from Preston J. Byrne on June 8th. Well, that's my time zone, you know, May, June 8th, June 7th, 2021. And he cites Jordan Schachtel, who says, more info from the Warren here. So it looks like I was right. The FBI did not obtain the private keys and said they took legal action against an exchange or some kind of custodial wallet that has servers in Northern California. These, quote, hackers are grossly incompetent. So, I mean, there's no vulnerability on the exchange unless you count being, so, at so least but, in this so case. So, but these, these ransomware attackers then did not take private possession of their keys. They kept their money on the exchange and that's how it was it was reclaimed by I th- the FBI. I think, or at least they routed some funds through an exchange and that's how they got caught. You know, they mm-hmm. thought they could just sell it that way. You know, they weren't like familiar with chain analytics. Right. So, but yeah, it's, it wasn't a vulnerability in Bitcoin. It wasn't a vulnerability in an exchange in, in this case, because it was just a search warrant that was given to them. And this actually illustrates a, an important point, which is that blockchains for their many faults are hardened systems, Right. You know, think about the difference between a combat veteran and somebody who's just, you know, read about it in books, right? The, you know, the, la- the former is this grizzled veteran and the latter is just some theoretical kind of, you know, person, right? You know, who's really bad at computer security are government IT developers. You know, who's getting really good at computer security are successful blockchain developers hmm. because every single day they are handling attacks on their systems by people who are looking at every edge case and trying to compromise it and trying to debit and credit. And so like, you know, if you were to draft the future space force, they'd be out of SpaceX. And if you draft the future cybersecurity force, that would be out of the crypto space. It would not be your government IT developers. Hmm. Yes, just I I forgot whether you fully differentiated blockchain from cryptocurrency. Maybe, oh, from cryptocurrency. maybe it's worth yeah, yeah. maybe just uh, say something about Ethereum and that that would allow you to to make this case. Yes. So 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 the the fundamental data structure underpinning Bitcoin is this concept of a blockchain which is basically every 10 minutes a new block of transactions is appended to a chain of all the pre-existing ones so you can look at it as literally a chain of blocks, right? A block and then a link and then a next block and then a link and so on. And you go to a website like blockchain.info or btc.com and you can actually see the block stream in. They're blocks in the sense of like a, a table of transactions, like a, like a square table of transactions is a block. Then you have a gap of a few minutes and there's the next block of all the transactions. And, and how right? fully distributed is this? Whose computers house the blockchain? Right. Great question. So Bitcoin is, so I actually wrote an article several years ago called Quantifying Decentralization, because the concept of whether something is decentralized or not, I argue, is not simply a binary thing. It can be quantified. The metric I proposed is the number of independent actors you need to compromise to compromise the system as a whole. Okay. Bitcoin is probably by most measures, the most decentralized blockchain in terms of, you know, how many different people hold it, how many different you know, computers are mining it, and, and so on and so forth. We saw an empirical test of that recently where China swung very hard against Bitcoin miners, right? Mm-hmm. So in 2017, they swung hard against Bitcoin exchanges and drove them mostly out of China. And in 2021, they, they, they started cutting not just into muscle, but into bone. And they went hard, like basically just kind of shut down exchanges, but they pushed miners out of the country. They just told them, and these miners had, by the way, they had 
you know, dot every I, crossed every T. They'd done all their stuff. They thought they were secure. And they just got wrecked by the Chinese government over the course of a few weeks as part of this, you know, like broad China crackdown. And, and it was some crazy percentage of Bitcoin miners that were in China, right? I mean, it was a majority. It was a high it? percentage. But now that's that argument has been taken off the table because all that happened was that, you know, Bitcoin blocks slowed down for a little bit, but for the most part is basically unaffected, right? Mm. And so like what you had was essentially the most technologically competent, gigantic centralized nation state basically attacking mining and Bitcoin network managed to, to just chug on, right? Nobody really, I shouldn't say nobody noticed anything. It was, it was like a, a slowdown of blocks, but it really wasn't that big a deal. And, and what, what actually physically happened in response to that? You had Chinese miners who ceased mining and then more miners sprung up in Finland or wherever, or well, uh, the miners had already miners. sprung up in Finland, right? They'd already sprung up in other countries, and because but, but if something, up, I mean, whatever it was, let's say there was you know sixty percent of miners were in China, and China turned the screws down on them. Did we lose sixty percent of the Bitcoin miners overnight, and it didn't matter? Something or? like that. Yeah, yeah. Basically, I'd say you know looking at bitinfocharts.com. I tweeted about this at the very peak. Let's say you know um, that. The hash rate was like on the order of uh, 180 exahashes, you know, per second. And then like in the very trough in like early July, it was at like 80. So you went from 180 to 80 mm -hmm. and now it's back up to like 140, right? Right. So it's visible in the chart. Okay. So, you know, what is, what does that math work out to 80 over 180? It's like, yeah, so about 55% of Bitcoin mining roughly went offline looking at this chart. But, you know, a few months later, it's back at 140, which I mean, you know, that is the government of China swinging hard at Bitcoin, right? Now it's back up to like 78% of what it was. That's the government of China swinging hard at Bitcoin. And you just don't have something else in the world that is that organized and ruthless and technologically sophisticated. I mean, one way of thinking about it is how many Western politicians do you think can even describe what a firewall is? Well, but uh, to, to that point, wasn't there just some legislation in Congress that is, uh, it may still be in process that was going against- Oh, the crypto infrastructure I mean, bill. This is more of a, yeah, a well, regulatory uh, attack on yeah, Exactly. So, so if the Chinese attack, I mean, the Chinese you know, government, they're staffed in large part by engineers. The Great Firewall is a tool of policy. They were very early on it. You know, there was actually this wistful article in the New York Times a while back that was kind of wanting a Chinese-style Great Firewall to stop all this misinformation, meaning- like, you know, anybody who's not a Salzburger employee publishing something online would be, you know, misinformation till deemed otherwise. But yeah, to your point, like the, the Western attack will not be technical in the, quite the same way. I mean, the Chinese attack was technical slash regulatory. The Western attack is regulatory primarily. Mm -hmm. And um, what they were trying to do was basically criminalize like blockchain software development, you know, to say, hey, if you put out software that, you know, allows people to use it for this or that purpose that we don't like, then you might be, you know, you might have to do 1099s and everybody who is, who's, who's using the software, you know, and basically impose an impossible reporting burden. Right. A rough analogy is imagine if Cisco had to know the home address of everybody who was sending packets through a router. Mm -hmm. Okay. If YouTube needed to know your mailing address for every single thing you're doing, if every website needed to know the mailing address and not just every website, but every developer, it's an informational burden that it was portrayed in such a way as to be, oh, hey, 
why don't you guys just want to, you know, pay pay what the government is due? Uh, and that's actually never never the matter. Like the exchanges were fine with this. It's the imposition that this would have had on the software developers. And what was interesting was, see, normally unclear language in a bill, you have the uh, Lenin-style useful idiots who will basically be like, oh, it doesn't matter that it's not unclear. The government will still take a, you know, they're rational, you know, and uh, and so these these useful idiots will basically, you know, think against all evidence and reason that the state is going to be like reasonable in its interpretation of this stuff, given every other counterexample we've seen of the U.S. state. And uh, what was interesting in this one was very atypical, is that you got a line item clarification. Remember the concept of like the line item veto, mm. right? This was like a line item clarification of this multi-thousand page bill that was co-sponsored by three senators across parties. So a bipartisan amendment specifically for this to clarify the matter that developers and miners and so on were not included. And that actually caused the state to decloak because the people who had tried to slip in this stealth amendment then decloaked. And they showed that their true intention was to go after miners and DeFi and so on, because the counter amendment they proposed very noticeably did not exempt, you know, developers, right? And it just exempted proof of work, but not proof of stake, meaning that, you know, they were like, okay, we'll let Bitcoin through, but we won't let, you know, DeFi through. But it wouldn't even have let Bitcoin through because Lightning developers would have been, you know, considered as part of this. You know, miners might have been considered as part of this. It was a very poorly written legislation. But the main thing is it forced them to drop out of stealth mode, right? The V1 was they tried to put in a stealth amendment. They thought mm -hmm. that various useful idiots would say, oh, the government is well-meaning. That was decloaked by a very targeted line item counterman, which is extremely difficult to get in, by the way. A bipartisan amendment on a specific issue on a must-pass bill, you know, like that's really hard to do to get a line item edit in, right? And that forced them to kind of show their hand that, and then it came out that, Treasury and Gensler and the White House themselves were pushing for this, right? Fortunately, there was enough public outcry that it was pushed, I shouldn't say pushed back, it was pushed to like a kind of a stalemate kind of thing. The good thing is that there's basically nobody on social media who is like pro-state on this. Well, do you okay? think there's enough uh, wealth captured by Bitcoin and Ethereum and the, and the other players at the moment that it would really be impossible for the U.S. government to regulate it out of existence or... or well, or, it's or not just that. I mean, the thing is, they can choke all kinds of things. There are lots of wealth that was created by railroads. There's lots of wealth that was created by lots of things that the U.S. government did basically choke into submission over the course of the 20th century. You know, all the robber barons were gelded. FDR, mm -hmm. you know, famously went after all of his competitors like Andrew Mellon and so on. You can Google that. So, you know, for example, who's, who's the number two guy in Soviet Russia after Stalin. Trotsky got an ice pick right. in his head and then mm. Kirov and he got right. killed, right? It, you know, under mysterious circumstances. And so essentially the state has no problem, you know, chopping off the heads. You know, this is the same thing that's happened in China, you know, starting with Bo Xili in like the early 2010s. And now more recently, you know, why is the state going after the Chinese state in this case, going after Alibaba and Meituan and, uh, you know, ByteDance? Like Ziming Yang didn't even do anything. Uh, he, he didn't give like some speech versus regulators like like Jack Ma. There's no, nothing, you know, like like concrete. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe someone in the Chinese internship will correct me. But it's just that the state is like, there shall be no gods before me, right? They're, these tech guys are getting, you know, too big for the britches. Let's chop off their heads. So yeah, but I the, don't the believe, CCP doesn't have to be elected. I mean, we, in America, we have granted 
I'm not saying the, the U.S. government can't ever go against the, the billionaire class or the top 10,000 wealthiest people in the country, but there's generally speaking, it's not an appetite to do that. It's more complicated in the U.S. today for several reasons. One is there are billionaires on both sides, right? Mm. Like this is one where it's really the banks versus crypto, right? It is the legacy establishment versus technological progressives. Mm. And, and so, so it's something where it's actually, you know, in many ways, I think the new political axis in the U.S. is not North versus South. I think the South will not rise again. You know, prior to 2020, I would have said it was East Coast versus West Coast, you know, but really what it is, is it's, you know, centralized versus decentralized. And both sides can make both, you know, right and left arguments. You know, the centralized can say, oh my God, you know, terrorism, national security, you know, we need, you know, to control this crypto thing. And then the lefting argument is, oh, they need to comply with all applicable regulations. Oh my God, these billionaires think they're about the law, blah, blah. And then you can also have the decentralized versions of right and left. Obviously, there's decentralized libertarian, you know, free markets, you know, and then kind of both libertarian left and right are, are in theory, pro-free speech. And then libertarian left says, hey, why is OnlyFans being shut down? You know, why, why are we subsidizing these banks with these regulations that are propping them up and so on and so forth? So it is the realignment that is happening now is not traditional left versus right. It is centralized versus decentralized. And I think we're, I, you know, knock on wood, I do think that the decentralized movement ultimately wins the day, but it's going to be difficult and close. I definitely would not look at it as simply, you know, oh, the government can't regulate rich people because, you know, rich people are on both sides of this one. Right, I right. just think that the energy of history is on the decentralized side. And I think we will probably win, but it's not going to be easy. Right. Okay. So we have cryptocurrencies of various flavors, Bitcoin being the biggest, and this solves the problem of digital scarcity digital with respect to the the store of value and the, the medium of exchange. And although in the case of Bitcoin, it's hard to spend because it's so volatile, it's not really functioning as a medium of exchange at the moment. Well, how do you think about what blockchain beyond cryptocurrency enables? What, what, ah, I mean, okay. you, you, you so ran I, through a litany of possible use cases, but how is this a game changer for, you know, the, the internet and for society at large? Okay, great question. And then also, I want to come up to some of the media stuff and so sure. on, and maybe you know tie off some of the open threads that we had. You know, I said to come back to it, yeah, yeah. send it down the stack. But um, so you know, Bitcoin's innovation was digital gold, basically how to represent scarcity, you know, on on chain. And you know, for five years, it had to prove that out from 2009 to roughly 2014. And it worked and it was amazing that it worked because it was very counterintuitive that it would work and that people would value it and so on, but it did. And then what people realized was, you know, Bitcoin initially had some features for programmability that were shut off by the developers because they thought that they were potentially security holes. And so essentially there were a couple of major innovations on Bitcoin. I'd say there's at least two directions that people took on it. First was programmability, that's Ethereum. And Ethereum is a very successful blockchain launched in, I think, 2015, where you can write more sophisticated programs. So it's not just a debit or credit of digital gold from my account to your account, but it's like a smart contract, which is calculating, okay, uh, here's a loan or a subscription. I don't just debit or, and credit in one transaction at a go. There's some logic. If A pays me, then I pay you, and then you pay Sally, and, and so on and so forth in a loop, right? So those smart contracts could facilitate, for example, crowdfunding. Uh, so there's this whole ICO boom. 
but they can mm -hmm. do other things. They can do like, you know, exchanges like Coinbase, you can put them on chain, which people have done with things like Uniswap. People have built, uh, as you know, NFTs, like you're putting art on chain. They have built, you know, basically online or on-chain loans, on-chain derivatives, basically on-chain versions of almost every financial instrument. There's a website called defipulse.com, where if you go there and you click the graph and you go to all, you can see the absolutely vertical growth of this whole space of sort of writing financial programs. And the fundamental new thing that Ethereum and, you know, like these other blockchains have allowed is, uh, Bitcoin also allows this, but a program can now hold money, okay? It's kind of like a self-driving car where there's no hands moth. One way of thinking about it is every phone number needs to be, I shouldn't say it needs to be, but historically phone numbers were associated with humans, you know, and then, you know, you disaggregate them from humans and now a machine can dial up a phone number, make a call on your behalf or do so via an IP address, right? And so that's like a machine version of it. Similarly, you go from like a physical mailing address to an email address and a machine can now have an email address where a machine wouldn't necessarily be able to receive physical mail. And a machine might not be able to have a bank account directly. It has to be in your name or somebody else's name. But a machine can just dial up a Bitcoin address, an Ethereum address, receive money and send it and spend it, right? So this whole era of sort of programmable blockchains is what Ethereum ushered in. And the second major thing, which, you know, hasn't gotten as big today, but I think is going to be very important, are private chains, privacy coins. So Zcash, Monero, and their various descendants. And uh, so that's, you know, you can fork in the direction of programmability, you can fork in the direction of privacy. And privacy is itself a whole thing, because it's very advanced cryptography to turn it from this totally public Bitcoin-like blockchain where everybody can see every transaction to one where you have um, security. And the analogy is, do you remember, uh, you know, when the lock symbol, actually, it still appears, you know, the lock symbol in the upper left corner of, of your browser, right? Mm -hmm. You know, yep. there used to be a time when there was a green lock symbol for HTTPS content and no lock symbol for HTTP content. Mm -hmm. Basically, when the, when the web started, most of the content was insecure as HTTP, Hypertext Transmission Protocol. But people quickly discovered that you wanted to do things like send credit cards online and, and so on. And so HTTPS was invented, which was a secure transmission protocol. And so one way of thinking about it is Zcash is to Bitcoin as like HTTPS is to HTTP. Privacy coins are to Bitcoin as HTTPS is to HTTP. Now there's ways of doing this kind of thing on Bitcoin itself to some extent with like confidential transactions or coin join or things like that, they don't give quite the same security guarantees as these privacy coins. Okay. My point being, those were two of the major kind of interesting forks, you know, conceptually of Bitcoin. They weren't literal forks of Bitcoin. They were conceptual forks, like directions you could take um, starting around 2015-ish for privacy and programmability, mm -hmm. respectively. And, you know, now to your point of, can you do blockchain without cryptocurrency? This was sort of a, a big thing at that time where people you know, we're enthused with the idea of, oh, wow, you can track everything. There should be a ledger. Oh, but I'm not so sure about this Bitcoin thing. That seems kind of crazy and weird uh, and volatile. Uh, what if we strip that out? And what if instead we have like some consortium of banks and they have a blockchain for their internal stuff? The problem with this whole enterprise blockchain thing is that it takes, it's actually a, a worst of both worlds hybrid. It's like an infertile hybrid, right? Sometimes, you know, you have Hegelian thesis plus you know, antithesis, that's a useful synthesis. And sometimes it's just like a, like a, like an infertile mule or something like mm -hmm. that. Right. And an example of a synthesis that worked in, in the, in the space was buy Bitcoin with fiat, right. That gave rise to Coinbase and to, you know, Kraken and all these other exchanges, because even though it seemed like a contradiction, Hey, isn't Bitcoin against the banks? Why would you buy Bitcoin with fiat? It seems like a compromise of both things. It was a peanut butter and jelly combo. It worked. Right. 
An example of a combination that did not work was enterprise blockchain because it had the complexity of enterprise and the technical complexity of blockchain without the upside of the cryptocurrency. Okay, so just to drill into this for a bit, if you had some consortiums, 2015, 2016 era consortium between banks on a blockchain that did not have a crypto asset intrinsic to the chain or associated with it, then you just had a boondoggle where you're trying to get eight companies to cooperate without any incentives for the executives or management to do so, right? Um, and that's why consortiums are really hard. Generally, consortiums only work if there's like one hub, like a Visa or a MasterCard that's like making it work. It's like their business to make it work. A ad hoc consortium, usually there's like one driving actor in that consortium. Yeah. And they have enough muscle or connections to pull the other ones in. It's a CEO level thing where you have to jawbone the other CEO to get eight companies to work together, especially on their database backend. It's really hard to migrate your database within a company, let alone between, right? So instead, in theory, if you had had a cryptocurrency associated with it, well, if these organizations, they're incapable of doing so in my view, but if they did all partner and announce this and say they were doing it, that coin would be marked up to like $2 billion. And suddenly all the executives would, you know, because the speculative value of how valuable this thing would be if it did work, some of that future value is teleported into the present with some discount. Maybe it's worth 200 billion with 10% probability in five years. So you value it at, you know, 20 billion today, for example, right? Or 1% probability in five years, you value it at 2 billion today. So if they had had some mark on the books, every one of these executives tasked with doing this integration at these eight companies could have said, whoa, look, I just contributed 125 mil or 250 to our balance sheet as a function of doing this. Give me some resources against that illiquid equity to go and, uh, and build this thing out and we can build more of it, right? It would have made it tangible, it would have made it you know, like, like feasible for them because you need the cryptocurrency there to align incentives. Mm. So that's like one piece of it. There's more I could talk about, but essentially, Blockchain without cryptocurrency, I think, is just a dead end. And instead, what you're going to find is that all of the interesting crypto applications are cryptocurrency and, right? Mm -hmm. Like, for example, digital art is not just art on the blockchain. It's art on the blockchain with an entire auction market in Ethereum built around it. Right, right. A passport on chain will not just be a passport. It'll probably require you to lock like $1,000 of ETH to, or, or something like that to show it's actually you. Like your passport fee is like a deposit that makes it difficult to fake. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, you might get lots of, uh, you know, fake passports, but it's if you're putting effectively a tax of $1,000 or $100 or whatever it is of a stake on each one, it's hard for people to dial up lots of fake ones, right? So cryptocurrency would integrate into passport authentication in that way. It's not the only component of it, but it'd be a part of it. What about a couple of stumbling blocks that have been in the news here where you have the uh, the transaction costs in Ethereum that make it hard or to rising. scale, right? So like like yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so, so this is basically, I mean, there's a saying, you know, scaling is a good problem to have. Basically, it just means there's out of control demand, and then you just have to solve it fast enough. So, uh, what I've seen from blockchain scalability, I am generally bullish on it because a lot of the smartest people in the world are working on it. It's like the transition from 28k modems, 56k mm -hmm. modems to you know fiber, and then broadband, you know, wireless and, and, and now 5G and so on, like very similar to that, the, the early generation of internet applications or web applications had to be coded around the limitation of constrained bandwidth, right? That's why like early Google was just, you type in a word and it gives you back results. It's a very low bandwidth application. Early Netflix was type in an address and we'll send you, you know, some videos. They weren't streaming. Send you, send you right? a filthy DVD. Yeah. Yeah. Filthy DVD. Exactly. That's right. They had to wait. I mean, Netflix was aware that the future was streaming, 
but it literally took 10 years before home connections caught up to it. And, you know, like much of the modern environment, by the way, like we take it for granted, it's been around forever, but really a lot of it is just post iPhone, you know, it's basically 2009, you know, this whole tech ecosystem is like 12 years old. Like even in 2008, for example, Joel Stein, like wrote an article where he's like going through the power centers of the US, I think for time, and he didn't name Silicon Valley, right? Mm -hmm. Like basically Silicon Valley technology was not considered a power center until after the iPhone. It's much more recent than people think. And so, you know, uh, you, because during the 2000s, as you recall, people, were, they cared about Iraq and they cared about, you know, terrorism and stuff. And now that's back in the news with Afghanistan. But tech was just sort of like this sidelight thing. And, you know, from the perspective of somebody like Microsoft, for example, only Google was making money on the internet, even up until the year 2008. And then post 2009 with the iPhone and with, you know, that making Facebook go vertical and with the, you know, the market that it expanded because everybody was now on the computer all the time, not just nerds at their desktop. All those things made, you know, tech go vertical, but it wasn't un- until then. And why do I make that point? Well, you know, people sort of, they've sort of rewritten history, just like with Instagram, people today think it was an obvious decision at the time they mocked it, right? The internet was not like obviously useful and central until all of the SaaS apps completely dominated, mm-hmm. right? And that was really, you know, mid 2010s. Okay. Right. It was not like 2009 because before you, you know, before the iPhone, people could go, you know, for the most part without using a computer other than email, you know? And then afterwards it became central. Everything was based on it. Now you need, you know, a phone to share your like vaccine passport or something like that. Now it's like assumed that everybody has a smartphone, but it's basically about 10 years old, that modern environment. And so similarly, like with, with blockchain, just to make the analogy, just to close the loop on this, I roughly think we're kind of in the year 2000 for blockchain, roughly, or for cryptocurrency, because we have, you know, in the year 2000, you had Yahoo, you had some large hits, some billionaires, and so on. You had the infrastructure layer of the internet. People certainly knew, everybody had heard what it was, but there were a lot of people worldwide who didn't use it, you know, like more than 95% of India, I think maybe 97% or something like that was not online. Um, Much of the world was not online. It was really a U.S. thing. And it was a U.S. thing that was a curiosity, whatever. You could take it or leave it. You could basically live a completely offline life, right? And that's kind of where cryptocurrency is right now, where people can live a completely crypto-free life, you know? You you know about it. You've heard about it. You've heard of Bitcoin. You probably have friends that hold it, like friends who had an email account in the year 2000. But you could get by with physical mail. And if you wanted to ignore it, you could. By 2010, that really wasn't an option. And then by 2020, it's completely infeasible Mm -hmm. to ignore the internet. And I think that's roughly the progression of crypto. Maybe, you know, so today I would analogize it's the year 2000, where we have the infrastructure layer, we have miners, we have chains, we have, uh, you know, exchanges, we have the first set of billionaires, but it's it's like at at that infrastructure level. And then the applications are coming online now. And, you know, like loans and derivatives and, you know, uh, NFTs and other kinds of things. And it'll become unignorable, I think, in 10 years. And I think it'll become like impossible to live without in like 20 years. Mm. What, what, what about um, SEC regulation with respect to investments? Ah, really good question. So medium to long term, I do think that the energy is on the side of legalization and decriminalization of all crypto stuff. And the reason for that is it is no longer just about like some random nerds, we're moving from internet influencers to crypto creators. So you and everybody on Substack and everybody on YouTube and all of these people who are very, very influential voices in, in, in total from all across the political spectrum 
can literally make more money and have more property rights as a crypto creator than an internet influencer. And let me just speak to that and then let me come back up to the SEC mm. point. So the internet influencer is kind of like, like a sharecropper or, or like a, almost like somebody who lives in a communist dictatorship in the sense that they don't even own the, you know, anything that they generate on Facebook or Twitter right. or, or something like that, right? You can be deplatformed at a moment's notice and it's about free speech, but it's not just about free speech. It's about digital property rights. Okay. So, you know, like there's this great article actually in NPR of all places from years ago before it became completely woke on um, the secret contract or the secret document that transformed China. And, you know, most people don't really have a good mental model of China at all, frankly. But, you know, China pre-1978 was an environment where you could be shot for keeping just a little bit of the grain um, for yourself rather than putting it all into the collective pool to be like, you know, uh, stolen by some bureaucrat, right? Basically, the concept of private property was completely taboo to such an extent that there's a famous story of the you know, farmers in the you know, uh, Xiaogang province who got together and had a secret contract amongst themselves that said, hey, what we're going to do this year is we're going to farm and we're all going to keep a cut, 30% or something for ourselves. And uh, the rest will go to the state, but we're not going to tell anybody that we're going to be keeping at least some for ourselves. We're going to sign the contract amongst ourselves and we hide it in the roof over here. So in case the state kills us for doing this, then we will each take care of the other's orphans. That was the extent to which entrepreneurship, private property, et cetera, was taboo and punishable by death in China. Literally, mm. you could be shot for being a capitalist within you know, our human lifetime. That's like 1976, 1977, right? So they were insane communists, right? They were not like, you know, it was way beyond what most people yeah, have. They were all in. We haven't seen yeah. this in movies, right? Go ahead. No, I just said they were all in on communism. They were all in, yeah. right? It wasn't quite Cambodia, but it was very, 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 very bad, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so what happened was the state eased up under Deng Xiaoping and said, okay, you can keep some, right? And just being able to keep some transformed everything. And that led to the 40 years of Chinese growth, right? Being able to keep some, as opposed to being like basically taxed at 100% and having it all go to the government meant that they had these bumper harvests. In fact, they had such bumper harvests that officials became suspicious of them and came in and were like, are you practicing capitalism? And these guys were all going to get shot. But Deng Xiaoping was like, okay, no, don't kill them. We're actually doing, we're capitalists now. Or he said, you know, he didn't say we're capitalists now. He said black cat, white cat, you know, it doesn't matter mm -hmm. if it, it catches mice. So he like eased up, you know. And why did I bring up that analogy? That level, that, that simple thing of going from 100% taxation to like X percent where X is less than 100, it's literally like the Laffer curve, which people laugh at, but actually just expresses a truth, which is that 0% taxation, the government gets zero, but at 100%, it also, you know, it's not optimal because you're taking everything and you have no incentive for people to produce, right? So just that, you know, that's literally a statement of the mean value theorem, you know, from basically pre-calc, right? The, the point is basically that this reform allowed China to generate enormous amounts of wealth. And now, and that was a billion person country and so on. Now we have billions of people on social media where every single product of their labor is going to Facebook and, and Twitter and so on and so forth. Now, some of it, YouTube gives you some of a cut, right? And, you know, it's something where th there, there is some revenue you're getting there, but people know that basically the money that they're getting is subject to Google's, you know, whim at any, any one time, right? And, you know, on Facebook and on Twitter, you're basically not getting anything. Now, Facebook is now starting to roll out tools for monetizing creators. Twitter is starting to do this. It's in response to Substack. But it's also a response to crypto creators because 
what these crypto decentralized media platforms will do is they allow you to have things like creator coins or personal tokens where you can issue Sam Harris token and people who support you can buy into that. They can buy into your personal economy. And simply some monetization rather than none is a 10x benefit. And you know, the degree of monetization, I think, may be much larger than people think. These communities are way more valuable than people think. You know, if you have a million followers on Twitter, well, you know, Estonia is only a million people, right? So, you know, you're basically like the leader of a small country, you know, in a sense, depending on how much mood affiliation people have for you. And you haven't monetized that really at all. And so my point is that crypto creators, as we transition from internet influencers to crypto creators, there's such a broad support for all of this that's going to force, I, I argue, decriminalization, legalization on, you know, the regulatory state. And we're kind of already towards this, like, you know, for example, online fundraising is less restricted than it was 10 years ago, right? There's, there's a lot of pressure that I think will push in this direction in the medium to long term. With that said, of course, dot every I, cross every T today, because, you know, like, render under Caesar what is Caesar, all the type of stuff, but lobby mm-hmm. for the law to be changed. Yeah. So just relating it to one previous point, Earlier, we talked about how the FDA, SEC, you know, FAA were all set up to go after these centralized corporate actors, right? And there's a few reasons for that. One is there's a few of them as opposed to millions, right? Just logistically, it's hard for the FAA to go after a million drone operators or the SEC to go after millions of crypto hobbyists or the FDA to go after millions of personal genomics enthusiasts. So logistically, it's harder, right? Second, it's harder from a risk tolerance standpoint because basically, if you've got a few big corporations, you have risk-averse boards and you have risk-averse you know, shareholders and so on. And so people are sort of scared of these agencies and you know, they rely on that for compliance because they can't you know, throw the book at everybody, only at like you know, a few people or whatever, or a few, or a few companies. So go after a Merck or a Pfizer or whatever. But when there's millions of people, there's some people who are just Grand Theft Auto in their mindset, you know? Mm. And they're just, they're just gonna fly the drone, right? They're just gonna do it. And then that gets to the third point, which is when they do that, the enforcement arm is presented with a dilemma, which is they're now cracking down on a sympathetic individual, not a big, bad corporation, right? It's like the RAA going and suing its customers, you know, over the 2000s, if you remember that, right? And so, you know, Daniel Carpenter's book, Reputation and Power, talks about this. These regulatory agencies are not passive entities. They are active. They are very conscious of their budget, of their public reputation, of their press coverage. They give all these leaks to journos. You know, what they'll typically do is to soften up a target, they'll work with some journalists, say, we're going to attack this guy with, you know, this indictment or, or something like that. And then they'll, you know, basically the journal will put out the article and then they'll release a thing like a one-two punch. And the vast majority of people know nothing about the target other than what they're reading in the paper. They're like, oh, that's a real bad guy good that we've got, you know, the cops on, on the case on this one, right? And so the fix is in, right? And so in this fashion, they will, uh, they're they very much more active. People think of them as the DMV. They're not like the DMV where they're just simply process executors. They are, they, they're like governors in their own way, you know, where governor, you know, like a politician, ambitious politician is not somebody who's simply executing the laws of the land. They're seeking to change the laws of the land and gain power and level up, you know? Someone who runs a regulatory agency who's senior at one is, is very much interested in this kind of thing. Mm. And so the thing is that having lots of individual civilians who are interested in taking a risk that only affects themselves, 
you know, to Except take a Except with on, much of the technology yeah. we're talking about, that is rarely the case. I mean, your your CRISPR yeah, tinkering well, doesn't so, just affect you. Your your uh, virus manipulation doesn't just affect you. Well, yes. Your, so even your drone are, flying. Yes. If you're flying your drone over my yard, it doesn't just affect you. That's right. But let's say with crypto, arguably it does, right? Mm. That is to say, only you are buying in, only you are selling out, you know? Like no one is forcing you to do it. You lose money or you don't. People can argue about systemic risk and so on and so forth, but it is closer to the libertarian ideal in this case, you know? Mm. And so now what you're doing is you're preventing people from getting rich. I want to return, by the way, I'm not dodging your question. I want to return to the virus question because it's a very important one. Mm. But basically, like with with the case of anything digital, which is not physical, like just buying a coin or cryptocurrency online, yeah, they're preventing downside from you losing your money in theory, but they're also preventing you from buying what could be the next Bitcoin or the next Ethereum or, you know, mm-hmm. or really the next, you know, like, like very successful asset, right? Uh, and you know, some people, Bitcoin Maxwell will say, oh my God, there is no next Bitcoin. Okay, fine. Let's say the next successful cryptocurrency. They're preventing you from leveling up. And uh, so that I think is something that won't be tolerable for very long. Um, there's just too much pressure on it. You know, a lot of people today recognize that you know, the interest rate in your bank account, the zero interest, parking them in your bank is going to get them anywhere. And, you know, like inflation is eating away at their savings. And so, you know what, um, if you're a founder, maybe you have like that level of energy to go and actually build a company. Most people don't, but most people, even if they can't build something, you know what they can do? They can buy something. They can click a button on a website and they can effectively gamble on a, on a, on a, on a project. And when I say gamble, you know, it's like a coin has a better sense of success than actual gambling in Vegas or uh, a gamble like a state registered lottery. It's not like the, you know these things are, are 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 not allowed. They're allowed, but the government regulates them. These at least have a chance of success. Like a startup has a chance of success, and people can buy into them. So because of that, because it makes money for creators, because it's like that one possible sky hook out of this sort of you know inflationary zero interest rate. You know I can't build environment. I think there's going to be too much support for crypto to ban it, and it's but, got the individual benefit. But what's but now, the state of it point. now? Go I mean, if, if I create a company and want to tokenize part of the equity and sell it to people on Twitter, will the SEC let me do that? And if I successfully do that, I mean, essentially, that's like going public without going public, then I'm cutting so, out Goldman Sachs and whoever else would yeah, otherwise yeah, be taking me, any other rent-seeking real, entity that would be taking me public. That right, exactly. Now, so so the, the short version is this is going to be a giant struggle, which I think my general model of the world is the the present and the near term future, maybe the next decade, is communist capital versus woke capital versus crypto capital. So communist capital, CCP, you must submit, woke capital, NYT, you must sympathize, and crypto capital, BTC, you must be sovereign. Okay. And to go through those for a second, the, the Communist Party is very simple. It's just like Submit to the Communist Party. They have total power. And, you know, as long as you submit, you're not going to be disappeared or put in a concentration camp, or maybe you are if you're a Uyghur. But, you know, let's say th- there's, there's a path to compliance mm-hmm. and they're just very straightforward. Submit because, you, because they are powerful, right? Woke Capital, the NYT version, is a little more subtle. It says instead, Sam, submit because you are powerful, because you are white, because you are male, you must apologize. And then you end, it ends with you bowing your head just like the CCP, it's also an ideology of submission. It's just, you know, it's like a left-handed version. It's a little bit of a curlicue. It's not that subtle anymore, but it's, it's like slightly more subtle than just straight up bow to the state. Yeah. And the third corner is crypto capital, BTC, you must be sovereign. So as contrary to the other two, it says 
you have to hold your own private keys. You need to, you know, you can't trust anybody. You must be responsible for your own stuff, right? Now, these three kind of poles, right, submission, sympathy, sovereignty, are bad when taken to extremes, but they're also bad if there's a complete absence of them. You know, the complete absence of any submission to state law gets you San Francisco, where people will steal $999 or $900 worth of goods and just walk out of a store because there isn't basically no police enforcement. And the absence of sympathy leads to like the total opposite of wokeness, which is like, you know, Jim Crow or something like that. And that's also bad. And then conversely, the absence of like, if everybody must be sovereign at all times, most people, frankly, just don't have the skills to do it. You know, it's also a recipe for a totally, you know, zero trust society. And it's something where there's no division of labor. Are you going to cook, not just cook your own food and sell your own clothes, but build your own well and have your own power outlet? Well, you need to have some trust, right? So I think what we have to establish is the center, the decentralized center. And how does that relate to your question? I think that the free world may increasingly be the world outside the US and China, plus American states like Wyoming, places like Miami, you know, Austin, or not Austin, let's say Texas, Colorado, right? Basically, the, the West is becoming increasingly unfree. There's also pockets within that are resisting. And I think that the rest of world, right, that sort of like overlooked area that's not the US and not China is actually where a lot of crypto stuff is going to be legalized first, right? Like mm-hmm. El Salvador in a few days is going to make Bitcoin the national currency, right? And the various financial capitals of the world, like Switzerland, Singapore, Dubai, Monaco, et cetera, those are going to be into crypto as well. And the US government is not what it was 10 years ago, where it could throw its weight around. And, you know, it basically is like the height of sort of imperial, you know, power, arguably, you know, 10 years ago ish, even though if you could see cracks in the facade. Um, today, it's actually getting pushed back, not just in Afghanistan. We can talk about that. I'm not saying this is a fully good thing. I'm just saying, you know, it, the, the, the power is, is vanishing. And it's also getting pushed back in Europe, where, you know, 10 years ago, it could, you know, go in, kick in doors and tell the Swiss to do X, Y, and Z. You know, you have no Swiss bank accounts anymore. There's no privacy handed all over to the US government. But today, like Germany, for example, is able to do the Nord Stream 2 deal with Russia, and the US can't stop it, right? The US, you know, doesn't have the leverage mm-hmm. anymore to stop it. But so, but given your allergy to an overbearing state, your, your understandable allergy, why have you chosen to live in Singapore? I mean, in Singapore, oh, well, several reasons. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, yeah. I split my time between Singapore and India, but several reasons. First, I, mean, is, I assume you haven't I'm opened a, an, a, a marijuana or chewing gum emporium in Singapore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the thing is, I'm fundamentally a pragmatist, right? You know, you're not saying like you're a, a, a communist at the level of the family and the socialist at the level of your community and a, you know, conservative at the level of your town and libertarian at the level of the state. Mm, yeah. You know, I don't know if you've heard that before, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think many of these ideologies have some truth to them, you know? Yeah, obviously you do want to treat your workers right and you don't want to discriminate against people. But there's also value in, you know, like certain concepts that came out of traditional religion. I know I'm talking to the end of faith guy, but, you know, I, I'm not religious, but I, but I do think that, you know, there's aspects of that that are better than the new religions, like woke religion that's come mm-hmm. out of nowhere that has its own sins and taboos that are just invented to know about at least some right. of the established things. I think there's truths to many of these quadrants and that basically that the ultimate principle that I abide by is exit in the sense that, let me, let me sort of illustrate this with a company example, and then I'll come to the country version. Mm. So, you know, Apple's culture is different than Amazon's culture is different than Google's culture is different than Facebook's culture. And culture is many different things, but very concretely, for example, the technologies internally, 
you know, Google will use Gmail, but Apple is going to use the full Apple stack. But Apple's also ultra private internally. It's got these siloed kind of things. And Google is, or it used to be super open. And Facebook is yet a different thing where it's like completely networked and everybody internally is on Facebook all the time. And it goes to the technology. It goes to how people, you know, work. Like at Microsoft, well, they'll open a Word doc, but at Google, they'll open a Google doc and it'll be shared online and, and, and so on and so forth. Now this, this has started to converge. But, you know, is it a remote culture versus an at-home culture? Is it a, an extremely, you know, commission-oriented culture like, uh, like Oracle or Salesforce? Or is it a very engineer-oriented culture like what GitHub used to be? The point being that different combinations can work. It's not like there's some one rule of only commissions work and you have to do it that way. Or, you know, you must have internal siloing of things like Apple or it won't work because there's a totally opposite that does work. The thing is that culture is multivariate and there's different solutions in this landscape and many combinations did not work, but some do. And, you know, if you, if you just had an ideological way of looking at it, I'm not saying you do, but if one just had an ideological way of looking at it, it's like setting a slider to a hundred or to zero where many cases, you know, uh, you could get by with 30%, 20% and 70%, or you could get by with 80%, 10% and 50%. And that would also be a pleasing combination. Mm-hmm. And so a, a priori, you can't just say, okay, it should be a hundred or it should be zero. You know, it's like the Simpsons episode, right? Abortions for all, boo. Abortions for none, boo. You know, abortions for some miniature American flags for others, yay. You know, mm-hmm. like this is, that's like the trivial version. I'm not trying to trivialize abortions, it's an important issue, but just like from the Simpsons, um, you know, kind of episode, right? In the same way, I think that the meta principle here is how do you know what is a pleasing configuration? Well, on balance, are more people trying to get in than get out? Are more high quality people trying to get in than get out, mm-hmm. right? Because there's lots of things that work in practice, but not in theory, you know? And, you know, with, with Singapore, the combination of features that it has picked work in practice, right? And that's why it's very attractive to people. The combination of features that right. San Francisco but, has picked- But it, it works in no, practice, but I mean, this could be a caricature of the actual law, but if one didn't know the law against chewing gum in Singapore and one showed up with, uh, you know, one, your, your prized stash of bubble yum and were you know, walking down the street chewing it, can't you be jailed for that infraction? I'm not sure they're that harsh on chewing gum right now, but basically the thing is, have you read Three Felonies a Day? No. So Three Felonies a Day, good book by, I think it's Coors and Silverglade. And uh, so it's, it's Harvey Silverglade. There's another one that's like by, by Coors, but basically how feds target the innocent. I mean, in the US, you can have seizure of your assets, like uh, uh, civil forfeiture without you know, any rule of law. You yeah. can, but I mean, like, but so, but just to, to judge, to make the judgment within the U.S. context, I think most sane people think that's, that's completely more outrageous. Like, like we we have to we have to rescind those policies somehow. I I know, right. but what I'm, what I'm saying is, I'm not I'm not making a simple oh you know like flip it back in the U.S. thing. I'm saying that on balance, there's a more oppressive state in the U.S. than in Singapore, much more. And um, I I say empirically that is the case. Mm. So any particular like we have this huge multivariate table. And you're pointing to the chewing gum row, and I'm pointing to the civil forfeiture row. Right. What I'm saying is in the vector space where these policy vectors live, that the U.S. government is in general, at a, at a federal level, much worse in terms of the practical freedoms that people enjoy. Right. And so what, so what are you trading are, off against the, what is it, the death penalty for drug possession? Drug or, yeah. Well, yeah. So, so let's talk about that for a second. So basically, 
you know, I think there's multiple solutions here. I think the Singapore solution is a totally valid solution. I'll explain why, because, you know, the history of the region has the opium wars, right? Like the British basically addicted the Chinese to opium mm. and, you know, which we now call heroin and forced it on them. And that's a huge cultural thing here where they don't want that to happen again. And Singapore would become a center for drug smuggling. So they just have a simple, harsh, enforced rule of death penalty for drug smokers. And there's a different rule, which is like in the Netherlands, which is like legalization. And that also works, right? So there's multiple solutions here. What doesn't work is the US version of sort of like, let's kind of talk about this as being cool on, you know, like movies and stuff, but then also have crazy, you know, throw people in jail penalties that are unevenly enforced and racially non-uniform in their enforcement and so on. That's like mm. the worst of both worlds, right? And the thing is that, you know, people will favor uh, harsh punishments for other kinds of things like terrorism. People, you know, I think if you, if you look at San Francisco or Philadelphia uh, or any major city nowadays, um, there's, a, there's a great video uh, called Seattle is Dying. Have you ever, have you ever seen this by like, uh, I think, Como News? No, like the NBC I've, I've heard other rumors that Seattle's dying. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. So let me see if I can get this right. Seattle is dying. This video is about an hour, okay? But it is by, you know, Como News, okay? Which I, I, I believe is the NBC or the ABC or something affiliate uh, in, in Seattle. And it's amazing because, so it's gotten like 10 million views or whatever. Mm. And what it does, it talks about the fact that actually the homeless crisis, it's misnamed. It is really, to a large extent, a drug and mental illness crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, Patrick Carlson actually RT'd this thing the other day, something like more than 50% of violent crimes are like committed under the influence of something. I forget the exact stat, but it's yeah. like, like I mean, it's surprising. That was something I had alcohol is probably the top of that list, but yeah. Yes, that's right. And so, so the thing is that basically, um, I'm not saying go to prohibition because that's enforcing a law on too many people at the same time. Dry communities, however, do exist. And so if you have a bunch of different communities that have different parameter values in the space, then people can consent to that combination of parameter values by migrating there and remove consent by exiting. Okay. Right. And this, by the way, let, let me actually talk about this because I think it's a very fundamental philosophical thing. You know, right now, what we think about are, you know, democracy and capitalism, right? The, the vote and uh, the market, right? But there's two other factors that are now coming online that are going to be huge in this century that increase, that have huge implications for governance, and those are computation and migration, okay? So how, how do these manifest, right? With computation in the form of, you know, especially crypto and the, and the blockchain, you can independently on your own computer verify statements from officials. You can move funds locally you can quote, become a sovereign individual where lots of things are like local on your laptop or your computer. You can, you know, eventually control a fleet of drones, all that type of stuff, right? And then migration is, you know, that's also, by the way, a huge part, obviously, of the American story. It's a nation of immigrants, but that also means it's a nation of emigrants. Usually we don't train the camera so much on why people left Vietnam, why they left China, why they left India or Iran or, you know, Obviously, you know, with the, the Holocaust, we know why, you know, many Jews, you know, fled, obviously, but we don't know why, or at least it's not talked about, why are there so many Korean Americans? Oh, well, actually, most of the world, you know, much of the world, I should say, went 
communist or socialist, or in the case of Iran, had the Islamic revolution, and they drove out their entrepreneurial class and they came here to the US, right? Mm. Um, or, or there. And um, so it's not just a nation of immigrants, it's a nation of immigrants who chose to exercise the right to exit, which actually the right to emigrate is in the UN Declaration of Human Rights in the, in the 1940s, right? We normally just think of this as something where, you know, the, 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 to caricature, right? The Republicans say, don't let so many people in, and the Democrats say, let everybody in. But there's a different view, which is what if people don't necessarily want to come in? What if, you know, maybe the Republican stance on immigrants and the Democrat stance on entrepreneurs means that immigrant entrepreneurs don't find America congenial anymore, right? What mm. if, you know, the, if you, you've seen the graph, right, of like the, the um, how many immigrant founders have built like the Fortune, you know, 500 and so on? Right. Yeah, yeah. A lot. Right. So, so now we have a different environment where, yes, like the US, you can argue it's a democracy. I'll come back to that. And the reason I say argue that is I think if you took a poll of how many Americans think like the election is legitimate, if you look at, you know, um, gosh, there's the trust barometer, Edelman's trust barometer. They've done a survey, E-D-E-L-M-A-N, trust barometer. You can see just decline of people thinking the government is legitimate, right. you know, on, because you know, for four years, many Democrats thought the election was rigged. And now for four years, many Republicans think the election is rigged. I'm not taking any position on that. I'm just saying that, you know, even though, even if it's a rotating cast of characters, the, the people, the general faith in the government is declining. Faith in, in Western governments is declining. And so, you know, if it remains nominally, you know, democratic, the, the whole point is, does it have the consent of the people? That's actually upstream of the actual process of voting. Upstream of democracy is consensual government. Did you give consent? Yeah. And one way of giving consent is certainly to vote with your ballot. Another way is to vote with your wallet. But a third is to vote with your feet. And so, if, so you're you know, arguing election, that, that basically any civil arrangement is ethical as long as people are free to immigrate and emigrate and, and vote exactly. with their feet. That's right. So, so you put the right to exit as the most important right above even the right to vote. And the reason is, there were many communist countries that had the right to vote. You could, you know, it was in the constitution, hmm. okay? But do you know what the Soviet Union made actually really hard to do? They made it really hard to exit. That's why we had to pass Jackson-Vanik in the US in 1976 to allow Soviet Jews to leave. Did this thing called like the diploma tax, where it was something like 100x uh, the annual income was charged to these, hmm. you know, Soviet Jews when they were trying to leave, right? And so that was the true right the right to exit. That's why they built the Berlin is, Wall because is there any, all these people. Uh, is there yeah. any barrier to emigration from Singapore? No. So people can just t they can take all their assets and, and leave. To my and, knowledge, and, yes. And chew gum and yes, smoke exactly. pot over here. Right, and and that I think is you know like uh, of course there's always edge cases, right? If you're convicted of a crime or something like that. And by the way, like I, I'm splitting time between India and Singapore. I'm not just mm -hmm. you know like I, I'm currently here, but uh, but I'm going to be doing much more stuff in India. Mm -hmm. uh, once, you know, now, now that I've gotten double vaccinated and, and whatnot. Where in India? Where, where is your base in India? Uh, well, South India. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, like probably uh, either Chennai or Bangalore spend a lot of, you know, time over there. And mm -hmm. I'm going to be spending much more. Um, that's a whole thing. I think India is, is rising in a dramatic way. In many ways, Chennai is actually, parts of Chennai are cleaner than San Francisco, which mm -hmm. is an insane thing to me you know, over the last 40 years, the change has been so dramatic over my lifetime. It's one thing for city capacity to decline, for to rise is actually right. much harder. It's much, you know, easier to break something than to build something, but it's happening. Now, you, so, you, didn't, you didn't grow up in India, right? You, you, you were, were you born in the States? Yeah, but basically oh. I, 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 I've been there a lot uh -huh. and I've seen like a snapshots of it over time. And 
the, the, the difference between the 2010s and the 2000s or the 90s is it's, it's, it's like taking, have you seen, you know, some of the recent videos of San Francisco and stuff, you yeah. probably see them on the internet, like, yeah, you know, homeless encampments everywhere, right? It's, it's like India in the 90s. Yeah, it's like that in reverse, right? Yeah. In many ways, like the US and India are like converging. Mm. I mean, the thing is that the India of my youth was, you know, now I'm, you know, 40 something, you know, 41. Uh, the India of my childhood, let's say, you know, like a still young at 40 or whatever, mm. it doesn't, doesn't matter. The India of my childhood was a place where there were quite a lot of really smart people, but they just could not get it together at a society level, right? And, you know, the U.S. government was in general an overall confident kind of thing that had, you know, like a sense of purpose and, and, and whatnot, right? With, with various flaws that would become more apparent later, but, you know, winning the Cold War or whatever. Now that's kind of reversed, right? And sure, there's many criticisms one can make of the Indian government, but I'm not making of any particular government. I'm just saying Indian society is rising with technology. So there's an overall optimistic kind of attitude there, you know, mm -hmm. regardless of any particular political thing. Whereas... American society, or at least the American establishment, is declining with technology. And so they feel disaligned with the vector of history, and so they have become technological conservatives fighting it. Because the East Coast establishment does not win a game of truly free speech and free markets anymore. They get beaten in free markets by all these tech people who are Americans, but also immigrants. It's like a, it's like a different group of folks. And they get beaten in free speech by folks like you and all of you know, Glenn Greenwald, and, you know, I'm, I'm not sure you agree with Glenn on everything. I'm sure there's many things you disagree with. Just but a couple of things, at least, yeah. yeah. It's just a few, I'm sure, right? But we disagree about me, really. He, he thinks, okay, fine. He thinks I, he I knows who I am, know, I and I'm, I'm convinced he doesn't. I, so I, 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 I probably am teleporting into some drama yeah, there that yeah, I wasn't... But it's, it's uh, years old, so no need to... Okay, well, TLDRs, I, I respect both of you, and I yeah. think you're, you're both principled and consistent from your own base. And mm -hmm. you, you don't strike me at all as like the clickbait hacks that have, you know, been the legacy kind of establishment, right? And I think that, uh, I just named Glenn just as, as, as a decentralized media figure, but, but you understand kind of what I'm saying, right? That uh, the, the East Coast establishment, yeah. the reason they're pushing for a lot of this censorship and so on is they can't win a fair fight. Um, they can't out-argue anymore. They can only, you know, basically appeal to taboo and, you know, what is, what is their recipe or their truth machine? It is, oh, whatever an institution says. Well, guess what? You know, the World Health Organization said that coronavirus was not a big deal until they said it was. And the Surgeon General said masks don't work before they do. And, you know, so this idea of just genuflecting before the establishment is actually not applicable anymore, nor is, in my view, simply making stuff up and going to the straight woo of QAnon or you know, like the, the, you know, MSNBC style conspiracy theories. I think we right. need the third way, which is not, not the establishment, not the below deviation, but the above deviation. Again, not QAnon, but Satoshianon, a better standard of rigorous truth than what the establishment has. And I think that actually is possible with cryptography. I actually gave a talk on this uh, about the ledger of record, actually to, uh, to Chainlink's audience, um, you know, a, a few weeks ago. I can summarize that here. Should, should I talk about mm. that for a second? The information. Well, I mean, let me just okay. say a few things about it. A, a point of concern that keeps coming up with me Please. when I when I yep. when I picture what the the fulfillment of this um, you know blockchain mediated techno utopian end zone might look like. I mean, what 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 happens when we disaggregate everything and all of the incompetent 
people who inherited their institutions are sidelined and the institutions themselves have degraded what's left. And I, I, I have yes. a, you know, I've been saying this in other contexts. I just, I don't think we can respond to a global pandemic, you know, or solve any other global problem or even national problem, frankly, or even get our, our politics to ultimately cohere so that we can, can agree about facts in the first place. I don't think we can do that only with podcasts and Substack newsletters. I completely right? agree. We, we need completely institutions. Agree. So, that's, so, so the, this is like the Hegelian dialectic again, right? Thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? Thesis is the current institutions built for the centralized century have passed their sell-by date. They are dysfunctional. They're trying to prop up the past. They're also staffed by people who don't really get it or who are this centralized establishment and aren't aligned with technology and feel their fortune slipping. And so fighting the future rather than leaning into it and trying to build new things. And then the antithesis of that is, so, so thesis is, these guys suck. Uh, the antithesis is, well, if you take them down, well, what is left? You know, are we just in Mad Max? Are we in anarchy? Are there no institutions and so on? Is everybody just making up for themselves what to do about vaccines? Doesn't that have negative effects? Is everybody just wielding their guns and it's like this, you know, crazy environment, right? And I think the synthesis is, it, it sounds very trivial to put it this way, but it's, you know, it's unbundling and then it's bundling, right? What we're doing is we're pulling all the pointers of support away from the establishment. We need to pull them towards new hubs, new organizing points, right? Frankly, people like you, you know, influencers who are, I think, you know, part of what I think of as the decentralized center, and then technologies that kind of wrap around that. And this is the decentralized tech plus media. Mm. And what that means is basically that we have to show what we can't just critique the existing system. We have to build a better one. And we have to somehow do that legally within the confines of the existing system. And that is actually what crypto really allows. It is a base for that. It is not simply a base for, you know, debits and credits. From those debits and credits, you can build, as I mentioned, every scarce asset, stocks, bonds, et cetera, but also the keys to your car, the keys to your house, your passport, uh, your driver's license equivalent, your wallet, your identity. Uh, your login to social networks, and eventually a crypto phone, and so on and so forth. Many, many, many pieces. It's it's basically something that is like the internet in terms of like the scope of how big it is. But importantly, it's also like an operating system for a city and eventually a country. Because you know what is a city or a country doing? They've got laws, right? And it's like, for example, uh, if you do X, you have this fine. If you do Y, you have that fine. Insofar as that behavior is on chain and digital that law can be impartially and transparently enforced by a smart contract. This is already happening, right? And if you think about this and you compare this to the current US environment, right? What do we have now? We have, in theory, an executive, a legislative, a judiciary, right? You have, you know, this arguably ceremonial or figurehead person elected who's like an actor. They've got this giant regulatory establishment, which, you know, is basically permanent employees that they can't control. Then you have the legislative, which are guys who are editing paper documents, right? And uh, then you have the judiciary, which are judges who can interpret the law this way or that way based on what time they got up in the morning. As that famous apocryphal, I'm not sure if it's replicated, doubt it's replicated, but it's a great story. Um, that study goes like the, you know, judge gives, you know, nicer judgments to people yeah. in the morning than in the oh, afternoon. Whether he's right? had lunch, yeah. yeah. Or actually, yeah, right, vice versa, right. that's right, after yeah. they've had lunch, right? Uh, that could be like one of those non-replicated studies. But the, the concept of the total lack of equal protection, where you should be able to have the same case and walk into a different judge across the country and get exactly the same disposition of results, 
right? It should be unit tested like that, but it's not really, you know? That's why people are like, oh, that judge does this and this judge does that. Now, what's an alternative paradigm? An alternative paradigm is something where the executive is like a founder. I'll come back to that. The legislature are like engineers who actually write explicit code. So it's not like, you know, legal code where there's some interpretation of the law that's ambiguous. It is like code code. It's like an actual pull request. And then the judiciary are like nodes, computer nodes that enforce smart contracts. And now you actually have genuinely equal protection because every input, if two people have the exact same inputs, they get the same output, right? You have genuine rule of law. And you know this, this is just a sketch of what like a future sort of legal system can look like. The way you'd start building that from today, I talked about that on, on the Ferris podcast, but you could you know, basically set yourself up as the shadow mayor of any city, right? What you just do is you do something that was sort of lost to Americans today, but used to be a huge part of Americans' life, which was civil society, right? Voluntary organizations used to be doing everything. People used to step up and do it themselves or organize small groups to do it. Then what happened was we got these gigantic centralized states that dulled individual initiative. And then you, after a generation or two, you forgot that you're even capable of doing it, right? You cannot go down to the street and fix a stop sign yourself. That's illegal. You cannot go and paint the road yourself. Not legal, right? Mm. All these things, the initiative in the physical world was dimmed and dulled and, and banned. And but prohibited. I mean, that, was, that extended to the fire department as well. It was a volunteer fire department, but it seemed in the direction of progress to professionalize the fire department, certainly when you have big buildings and big fires. Exactly. It created a Praetorian class that was, it seems like a good idea at the time, and it's an improvement at the time, but then it's a non-improvement in the long term because it alienates people from the ability to do that, right? Like they, they now think it's somebody else's issue. And then if that professional class fails, they no longer have the skills to do it, right? They need to rebuild those skills from scratch, refound it. And but but, but that's the, isn't that the story of civilization? I mean, we, yes, we are yes perched on the on the cusp of idiocracy because none of us know how to do some of the most basic things necessary for survival, whether it's you know milk a cow or or uh, or raise a cow or grow vegetables or anything else that's mission critical. Except in success, civilization allows for maximum specialization and offloads all of the cognitive and, and labor overhead for ev- everything else other than the thing you want to do with your time. And that's the glory of it, right? If, if each of us has to essentially be a prepper where we spend some considerable amount of our time throughout our lives training for the circumstance that is not actually irrational to anticipate where we can't rely on anything to work, you know, we have to purify our own water, etc., that's a massive cost, right? That's that's, oh, not, that's not something but, to be embraced intentionally. That's something to be, I mean, that's, that's forced on us by failure. A- absolutely. And so essentially my mental model, like what I'm going to say is extremely simple, but it's also like not part of the conversation typically, which is either A, there's people who are sort of hanging on for dear life to the current establishment and saying, oh my God, I can't believe you're criticizing the government. And there's B, there's people who are like, you know, preppers or anti-establishment who have realized the current government is mostly incompetent on almost everything that sets its mind to and are just preparing for the collapse of the fallout shelter. But option C is how do we start a new state, right? And so, this, so, yeah, so is, walk me through, give me a few more um, increments of, of progress along the, the virtual mayor route. How do you, how do sure. you become the mayor okay. of- So virtual mayor, right? So let's New basically, York. 
yeah. So, so I wouldn't try, I wouldn't start with New York. I would start with a smaller town, you know, mm. uh, maybe Austin might be the largest you could start with, but I'd start with an even smaller place. Okay. Uh, someplace that you can move. Okay. And you just go door to door and you sign up all the people, um, that you can into effectively a community social network. And what does a community social network do? Well, it might organize childcare. It might organize schooling. It might have a volunteer fire department. It might do security patrols if it's like a low trust community, but you might not start with that. It might have just, you know, like, hey, we're doing potluck dinners and people come over. You basically rebuild community this way and you provide services. And then maybe people need to, it's like a sat, you can start it as a, as a company, right? Like, cause that's, a, that's something that people know how to do. And you have a CEO and it's hierarchical and people can join or not. And you pay a subscription to basically avail yourself of these services, right? And guess what? Now you, you start signing up more and more people in the region. And unlike the dysfunctional state government, for example, in like Austin, like a few months ago, I think like the, the roads freezed over and like the snow plows or whatever couldn't get there because it wasn't like anticipated. I may be wrong about that, but there's like a, like a Texas freeze. I forget ex- the exact month. And so, you know, or, or you know, there's uh, the power is going out or things like that. That's, that's a pretty big one. But the schools are not functional. That's actually very doable to deal with. What you do is you're like, you know what? We go back to the future and the 1800s had like a schoolhouse of like, you know, six kids and we just have somebody round robin rotate and we provide the services, right? And with the internet, you're not completely starting from 1800s. You have all of these tools that are available to you online where you can snap together communities. You can have dashboards. You can track people's contribution to the community. Like this person volunteered 10 times and this person didn't. And you are effectively the CEO of this subscription organization, like the shadow mayor of the community, and you sign up more and more and more people. And now you have a high bar to meet, by the way, because you essentially have to provide more services than the current government, but without having the ability to tax. So it's for like less money, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I think that they're so inefficient relative to modern technology that you can get there. And then eventually what happens is you, you will, you know, be able to win whatever formal election there is and switch over the local government to your subscription service. And that actually replaces the previous, you know, parking ticket, speeding ticket, red light camera based revenue model with a consensual subscription model, you know? And this is one vision of the future. The problem with this is the federal government may try to stomp on this. And the, the counter is, well, guess what? We have sanctuary cities. We have, you know, states and, and local places that have their own marijuana laws. They have their own gun laws. They have their own mm-hmm. this law and that law. You know, the, uh, I think the federal government is becoming less able to enforce its will, not just abroad in Afghanistan or Germany or Crimea or Iraq or, or, you know, anywhere, but also even though it's going to become more oppressive at home, I think the resistance is also building at home. And so I think that this fashion basically is the way that you can use the internet, to sort of build self-governing communities and transplant that to the physical world. Now, the crucial thing here, by the way, is you know, the, the, the Foucauldian view of the world has some truth to it. What I mean by that is there are things that are social constructs. So, you know, the org chart is a social construct. The borders are a social construct. If you can install enough software in people's heads, you can change the location of a border. You can mm-hmm. change who is president, right? If, you know, you updated all the software in people's heads. As distinct from physical truths, like, you know, the diameter uh, you know, an angstroms of, of um, you know, like, like a molecule or the, the gravitational constant, those are things that does not matter how much you change people's brains, it doesn't change the physical reality. 
And then there's things in the middle like cryptocurrency, which use physical constraints, mathematical constraints like cryptography to constrain who has what money. My point is with social networks and with cryptocurrency, you can change the equilibrium. You can change enough people's mental states to change local governments and then scale up from that, right? Mm. If enough people agree, if a thousand people are in a town and all those thousand people agree the subscription service is better than the old thing they had, they can shed it like a snake shedding its skin and just set this up as a new government, right? Assuming no federal thing vetoes them. Let me okay, so let me give you the the dystopian impression I get when I think about that. I mean, so this sounds to me like essentially a digital insurrection, right? I mean, it starts in the cloud and then it comes crashing down into the real world, and pretty soon you've got a, a, sh- a shirtless Viking in the in the halls of Congress, right? I mean, like, but in this version, he knows how to code, and so. It starts as bits, and it, but it has to become atoms to become effective. And when you think of how something like this could be accomplished, I'm not. I'm not. Well, wait, hold on. Can I, can yeah, I pause there for just a second? Yeah. So, you know the concept of Brussels conjugation. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. like, you know, Eric, you might want to explain it, but yeah, Eric Weinstein is. Uh, Eric Weinstein's uh, a big, yeah. big yeah. evangelist of this, but yeah. it's actually, I think, it goes even farther than he talks about. I think, you know, Brussels conjugation. Briefly, it's like uh, Bertrand Russell is like, uh, you know. I sweat, you perspire, but she glows, mm-hmm. you know? I am, you know, like, a, you know, you docs, he leaks, but the New York Times investigates, right? right? The same behavior with a different connotation, you know, or it can be basically assigned a different kind of valence, yeah. you know? No, so I'm giving so, you the dystopian and uh, paranoid con- that's right. So, framing so, so, so millions of, of, of the people, same process. Millions of people had, yeah. had pound resistance hashtag in their bios. Resistance is good, right? The American Revolution is good. The sanctuary city is good. The insurrection is bad, right? It's just Russell conjugating the thing, you know. But but, but now, it's not just that because it, it it all depends on what the actual plausible outcome is. I mean, when I think of the kinds of people who might rise to the top of such a system, if 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 we could just hit go on this plan, right? And like, who, who's going to be the mayor sure. of Austin? Who's going to be the mayor of Miami? Uh, we're going to do this all in the cloud. When I think of the kinds of you know influencers. Yeah, who could rise to the top of this ecology? Remember, it's... they have to not just be influencers. They have to basically be pragmatic CEOs who are able to provide social services. That's a, that's a much higher bar, right? Like, you know, they have to actually be more competent and be able to execute in the physical world better than the legacy governments who can't, you know, keep the power on, keep the fires out, keep the, you know, streets plowed and, and so on and so forth, right? So. That selects for somebody who's not simply a tweeter, not mm. simply an online influencer, but someone who can make the pragmatic trade-offs, the budgetary trade-offs, who can be a capital allocator. Uh, and that's a, that's a much higher bar than I think the kind of you know, fantasist you're thinking of. It selects for someone who's more like a startup CEO than, than just okay, an but, online but influencer. But even, even the, these people, I mean, so they're, they're obviously some, they're, they're, very, they're very smart people in tech who are doing extraordinary things and who are, have a lot of practical competence. But who aren't actually intellectuals? I mean, I know this. Sure. Is a, we, we, no, we, hit the, we hit this early on when you we kind of walked away from that term. But I mean, the, so there are negative connotations to the term intellectual in many circles. But what I'm getting at is that we have a lot of people who have read Ayn Rand and Ray Kurzweil and Nassim Taleb and and then a raft of science fiction, and they don't. And they're very smart and they've built companies. But they don't know what they don't know, really, and they don't care. And 
They think the guys and gals in suits on the East Coast are useless because they don't know how to code. And they're... It's a caricature, uh, but yes, okay, keep going. No, but, yeah, no, yeah, but, but I mean, I know many yeah. of these people. I mean, these, a lot yes. of these people are yeah. not morally serious. I mean, first of all, many of them are wealthy enough to think that they're, they can immunize themselves or, I mean, they're wealthy enough to imagine they can immunize themselves against the unraveling of society, right? So, like, there are many people who would, who would seek to run this, this experiment kind of on a lark, knowing that if, you know, if it all unravels, they can set up their compound in New Zealand and, you know, then they have to worry about the, the game theory of whether the, you know, their bodyguards are going to kill them and, and take their yeah, wives, yeah, but, right? But, but but I think you're teleporting. I mean, th- what I'm talking about is like... A, We're at a little bit of impasse here. So I, I've i never thought of doing this in, in my life, but I have a... I'm going to black box this for our audience, but I'm going to I'm going to have a sidebar discussion with you, which I'm going to cut out, okay. right? And see... Because th- this is informing... This is a private experience that's informing my intuitions here. And, and then... Uh, sure. And then we'll see if anything has changed in your brain as a result. Go ahead. I regaled you with a personal anecdote that makes me worry that even some of the most competent individuals in our society who you would think would be the greatest people to head some kind of virtual community that that, that then lands in the real world and, and is just optimized for everything 21st century style, you know, part of me shudders at this prospect. Now, again, we're comparing this to the status quo, which is not at all ideal. You have people who don't understand tech at all. You have basically, you know, 90% lawyers or whatever it is in in Congress, and they're not forward-looking, and they're captured by vested interests, and it's highly bureaucratic and unflexible and not especially accountable, and they've got a time horizon of four years in the case of the president, where you know we're just captured by a political cycle that makes long-term planning impossible, uh, so it's a total mess. But there is something that is uh, genuinely worrying about maximally democratizing everything and not recognizing that the existing institutions were good well, for I, a reason. I, I... I probably could sign off on every gripe you have against the New York Times, but we can't just have a proliferation of blogs and newsletters and podcasts. We need something very much like so, the New York Times. And the bureau in Beijing or London can't be just a guy with a cell phone who hangs it out his window and tells you what's happening on his street. We need legitimate journalism and the, and the organs of journalism. So, all right, there's two separate things to talk about there. Let me start with the second one first, right? I wouldn't call it the New York Times. I call it the New York Times Company. I wouldn't even call it the New York Times Company. I would call it, you know, the PR agency for the Ox Salzberger Trust, right? Like for the Ox Salzberger family office. Mm. It's just owned by a guy, a nepotist, right? Arthur G. Salzberger. He inherited it from his father, who inherited it from his father's father's father, right? It's some random guy in New York whose, you know, inheritance is supposed to determine what is true for the entire world, right? And when you strip the, you know, like the wrapping off of that, why should some rando's family office have a global monopoly of truth? Because the monopoly of truth is upstream of the monopoly of violence, right? The fake news that they printed on WDs in Iraq led to the Iraq war. The fake news that they've printed on so many other things, including, you know, a lot of the reporters on Twitter initially early in the coronavirus were attacking tech people for taking it seriously. That almost meant that we weren't prepared. But, okay, but, you know, we but have all of these. Recorded, also, but, right? okay, so all of these, this is a litany of failures yeah, of, a of journalistic things, but, integrity. But the thing is, by the right. way, no, no, but it, I agree with all something... this. But 
It's wait, wait, only wait, wait. It, these are only these I'm are real give a alternative. Okay, but but let me just give these okay. are legitimate sins for the New York Times. This is the what we're talking about is the degradation of what the New York Times should be. But when you compare that to somebody's blog or Breitbart ah, or Fox ah, News, okay, okay. Right? So let me poke. Like I'm going to poke on this part yeah. a little bit more. There's an amazing book. I put it up there with a sovereign individual. It just came out called "The Gray Lady Winked" by Ashley Rinsberg, hmm. Israeli journalist, Columbia grad, who has gone through the archives and has shown, for example, that basically every major issue the New York Times got wrong initially and then rewrote history to kind of remove their wrongness. For example, in World War II, they reported initially that Poland had invaded Germany, okay? Um, you know, they reported yeah. that Durant, you know, Duranti had reported, as you know, that like Stalin, you know, hadn't done anything that the Ukraine fam didn't exist. Herbert Matthews, was responsible for Castro coming to power. He went and wrote this hagiography of him. It was it would be similar to like doing a big, you know, biopic on Osama bin Laden and having him recruit a bunch of al-Qaeda terrorists when he was on the run. Castro had been beaten and was in hiding. New York Times went and put a microphone to him and basically helped him become dictator of Cuba. And they actually kind of covered up the fact that he was actually a communist and so on. They made it all mysterious and of course he was a communist. I think and so, there's some amazing go back this, is, further. this is a, a different uh, journal, but I don't know if it was um Good Housekeeping, or one of those magazines had a great spread on Hitler's eagle's nest that was just... Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly, right? Because the thing is, you know, if you go back in time and you actually read what they were actually saying, you know, the New York Post reported that the Salzburger family owned slaves. Okay, how come that wasn't in any of the 1619 coverage? Um, it wasn't reported in their own journal. So it's something where, it, the, you know, if you think about how much, you know, opprobrium is launched at Zuckerberg, you know, Zuckerberg, look, uh, you know, I'm sympathetic to him. I've, I've met him a few times. I'm not like Mark's friend or anything. Mm -hmm. But I mean, look, Zuckerberg is the son of a dentist. Salzberger is the son of a millionaire. You know, Zuckerberg built what he built from scratch. Salzberger inherited it. And so a big part of this, a lot of the anti-tech stuff comes from these old money people on the East Coast hating the Nouveau Riche. And um, that's very obvious, you know, if you're in tech that well, it, it's, it's, not it's, just, something it's not just hating the Nouveau Riche. It's the complete usurpation of their business model that tech enabled. Right. right? It's, I mean, now right. in now, success, they probably are, are, at least the New York Times is succeeding somewhat. It's probably more comfortable with the, the underlying tech stack. But initially, this is the, there was a zero-sum tug of war between tech and the business model of journalism. Yeah. So, so what's happened is there's been an interesting thing where that like boxer's clinch has been resolved in an interesting way where NYT and Facebook have sort of fused or starting to fuse in their own way. Right. But decentralized media and tech have also kind of separated. It's like it's like an atom-smashing event where tech versus media has turned into centralized tech and media versus decentralized tech and media. Essentially, the peace treaty that Facebook and Google are essentially signing with these guys is, hey, we're going to give you tons of money now, you know, and they're going to get beaten up by antitrust, going to merge with the state, merge with the establishment, and now let us be. You know, then the decentralized tech and decentralized media are breaking away from the establishment and building something better. Now, recursing back up the stack, once you start thinking of these people not as the New York Times, but as Salzburger employees, which is all they are, right? Mm -hmm. They're just guys who are employed, guys, girls, whatever, you know, they're, they're employed by a media corporation that's a publicly traded entity that is optimizing their stock price. That, I mean, look, no Silicon Valley company, as arrogant as Silicon Valley is, runs billboards proclaiming itself to be the truth. The New York Times company did that. It's mm -hmm. like, we're the truth. They ran an ad on the truth. There's no, there's no sense of embarrassment. Like how, how ridiculous is that for some corporation to declare itself the font of truth? 
for us to respect such a declaration, that's like, you know, that, that's, that's chutzpah on like another level. No, I don't believe that some rando who inherited a newspaper determines what is true for me or for anybody else. I believe in mathematical truth. I believe in absolute truth. I believe truth that I can verify, that somebody else can verify without taking some nepotist and his employees on their word. And for that, what that means to me is proof of, you know, if to put in a one-liner, you know, BTC over NYT, Satoshi over Salzburger, proof of work over proof of white. That is to say, look, I'm not, you know, somebody who thinks white is an insult, but they do. And to have some rich white guy's employees write the, the, the record for the entire world is simply not operative anymore. You know, well, not yeah. in a world where Asia is rising, where the, the West is declining. It's simply not going to be accepted. But, so but my, my point accepted? is, but my underlying point is that we're measuring the times we're, and these other institutions. I mean, we can talk about Harvard and Stanford and Princeton and, yes. and the CDC and anything else we care about, scientific journals, nature, science. We're measuring them against a standard that's implicit in their their internal framing. It's a standard they're claiming to hold themselves to, and yes. when they fail, it is embarrassing, right? And when they don't, ah, they, but 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 they don't hold themselves accountable. It's well, just well, like then, a they, no, but they should. We agree that they should, and they no, would, I don't. They, I, and they, they would hold me. each uh, other, and they would competitively hold it. Like the Washington Post should hold the New York Times accountable to its standard, right? Otherwise, uh, convicted so, of hypocrisy. But I'm just saying I that the game changes. The game changes radically when you just go into blogistan right or when you go go into the hyper partisanship of pretend news like fox and you know breitbart again right? you're you're comparing the establishment to the decentralized worse version right the downward right. deviation yeah, yeah so i'm, I'm yeah I, i'm i'm concerned my guess yeah my fear is that leaving the the institutions entirely the the the, the virtuous version that's that's perhaps never Perfectly achieved, but you know, leaving the distinction between, uh, you know, the the gatekeepers of greatest integrity and no gatekeepers at all, we wind but, up but with some kind there. of ba Wait. balkanization of our epistemology where it's just you can go QAnon all day long and there's nothing I, to stop I, I, you. I know, I know, but, but but let's just get off QAnon for a second. So I think right. we both agree that look, they're idiots. Like they they live in a fantasy land. You know, the funny thing is but, they, but it's, they basically- But it's not just, but, but it's not just idiot. I mean, it's, it's, okay, so it's not- so, but, but take Brett Weinstein, right, who I pummeled on previous podcasts now for what he's saying about COVID vaccines. It is not a virtue of decentralization that he, in my view, that he can grab an audience of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, and persuade them to be fearful of the COVID vaccine based on platforming fairly deranged MDs and have okay, this me, actually Okay, but let me make my point. Right. So I understand your point. Let me see if I can articulate my, yeah. my counter argument, which is this. Imagine the establishment as like a line at, you know, the 50% or median mark. Okay. Decentralization results in a profusion of dots, both above and below that line. So it's more variance on your account. It's more variance. Yeah. But some of them are way above. They're way, way better. And right. this is the key. I do believe that over time, the good ones outcompound the bad ones. And is that is that just an article of faith, or do you have some reason to think that there's an asymmetry? Well, because there? because what happens is bad ones eventually cause bad enough things that people Except, exit and but, leave for but the good. It's, I mean, there's another principle here. I mean, there's a principle of entropy. It's easier to break things than to, than to fix them. It's all, all it, misinformation spreads faster than facts. It's sticky. Yeah, you so, know, so, we have so, algorithms that select for outrage rather than than veracity. All of these are absolutely true. However, and each of them I have, you know how like sometimes 
you can state a problem in a sentence like Fermat's last theorem, you know, or the Collett's yeah. conjecture, but the proof of it is like a thousand pages. So many of the things you've said there, I agree that they're problems and I can give a sketch of the solution, but like, or a possible solution, but the full solution runs to many pages. Okay. Mm. Let me, let me shoot at a few of these. Okay. The first and most important is I would not be, by the way, optimistic for the future if we did not have cryptography, if we did not have cryptocurrencies and blockchains. The reason being, because as you point out, like the internet has made it really easy to distribute information, but not verification. Mm. Lots of RTs just means something is popular, not that it's true. But with cryptocurrency, you don't have RTs, you have something called confirmations. Individual computers are replicating a calculation to confirm that it's true. See, it actually goes back, just not just from the New York Times or any individual tweeter, it goes back to the, ac- the information supply chain all the way. If you go to origin, right, it is that nature or science published some study and thus it is science and therefore it is true. But what's actually happening is a real slate of hand, right? What is happening is that some sketchy paper that came out last week is stealing the prestige of Maxwell's equations because science is not about, you know, constant citation. It's about independent replication. And what is shown next to every article, which we can measure, is the citation count. What is Mm -hmm. not shown is the replication count. Now, the reason that Maxwell's equations or Newton's laws, the reason that science with a capital S, physics, is that as we're having this conversation, every time you pick up a phone, like Maxwell's equations on the E and the B fields, we're effectively running a replication of that. If those equations were wrong, it wouldn't work. So it's been replicated countless trillions of times. It's as solid as any physical law can be you know, at least in the non-relativistic environment. You know, whereas the, if you, if you go and you talk about some study that came out last week, often the data isn't even accessible. Often it hasn't been replicated, but people will wave it being like science, right? But that's science in quotes. That's science in the sense of proclamations of a priesthood, which makes the form, namely publication of scientific journal and graphs and charts, but not mm. the substance, which is independent replication. If I can just describe something to you, some physical phenomenon, and you can go and you can, you know, see the Mentos, like, you know, Pepsi thing, in many ways, that's more science where you can go independently replicate it than, you know, many scientific papers, which don't actually equip the reader to go and independently replicate something. Like a silly YouTube video that shows you how to go and independently replicate something is actually better in that respect than something that has the imprimatur and aesthetic. Except we, I mean, as you know, we we are at least a century or more past the age of gentleman science, where you can yes. you you on your front porch or in your backyard or your Victorian homestead can recapitulate the uh, the insights of anyone you want. And okay, you're at the core. Go, go, finish what you're saying, and I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna I've got I've thought about this and yeah, I'll give so, you my I mean, response. Go and and not all scientific insights can be implemented in technology such to, as to serve as their continuous replication, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, okay, I mean, yes, so computer science is replicated every time your code compiles, presumably, but you know, there are other, there's certainly other physical insights that are presupposed by everything we do in tech, and you know, the planes wouldn't fly if it weren't so. And I'm not discounting the fact that we have a replication crisis and we have, and peer review is in many cases super sketchy, and I've, you know, I'm, you know, I also vomited when I saw that uh, Nature and Science and The Lancet published woke, you know, rending of their Mm -hmm. intellectual integrity during uh, COVID. It's insane out there, but it's just, all of it's insane, again, compared to a standard that is presupposed or till yesterday was presupposed by these very journals themselves. 
at least yeah, professing it, to it, hold themselves to a standard of non-ideological capture and replication and that's right. unbiased so, peer so, review, okay. etc. So now we're starting to, what's good is we're starting to articulate a very concrete thing, which is, yes, independent replication would be good, but how is somebody at home supposed to go and replicate some giant experiment? You know, they don't have like cloud chamber or even an inclined plane or something at home. How are they going to run this? They don't have the superconducting super collider. How are they supposed to do this, right? Well, we have something though that everybody does have, which is they don't have uh, the tools to replicate, you know, those experiments. But what they do have are the tools to replicate the computations on the data from those experiments. Everybody has a computer. They have a computer, you know, either a smartphone or a laptop or something capable of doing ridiculous amounts of computation. And what? Let me give a sketch of how you would change the information supply chain from root. Okay. I'm just going to introduce a bunch of concepts. Each of these you can individually mm. Google or whatever. And well, but, but, let, me just, let me just start you off with a, a use case. So, you know, I, I scan someone's brain in an fMRI experiment and analyze my data and publish it in Nature and say, this is what we found. So I'm, I guess presupposed by your thinking here, we, we have a new rule where I definitely need to make all of my data public to everyone. Mm -hmm. And so everyone can inspect it and, and decide to use whatever computational tools they want to analyze yes. it and see if my analysis is so valid. Let me take that further. So that concept is called reproducible research. 20 years ago, John Clairbeau and David Donahoe at Stanford were pioneers of this. And the idea was you have a new grad student coming into the lab. How do they even know what you did in the past? Well, the concept is you have data and you have the code that reads that data to generate the PDF of the article, right? So you have three components. There's the data, there's a code, and there's a paper itself. And all three of those should be released. And if you want to know how some figure was put together, you go and you read the code to see how the data was, you know, mished and mashed to, to make that figure, to make that graph. You don't have to ask the author of the paper, what parameter did you use in that figure? Because not everything's going to be in the text. So you have data, code, and PDF. So the first thing is that's reproducible research. Then truly reproducible research would mean that all that stuff is not put in a journal, but it's actually put on chain. Why? Because as you may know, some journals have been going through and for things that are un-PC, they're starting to remove it from the archives. Mm -hmm. Okay. They're, they're literally starting to, you know, Stalin style airbrush out inconvenient studies from history you know, things that they disagree with or people are yelling at them for, it's just too much pain, so they just remove it. Uh, you know, moreover, journal links, even in, without political interference, just break. So when you put it on chain, you have an immutable copy, right, which is backed up. Hmm. It is referenceable from anywhere. It also solves the problem of non-public access to things, like the whole open access problem where, right. you know, a, a scientist is paid by the government to, you know, or indirectly through a grant to do research. And then that research is put behind a paywall so the public cannot access it. Uh, that whole problem goes away if it's on chain. Um, there's a loophole called the self-publishing loophole where scientists can put things on their own website. They can put it on their own profile on chain, but now it's in a systematic format that everybody has. And so now you have truly reproducible research. It's on chain. It's immutable. It's permalinked. It's free. It's downloadable. But now you get some more. And this is where things get really interesting. Now you no longer cite papers you import them in the same way that you would import a software library. When you cite somebody else's paper, you are actually using the data or the code in their paper, and you're doing like an import function. If you, if you know Python or you know any code, you're actually using, it's not the letters anymore, you're going number to number. Why is this important? 
in theory, you could backfill because we've had this exponential rise in scientific papers. It's a big project comparable to Wikipedia, but not an infinite one to go and backfill all the way back to Maxwell and Newton because, Mm -hmm. you know, Principia or uh, Principia Mathematica or, or, you know, Maxwell's publications, they were based on effectively data sets that were collected, even if they didn't think of them at that time. Uh, If you think about early statistical mechanics, uh, that actually came out of sort of the empirical work that people were doing on steam engines. So it's the empirical stuff that actually preceded the theoretical. And we don't normally think of it this way, but every really nice continuous line that you have in physics, usually underpinning it is a data set with like, you know, for example, inclined planes, it's like I've rolled a ball down, you know, and, and it stopped in this many seconds. And then I rolled this ball down at this height, it stopped at this many seconds. You've got a table of data. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These, these nice continuous lines, if you backtrace them enough, you go to some guy and a table from you know, 1700 or 1800, which is how they infer, they did a sort of a curve fit and they infer the physical law from that table of data. With me so far? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the point is, this is awesome since how do we know? Well, you can interrogate it. You can go to the import of the import of the import of the import until you're in 1870. And you can go down and you can say, why did somebody say this? You can actually track back the inference. This is, by the way, and if you've ever seen like a debugging log, this is what's called a backtrace. Mm-hmm. In, in you know, computer science, like uh, you know, if a website crashes, you might have ever, sometimes you've gone to a website and it can't handle the traffic and it'll give some error message right on, on the screen. Mm-hmm. And it will give you a backtrace which says where the thing crapped out, right? where it failed. And it's often like some low-level systems thing. But guess what? If you're the kind of engineer who could build a Google or a Facebook or an Amazon or an Apple, you can go all the way down to system level and you can be like, okay, we need to allocate this many bytes into this register because otherwise, you know, we won't be able to handle the search queries. In the same way, what this would do, instrumenting our information supply chain in this way, turns it from mere citation into replication. It turns it from referencing papers into importing them. It turns it from closed access into open access, from things that can be deleted to truly immutable, from paywalls to free and from non-reproducible assertion to truly reproducible research on chain or GTFO. Now, there's one last component, which any practicing scientist will bring up, which is what about the incentives, huh? Like there's this entire $30 billion a year NIH establishment. How am I going to make any money in your new crazy blockchain environment, you crazy crypto tech bro, or or Mm. some epithet to that effect, okay? (laughs) And my answer there is if you take a look at, for example, like researchhub.com, or Longevity DAO, or some of these things, we're starting to show that crypto crowdfunding can actually fund very interesting academic science. And if there's one thing crypto can do, it can generate money. And so I'm, if you look at Fast Grants, what Patrick Collison has done, I, I am mm-hmm. optimistic that we can link these things up. You know, If you look at ETH Research, for example, Zcash Research, we're already funding it in areas of AI or you know, cryptography, we're starting to fund it for things like longevity, which are like adjacent, a lot of people are interested in. And longevity is an entrance point to actually all of medicine, because if your kidney fails or your lung fails, you're still dead. So it's kind of like a, it's like a macro way of going in all of medicine. So I am optimistic that we can build a parallel research establishment based on truly reproducible research where every citation can be ground truthed in these kinds of computational assertions and where we're actually remunerating people with crypto in some form. And now there's billions of dollars of crypto floating out there, and you don't actually need that much to employ that many scientists. By the way, that's another point, which is non-obvious. 
the entire academic science establishment is simultaneously like too elitist and not enough. Too elitist in the sense of it's a pain to get things into major publications. Really, what you want is something more like the archive system, you know, arxiv.org, where you just have instant publication to focus on prestige at institutions as opposed to independent replication. But it's also not elitist enough because much of it is just a giant academic jobs program. If there had been not as much elite overproduction with people who are willing to do PhDs for 30 or 40 or $50,000 a year, we would have had much more automation probably of biomedicine by now. But since you can hire someone for $40,000 a year to go and pipette things, you know, automated pipetting you know, was relatively slower to take off, right? It's, it's getting there, but laboratory automation was slower. So in many ways, the environment is like too elite and not elite enough because a lot of these people, frankly, don't produce that much in the way of science. They're basically mm. like lab techs and they don't need to be like the gentleman or gentlewoman scientist. That could be funded in a different way as opposed to the execution of it. So that's essentially a sketch of rebuilding that information architecture and crucially making every single assertion backtraceable. And when you do that, by the way, you find that a lot of things are just hearsay. The mm. thing is that pulling the citation graph is not something you can just click like a backtrace uh, within computer science. As I said, the backtracing all of the scientific literature down to the individual graph or chart or data set is a Wikipedia-level project, but not an infinite one. You may also bring up another point, not just incentives, but another point. You might say, okay, well, this is great for everything that's pure computer science, but what about the data sets themselves? Couldn't they be corrupted? Couldn't they be fabricated? We're trusting that people, what, what they've uploaded is true. Yeah. Well, yeah, so there's that. I would, I would just add that, yeah, it's the, the data itself could be uh, fallacious for one reason or another, or the experiment could just be badly designed, right? And not actually, even if the data is correct, it's not showing what it purports to show. So the analysis is yes. faulty, right? Ho- however, a few points. First is, there's things like Benford's Law, for example, that can detect with some reliability, you know, instances of tomfoolery, right. where, you know, it's like the digit distribution and fake data versus real. There are lots of things that you can do when you're diligence coming, where you're doing internal checks. You know, it's like the, the standard Wall Street analyst will sum the rows and he'll sum the columns and he'll try to find inconsistencies based on what was reported, right? Just finding internal inconsistencies. Is this sentence, does this equation contradict this other one? And you can get actually surprisingly far with that, finding internal inconsistencies. But then over time, what you want to probably also do is start going to like proctored experiments or crypto instruments or both. What's a crypto instrument? Well, you know, in genomics, in other areas as well, but genomics is an area I'm very familiar with, there's something called batch effects, where if you're looking at sequencing data, it could look exactly the same, but one data set was, came off one instrument and the other one came off the other. And if you are doing, if you're not including the exact date and time and instrument uh, where the data was sourced in your regression analysis, you might mistakenly think that, oh, this signal predicts cancer and this doesn't. And actually, it was just like, you know, the instrument shifted the levels up in this data set versus the other. It's called a batch effect, right? Mm. The instrument name and its source is actually already a variable in any sophisticated bioinformatics analysis. And you just kind of take that one step up with a crypto instrument that actually has like some kind of real-time streaming or proctoring to show that the data was collected in the form that you say it was at the time you say it was. So there's like more interrogating of what we'd call the analog to digital interface, where the analog data, the, you know, the, the fluorescence or you know, the, the visual measurements, whatever, while it's being uploaded on chain, you're kind of interrogating and checking that. That's going to be a vulnerability still. There's probably ways that people can defeat that. But 
you start to have many different tools you can apply there, not just Benford's law, not just crypto instruments, not just the proctoring, but also things like web of trust. Because has this person uploaded lots of things that you've been able to independently replicate before? That data that they uploaded, you know, could you go and replicate it like, you know, like the Mentos and Pepsi example, but mm. in a serious way. And so then you have a web of trust kind of thing. So you, it's not just one signal. You bring several signals to bear in terms of verification, but we can start actually cracking the problem of how do we know what is true, not in the QAnon way of just making stuff up, <laughs> not, not in the way of just like, you know, like, like looking at what's popular and being set around this, but in the most fundamental aspect of science, which is what can we independently replicate? Yeah, okay. So um, now I'm noting that uh, I'm not sure I can independently replicate my own thoughts because it's uh, almost one in the morning and we've, we're getting closing on four hours here. So um, just a final topic I want to touch with you, Biology. Sure. Wealth inequality, which I think um, hovers in the background of many of the uh, concerns and social pressures we've been talking about. How do you think about it as a problem, solving it, take it in an American context? I mean, there's obviously globally it's a problem, but under conditions of greater and greater abundance, how do we wind up with a, in a society where automation has uh, canceled drudgery, they, you know, there are fewer and fewer bad jobs that people are obliged to do? What mechanism would we use to spread the wealth around such that we're not living in um, a world where you've got trillionaires and uh, you know, people living in essentially refugee-tented parts of the city? Because there's so much homelessness and, you know, there's 40% unemployment, right? I mean, how, how do we get our heads together around what um, real abundance would look like on the ground politically and economically? Great question. So now there's so many things to untangle and to tease apart there, right? One of them would say, I'd say that proximity is often confused for cause and effect. But when some immigrant from Bangalore or Brazil or Budapest lands in San Francisco and is coding, Simply the fact that they're making, you know, 120K as a software engineer does not mean that they caused the meth addict on the streets degradation. No. Like A did not cause B simply by being within 10 yards of them. That's often phrased as such, right? So it is not that one person becomes rich because another person becomes poor. Even the word rich, by the way, there's a difference between born rich versus built rich, you know, like the one who inherited a fortune versus one who built one, right? But let me also go to the inequality question from a few other angles, right? The first is um, to point out that inequality is also, in a sense, Russell conjugated, because other words for it, you could say, are lack of sameness or diversity or what have you. In other contexts, it's good to have you know, differences. Like, we're okay with inequality of athletic ability, because that's merit. You know, somebody's an Olympic champion and you're not. It is inequality of wealth that stings people because it feels like, okay, it's not that I'm not winning a race. I don't have enough food or whatever for myself. On that measure, actually, at least on three dimensions, inequality has decreased over the last several years, though it's increased in some measures within Western countries. The three measures where it's decreased, you know, with India, with China, with the rest of the world rising up from starvation level, true starvation level poverty, right? Yeah. Not, not like, you know, the American version of the poverty line, but like actual, like, I can't, you know, eat and I die poverty. That's been this massive transformation. So global inequality has dramatically decreased. Okay, number one. I think Hans Rosling and others have some good graphs on this. Yeah. Number yeah. two. Go ahead. Globally, we've, uh, there's a billion people who used to be uh, extremely poor who are no longer extremely poor. And um, within 
many first world countries. Well, so I'll come back to that point, right? So basically, it's it's even more than a billion people because it's like the former Soviet Union, it's Eastern Europe, it is India, it's China, it's much of Southeast Asia, it's big chunks of Big chunks of the whole world, right? I forget what the cut is, but it's something you know, like extreme poverty, like ah, right, right, yes, dollar a day, whatever. You know, that's, that's so. So first is on a global scale, inequality has decreased at wealth inequality. Number two is consumption inequality has actually plummeted. This is underappreciated, but it's an enormous thing. Basically, Larry Page and a kid in India or Nigeria have basically the same Google experience. It's been hyper deflated. Right. It's fractions of a cent to search Google search Wikipedia. Anything that's been digitized, anything that's been touched by technology has seen the prices hyper deflate. Like Steph Curry uses an Uber and so do you, as opposed to the inequality of consumption that used to be, you know, like he said, he mentioned on a, I mean, he may have a fancy car or something. I'm not saying there's no inequality of uh, thing there, but he mentioned on some interview that he called an Uber and that's right. the same consumer product that everybody else uses. Yeah. Because when you have something like an iPhone or Google or Uber, like getting to massive scale, you're making something that works for both, quote, wealthy people as well as not so wealthy people. Now, I know Uber's prices have increased. That's due to its physical world you know, interaction. But in general, anything that we've been able to put wholly or partially into the digital world has seen prices drop relative to the, you know, the, the precedent. I think even Uber, the price increases, I don't think are a fundamental thing. There's a function of regulation and other kinds of things, uh, inflation, other kinds of things. And I think self-driving will, will actually bring it down to the floor when we can truly automate it. Okay. And so consumption inequality has radically decreased. And what that means is it's actually the other flip side of wealth inequality because, you know, if your dollar can buy you 10 million Google searches uh, and you only are using a thousand, well, actually, in some ways, you become more equal to the first world. The guy in the Midwest has become more equal to the person uh, in, in New York or whatever. So when prices are crashing on, on these axes, that's actually important. Now, it's more complicated than that because we're seeing inflation in everything the state touches, which is healthcare, housing, mm-hmm. education, right? Those are up and to the right. And deflation in everything the network is touching, namely, you know, entertainment, but also information, all those things, iPhones, all those things are crashing. So it's a tug of war between hyperdeflation and strong inflation where prices are through the roof for all these things because the government is trying to prop them up. It's trying to prop up, you know, Detroit after the financial crisis. It's trying to prop up the banks. It's trying to prop up mortgages by bailing them out with the Fed. It's trying to prop up indirectly the educational establishment by bailing out with the, the student loan bailout that they're talking about, right? Th- that's what's causing prices to rise is that money is being seized from other people indirectly and directly to prop up these establishment organs that have lots of people and lots of lobbyists. But, and but it, be it's not just that. Good. I mean, we're also talking about what tech is enabling is a kind of winner-take-all circumstance or, or a winner-take-most circumstance. But it's it, not. Ah, so let me let me attack that premise. But, I mean, well. take, but take this comparison, I and mean, this may be too pat, but like the comparison between companies at a similar valuation and how many people they employ. Like, so Instagram versus Kodak. I think Kodak once employed 140,000 people on Instagram employed, you know, 15 or whatever at the same valuation. And we're seeing more and more of that in the digital economy, where it's just the rewards of of increases in productivity that happen in tech accrue to comparatively few people. And we're going to, I mean, just if you imagine this, I I don't want to take us into um, a conversation about the possible, um, you know, risk of AI here, but it's just, 
in success, we're talking about automating more and more and having jobs really go away. You know, it's not it's the the analogies to agriculture shifting to manufacturing, shifting to the service economy, don't hold up in the limit where you have computers that can do more and more, not just blue collar work, but white collar cognitive work. And, you know, eventually, you know, the radiologists lose their jobs and the accountants lose their jobs. And universal basic income is thought of by many people as a backstop to all of this. I'm just wondering what your picture is of how we live on the asymptote here of Great question. success. Several things to respond to there. So one is, you know, as I was just saying, like, basically, there's two ways that inequalities decrease in the world. One is global inequalities decrease, Asians and others, Eastern Europe, billions of people have come up. Two is consumption inequalities plummeted for everything digital, because that Nigerian kid, Indian kid has the same Google experience, you know, the same iPhone or at least smartphone experience like an Android and so on as somebody in a first world country, they have access to much of the same information and whatnot um, as to somebody in the Midwest or whatever. There's a third vector, which is, and then I'll come to your point, which is power inequality has also decreased. So one thing we don't really think about too much is who is the biggest CEO in Russia in the 20th century? It wasn't a normal society, right? You couldn't ascend to power wasn't other that, than being wasn't like a Wasn't the guy who got thrown in jail by Putin and realized yeah. that $10 billion didn't immunize you against uh, incarceration? That's right. So like today, right, the oligarchs or, you know, however you want to call them, like, you know, Putin, you know, basically attacked a bunch of them. But it is true that to a, I'm not saying the state doesn't exist, but to a greater extent today than in the 20th century, it is possible to achieve economic returns and power outside the state. Like they say, you know, one thing that you and I probably heard a lot when we were growing up is, oh, anybody can be the president of the United States. Well, a kid in India or Nigeria cannot grow up to be the president of the United States, but they can grow up to be a tech billionaire. And that is actually a new thing. It's a genuinely greater equality of opportunity. And in a real sense, power inequality has dropped. To give a good version of this, you know, in the early 2010s, you know, when the Snowden revelations came out, a bunch of tech CEOs met with Obama to basically say, hey, we don't like the fact that the NSA is doing this. And, you know, people think, you know, for example, with the Magna Carta, that it was just, you know, the population as a whole. Actually, it was the nobles versus the king. The fact that there was a group of these nobles, that could constrain the king. So the, the power inequality is declining as these individuals are rising because the extremely powerful centralized government with the guns and the military and the ability to coerce is no longer the only thing with a megaphone. It, you know, it can still shoot people, and, and, but it can't quite do so as publicly and retain legitimacy. There's a cost for doing that. And so in that sense, it's a different vantage point on it where you don't have this you know, century of Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot and you know, like gigantic wars and basically dictators who ruled for life until they died, which is much of what the 20th century was outside the US. And arguably, you know, even FDR was a dictator that ruled till he died. But you have something where it's possible to do something outside politics. Okay. So that's a different lens on it where power inequality is declining. You know, the US government is no longer the most powerful thing in the world. We think about it as it is decentralizing. Now you argue, I think correctly, that that is resulting in chaos. But it is also a different axis in which inequality is declining. I just wanted to make that point. That's maybe rising on some axes, but it's not uniformly rising. It's declining on other axes. But, but we do we do have a handful of people. I mean, literally like five 
whose net worth is beyond the bottom half of humanity. I mean, literally put against 3.7 billion, right? That's okay, the global but picture. The but but domestically, it's it's worse, right? I mean, globally, you, you can legitimately argue that all boats are rising, however slowly, with this tide. But within any society where these comparisons are made, you're you're seeing a you know I think I think America has the Gini coefficient now of Brazil or something close, right? I mean, it's, it's not well. It's because America is becoming more like the world, and the world is becoming more like America in the sense of like the physical America. If you divide physical versus digital America, that division didn't really even exist 30 years ago. Okay, but by digital America, I mean all the web services. The fact that whatever country you go to, Gmail works, right? There's an Uber equivalent. There's an Amazon equivalent. There's a, there's a Facebook equivalent or whatever. Maybe it's like Yandex or something in, in Russia, but there's an equivalent there. Mm. And, you know, crypto works everywhere. So, you know, your Kindle books, for the most part, work everywhere. Your PDFs work everywhere. Your laptop works everywhere. You can plug in, right? So digital America is very valuable. But, you know, in the post-COVID world, physical America actually being physically in the U.S., the U.S. is just like a microcosm of the world at large. It's leveled out. It's actually the, the problem people have is not inequality in the sense it's equality that you can have a close to digital American life in any country. And so, but now coming back to your point, like you, you bring up the, you know, the, the, the poor. Well, as I mentioned, the global poor are actually becoming less poor. But now let's take that example of the top five people with their money. There's a few things there. First is visibility breeds envy. Just the fact that, that, that those resources are personally allocatable all these people were mad that Bezos, you know, went to space and, and so on and so forth. But they're somehow not mad when far more money than that is wasted in, you know, the Pentagon, when NASA spent much more money than that to not go to space, when it's just incinerated on, you know, various kinds of infrastructure bills where, you know, for trillions of dollars, what are we really getting? Well, so but, but to be clear, I'm, I'm not demonizing wealth, right? And many people no, 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 do, I know, no. But do I'm this, those, right? I like, mean, they they like do demonize the, wealth when they think about it, wealth inequality. I think, I think we need a, I mean, wealth is intrinsically good uh, in, in so many ways. At minimum, time is literally money, right? So you, you like, yep. at a sufficient level of wealth, you can spend your time exactly as you want to. And that is, you know, however errant your, your wants might be, that's an intrinsic good. But the, I mean, we're, we're living in a society where the underlying economic and political ethic here is that people should be more or less free to starve to death, right? Not quite. I mean, we have some social safety. Uh, that, but that's but, not what I'm saying at all. Yeah. In fact, actually, there's, more, there's fewer people who are starving globally than before. Well, no, that, that's I, I true. Think... But I'm just saying, we're, we're, that unless we rewrite the social contract with respect to yes. the link between your right to exist and you are finding some profitable work that others will pay you for. You know, but, we have to break why, that linkage are, un, under conditions where automation has canceled certain jobs that are never coming back. But once we have self-driving trucks, those truck drivers are not going to learn to code. They're just not. No, they're not. Right. But, so, but, but let me talk about what happens next. Okay. Yeah. So let me talk about that. So this will sound crazy, but it's actually already happening. If, you know, the 1800s was farming and the 1900s was manufacturing, I think this century will be investing. And what I mean by that is if in the 20th century, the 99% were labor and the 1% were capitalists, this century, the 99% are capitalists and the 1% are labor. Mm -hmm. and what I mean by that is thanks to crypto and thanks to AngelList and thanks to Robinhood and thanks to, 
all of this, you know, basically printed money, people are investing, more people are investing than ever before. It was like 300,000 odd people, I think, with a Bloomberg terminal, but it's easily 100 million people doing crypto investing. So that's increased by a factor of 100x, if not 1,000x, if you include every, everybody else, like on, on Robinhood and other things. And you know, you're going, you're, we're going to go from 300,000 people to Bloomberg terminal to 300 million, eventually 3 billion equivalent. And the thing is that, yes, you're right, that truck driver cannot necessarily learn to code. Some of them can. You know, Lambda School, the retraining stuff, I think actually will work. But everybody can click a button on a website to buy something. Investing in something is very structurally similar to buying something. You're just clicking a button. And what becomes scarce then are founders, right? So the like VC culture, VC founder culture, which is just like this tiny little thing, becomes actually the main, it existed, but becomes like the mainstay of everything where everybody's a capitalist and everybody has some capital they're allocating and it can scale all the way down to like 50 bucks, but you're putting it into a coin or into somebody's a project on the other side of the world. And if you're not a good investor yourself, then you join a fund to do that. And then everything that is physical gets automated. Um, I, this is, by the way, the vision of where things I think will be after this gigantic dislocation that's going to hit. This is like a 2050 or 2060 kind of vision. But if you look at vicarious.com, if you look at bostondynamics.com, automation is getting really good. And when the physical world can get automated, then you know productivity moves somewhere else. Like people talk about, you mentioned like, oh, Instagram has fewer employees than Kodak. Well, that's true, but also there's far fewer people who are farming today than we're farming in 1800, but we have far more food. I mean, it's like the, you know, the Milton Friedman line about like, you know, in China, uh, it's apocryphal, but it's something where, oh, they're, they're building a dam and they're using shovels. He's like, why aren't you using machines? He's like, well, we wanted to create jobs. He's like, well, you should use spoons instead, create a lot more jobs mm. that way, right? And so if you're focused on input in terms of jobs as opposed to output, which is production, well, in a sense, those people were quote, freed up to do other things. Now, of course, people will say, oh, that's just a soulless, callous, you know, they're freed up because they're fired. They lost well, their no, job. Well, no, I'm just saying, I'm so. just saying there's, it's, it's, there's no guarantee there are, there are always other things to do. And I know, I just think these analogies to previous epochs in the life cycle of an economy are, are just invalid. We're going we're gonna to end up running the experiment. And what I mean by that is there may be some societies, and I actually think, you know, just as I mentioned centralist versus decentralist, I think the major axis today is technological progressive versus technological conservative. And the technological conservative is actually often a political progressive where they believe that salvation comes through the state, right? Gain a piece of the state, become undersecretary of this or that, pass a law, do a UBI, and thereby we shall be able to make things whole against the depredations of the tech bros, you know? And I'm caricaturing, but you know, that's like the, the mentality that if we could somehow stop these guys from disrupting everything, then right. everything would be okay. You know what? I think like some countries around the world, they may actually succeed in a Butlerian jihad, right? If you know the term, you know, yeah. like the, the idea of like, a, it's from a novel. From Dune, um, yeah. Dune, I think, yeah, yeah. Where they just just smash all old technology. They may succeed in freezing society in the dark ages. And the rest of the world will go on. Some, some other parts will actually push into the future. And uh, no, I, you know, I, I see that Ben Hart's actually made this good but observation. I'm, I'm not is, arguing for, for some kind of neo-Ludditeism. But I, what I'm seeing is the disconnection between the people who, for whom technology is 
really working, right? So like the the, the, the uh, again, it, it is a kind of so it's almost like saying start a podcast, right? It's like there there are sure. over a million <laughs> podcasts, right? right? Now, how many of them actually make money? How many of the are actually a basis for somebody's career? It can't be more than a thousand. But here's the thing. But here's the thing. It's extremely important that it's a very low capital cost to start. Why? Because you can start and find out how good you are. I mean, one of the things, a fundamental thing I think that's an issue is, you know, a lot of people, I mean, everybody knows that, you know, the fit are not fit because the fat are fat. One person's fatness is not the reason that somebody else has fitness, right? And yet, you know, people think the rich are rich because the poor are poor, because they'll say, well, you know, the fat isn't being transferred to the air. Of course, you dummy, the money is, right? The rich guy is who they get the money from, they got it from. And, you know, the issue with this, of course, is that it's deep and there's several different arguments on this, but one is status is, appears to be locally positive sum, but is globally zero sum and money appears to be locally zero sum, but is globally positive sum. So with status, if I go and like your Twitter post or something, it doesn't seem to cost me anything and it gives you an upvote, it gives you a like, okay? So locally, it appears non-zero sum because you gained and I didn't lose. But globally, it's zero sum because there's only one leaderboard and somebody who gains attention is moving up the leaderboard and other people are moving down. So it's actually globally zero sum. Not everybody can gain attention at the same time. That like or that follow or something like that is part of this global zero sum leaderboard. So it appears locally zero sum or lo- locally non zero sum because you're gaining and I'm not losing. But globally, it is zero sum mm-hmm. because some person's gain is another's loss. Capitalism is the opposite, where in a voluntary transaction made without force or fraud, you know, with those asterisks, important asterisks there, mm-hmm. you know, it appears that, you know, I'm getting uh, the apple and you're getting a dollar or vice versa and you're getting the money and I'm not. So it's a minus one for me and a, z- a plus one for you. So it appears locally zero sum if you're just looking at the money. But globally, it's positive some because somehow we all have way more apples, you know, or, or to make it very obvious, where do we loot the smartphones from? Yeah. Smartphones weren't looted from anywhere. Yeah, the could. rich country, the rich person, Steve Jobs did not loot the smartphones from the beach. When a transaction happens, so going back to that capitalistic transaction, we see the debit and the credit. What we are not seeing is the profit margin on the seller side and importantly, the reserve price on the buyer side. So as to say, if we were to say, okay, this trade is positive sum, we want a metric that is rising with every voluntary trade. What is that metric? So I've thought a lot about this. How do you show the wealth created in an economy? Well, on the seller side, you know, for, for your financial statements and so on, you're supposed to record your profit margin. That's, that's a whole thing, your COGS, your cost of goods. It's an imperfect number, but you come up with an approximate of it, right? You know, you sell the apple for a dollar and uh, it costs you 30 cents, so you made 70 cents of profit, right? Okay. What we have not quantified is the opposite, which is what I call buyer profit. You might say, what's buyer profit? How's a buyer profiting? Well, the buyer had a reserve price. Maybe they would have paid $2 for that app. Mm. That's the max price they would have paid, right? And so the difference between that and what they actually paid is their gain from trade because they would have paid $2 they got a screaming deal. They got something that they would have paid $2. They got it at $1. So they gained a dollar. You gained 70 cents. The total gains from trade, the seller profit and the buyer profit is $1.70. It's now perceptible if we knew the buyer's reserve price. This is like a new way of thinking about financial statements. You're not simply thinking about the seller side. You're thinking about the buyer side. You might say, well, okay, we can measure your profit and loss. Every company has to report that. How do you measure the buyer's thing? The buyer isn't constantly thinking about the reserve price all the time. 
Well, and again, going back to the thing I think about all the time, in crypto, they are. Because in crypto, there's something called limit orders, where you do the equivalent of saying, I'm putting down an order for 1,000 apples at 100 bucks, or 1,000 apples at, uh, at 1,000 bucks, like $1 per apple, and you see if anybody fills that order. And if they don't, then the demand you know, is, is too cheap, and you, know, you have to come up in price for the supply to hit you. Point being, reserve prices are becoming measurable, and your gains for trade are becoming measurable. So the buyer profit will become measurable, not just the seller profit. Mm. And so now people won't be able to get away with saying, oh my God, Amazon cheated me so much. I hate Jeff Bezos. He stole so much money from me, et cetera. Instead, on every past trade, we would be able to measure their profit because they would have paid 50 bucks for that sweater, but they got it for 20 or whatever the, the price was, right? They would not, you know, when I say get away with it, they wouldn't be able to trick themselves into thinking that they were defrauded. They would actually be able to look at their measure of buyer profit, and it'd be much less undeniable that, or be much more undeniable that uh, that that both parties gain from trade over here. Because right. what people want to do is they want to pretend later, after they've benefited from the transaction, that they were somehow harmed by it. In many cases, okay, let me pause. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, that doesn't get at the the problem. I think we're all witnessing now. Where the the ethos is, you you have some of the wealthiest people in society, you know, fleeing California so that they don't have to pay income tax in Texas or or Miami, and and you know that's and, not the reason. And, that's I, no, that, I no, mean, that, part that, of the that's, reason, but that's, that's part of the reason. But they're also just fleeing the dysfunction in California, where it's like, why why do I want to live in a in a city that's teeming with homeless people and crime, right? But part of the yeah. but if if the wealthiest people flee California. That's not a solution to the homelessness and crime problem, right? Like that. Like well, we have. Okay, we, let me ask you a question: Is yeah. it legitimate for Mexican immigrants to flee crime and poverty in Mexico to come to the U.S.? Locally, it's all legitimate. I mean, you, but, you, but, you know, make it, I, the reason I make that point is yeah. if that is legitimate, if emigration is legitimate, if you cannot change your home society practically, and you do not have enough political say, then the only thing you have left is the ripcord of exit. I will grant you that there's enough friction in politics that it's not not a straightforward solution, and, and some of these problems don't have a straightforward solution economically. But there is a there's an ethos wherein I mean this this goes to the you know this is where philosophy and psychology come creeping in here. I mean people really believe they're self-made, right? The person who earned a billion dollars in his tech startup. I'm sure. I'm sure there's some so people. Very who important point. So basically, it's about the attribution of merit, right? Yeah. So, yeah. They don't realize they've. They, they don't want to realize. If they gave it five minutes of thought, they they would realize they won a lottery, right? They won. They won several lotteries. They won a genetic lottery. They you know they won an intelligence lottery. They won an opportunity lottery. They were not born in Syria in the middle of a civil war. None of none of these things they they can take ownership over, and yet they think they're self-made because they read Atlas Shrugged and liked it. And now they feel that basically the dysfunction of society is not their problem. And they, they can immunize themselves against this level of unraveling of society. Now, ultimately, I don't think they can, they can immunize themselves perfectly, but there's an illusion of immunity, right? I mean, you can decamp to Austin or Miami and just forget about what you, know, you didn't like about San Francisco. But the truth is, we ultimately need a society where all boats are rising with with a tide that we engineer, and we have so, to engineer so, okay, it politically. First, 
I, I agree with alignment. I absolutely agree with, with alignment. And I actually think the way we're achieving that now is with things called DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, where essentially, you know, if you think about the difference between your traditional corporation and then your Silicon Valley company during its heyday, and then the modern crypto thing, you know, you had like one boss in the traditional corporation, then you have a bunch of shareholders, startup, you know, employees, and a thousand people can get wealthy or, you know, make a living or do, you know, they, they can hit the jackpot if the company IPOs. But with a crypto protocol, it scales up again another thousand X, a million people or 10 million people, a very large group of people can all succeed or fail together, right? And this is not universal basic income in a sense, it's like universal basic equity, universal mm -hmm. basic investment where everybody has some skin in the game. They have some downside. They don't just get a stream of money risk-free. They have a share in something that they have to work to make better or worse, but they can all gain together from it. It's economic alignment. Well, what so would have, I mean, just believer, a, a more prosaic version of that idea, uh, perhaps not to your taste, but what do you think about giving the state, let's say a state like California, some equity in you know, every corporation such that there'd be no longer this this adversarial I, relationship between I, I, the state I, I and, think that, and these wealth building these these engines of wealth, right? You wouldn't have you wouldn't have people in San Francisco demonizing Facebook and Twitter as robber barons if San Francisco itself had some equity in Facebook and Twitter. Well, that's actually not true because Zuckerberg went and funded an entire hospital. Uh, well, in I know San that. Francisco yeah, yeah. Well, those those, and right, those people right? were morons so, who were who were duly castigated on this podcast. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so the problem is basically fundamentally that, like, you know, it it takes. I shouldn't even say it takes two hands to clap. I would say, in my view, in terms of like the balance of responsibility for the state of San Francisco between tech people versus politicians, it's like. 99% politicians and 1% tech. And the reason is there's plenty of other cities around the world that have tech that did not become the devastation of San Francisco, right? You mm -hmm. have the controlled experiment, you know? Like Shenzhen did not become, you know, this like meth addicted, you know, homeless encampment, people get stabbed on the street, criminals let out of jail. None of those are decisions that are being mm -hmm. made by tech CEOs. None of those are decisions tech CEOs can even influence, right? So- Well, well I'm not sure about that, but yes, it, I mean, there's a colossal- experiment and misgovernance happening in San Francisco. There's no question. Yeah, but yeah. the basic thing is, you know, the entire tech model, why do people look to tech? Because tech is, I mean, think of it, you know, one way of putting it is, in many ways, the frame on the whole thing is so reversed. So let me just see if I can articulate it. Like in Soviet society, there were a few niches where people could actually go and build something outside of the constant thought control, you know, in mathematics, in, in particular, and to some extent in physics and, and, and whatnot. Yeah. And uh, even biology, for example, like Lysenko basically was like anti-evolution, anti-Darwin. He thought if you believed in genetics, you were evil. He executed yeah. geneticists and so on. So many areas, obviously, of economics were all perverted by these, this political nonsense. And builders, creators could only go into a few areas. That's why the Soviets you know, still have a pretty good tradition of mathematics and so on. The Eastern European Soviets, like one of the areas that people sort of retreated into, you know? And like, you know, it needs, you need a billion permits to go and build a shed in San Francisco, but you can build a billion dollar business online. It is because the state has made the physical world so inhospitable. So not just riven with red tape, but with penalties for doing anything. This guy, for example, in San Francisco, he tried to start an ice cream shop, poor guy, put in like 200K into an ice cream shop and they shut him down. Had he put it into something online, he could have gone vertical, right? So 
all of the builder energy has gone digital because you can build without permits, right? You can well, it's not just that. Build. I mean, it, it, it's the quintessence of scale, right? The, the, you know, the ice cream shop doesn't scale. And so the, yeah, but, there's but, just but what's coming, outsized coming rewards coming to anyone who can get compute behind them in, in their business model. I know, but now we're, we're, we're going to pull all the pieces together. What's coming this decade is, you know, start your own company, Google, start your own community, Facebook, start your own currency, Bitcoin, Ethereum, start your own city, cul-de-sac.com, prospera.hn, you know, the startup cities movement is happening now. Hmm. And then by the 2030s, it'll be start your own country and we go to network states. So it's like tech companies, 2000s, crypto protocols, 2010s, startup cities, 2020s, network states, 2030s. So essentially to all of what you're saying, um, the reason I mentioned earlier, like the, the policy vector is multivariate, is one cannot really, you know, it's like asking how much paprika is in a particular bit of food and, you know, grading it on that. You, you often cannot grade a policy just in isolation, you know, it is, uh, it no, is there, a vector there are of policies it's just, I mean, there's a, a system of trade-offs. Yes. And yeah, so, system yes, of trade-offs. We, 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 make, we kill people for smuggling drugs and therefore we have absolutely no addicts on our streets anymore, right? That's yes. right. And you signal that when, when, they, when they do that, they, by an extremely harsh but well-advertised rule, they don't get violations of it in the first place. It's like people just steer clear of Singapore for drug smuggling, right? They just yeah. don't do it, right? Um, and so guess what? You, you know, a woman can walk down the street at night at any time of day and nothing, nothing happens to her. She's totally fine, right? She can, you know, the, you can push a baby stroller. You know, whereas in, in San Francisco, you know, the, like uh, I mentioned, um, okay, here's a quote, right? Yeah. I, I screamed and said, get the F off of me, said the graphic designer, you know, recounted the 28-year-old designer startup. She told him she'd called the police if he didn't leave her alone. He laughed and said, the cops aren't going to do nothing. That's the city government of San Francisco, right? That, that, that has, that's just one case that's being reported. There's thousands and thousands of cases like this, you know? They're like literally, you can see even with a public outcry, you have these people mowing down, uh, you know, innocents on the sidewalk and stolen cars. You have, you know, you know, like blatant robberies. You have Walgreens shutting down. That has nothing to do with some guy coding in his room. It is only because that poor guy from you know that immigrant usually who can't vote in the U.S. most of the time, right? Because the, the people, by the way, you know, this is just a sidebar, but an important point. Like the people who are actually building these apps are disproportionately not Americans, right? Mm. You know, they are, they are basically immigrants from all over the world. And so they are, in a sense, literally disenfranchised. They couldn't even vote. And yet, this evil tech bro is being blamed by these mostly white trustafarians, you know, the Chesa Bedin being a classic example of the kind, mm. I mean, different than the typical trustafarian, but certainly of that mentality, for the, you know, for what happened in, in SF, right? It's like, you're, you're blaming, you know, and, and it's, it's just something where proximity is being used to blame it. It's like, but, but, but now I, I will give some responsibility to the tech people, which is different than how folks would normally say it. It is true that that builder can build online without hassles. They can actually build their creative kind of thing. They can attract people. It, it's still hard. It's extremely difficult. You have to work out the math and the computer science. You have to build a business. It's not easy at all, but at least it's possible. It's not something like building an ice cream shop where you have, you know, it's a vitocracy you can't even build. But, but what we have not done is we have not seized the nettle of leadership. And what I mean by that is 
you know, you're starting to see this like text folks running for office, only one version of it. But, you know, the thing about the tech model, the reason that people look at it, the reason I mentioned the Soviet thing earlier, imagine if the one area of, you know, the Soviet world where people could actually build something, the Soviet mathematicians were pointed at and being like, why don't you solve all of our problems? You know, and it's like, well, these guys were forced into this corner by this completely dysfunctional and insane state that thinks that profit is evil. And so that's why we're going here and doing math. And now you want to solve all these other problems, but everything you're screwing up, you also don't want us to have any control over anything because you think we're evil or, or what have you, right? So it's like, it's this very paradoxical thing of, it's the same kind of thing which says, oh, tech, tech folks are, they're only doing social gaming and useless apps and they're also becoming too powerful. Wait, so is it, is it one or is it the other or is it both, you know? And so let's, let's take though, just, just proceed with it. Let's say that a significant part of the dysfunctionality of the modern American state is because people can't even do basic arithmetic, you know? Like th their level of ignorance is actually hard okay, to, but, you know, but, for I mean, example, just, their day. But Balaji, I mean, you, you heard yeah. uh, the recent disclosures around tax avoidance among the wealthiest people in America, right? I mean, you've had Warren Buffett, who was paying an effective one-tenth of one percent rate on his wealth accumulation during this period, right? I mean, like, that's, was, that was his effective tax rate. So uh, you, you, can, you can live on loans, you can reclassify things so that, you, that is, there's not income. There are all these ways to, for the richest people to not pay taxes. And that is the underlying ethos. Like, let, let's, let's, I mean, it's, it's a bad incentive problem. It's a conception of the common good that has just gone missing on some level. It's a, I'm a self-made billionaire concept that is ultimately unjustifiable. It makes no sense to have people earning I mean, literally hundreds of millions of dollars a day and successfully not paying a dime in taxes. At some point, we have to recognize that the pitchforks are coming and should be coming, right? That's the problem. Like, like, like the, we're, we're, we're presiding over the absolute degradation of vast sectors of our society. And granted, there's not a straightforward path to just dumping money on these problems and solving them. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not under the illusion that you can solve the the homelessness problem and the fentanyl problem just by get, handing out lots of cash. But whatever the solution is, it's very likely going to cost money. There's like, like 10 embedded things there where I want to kind of shoot at individual pieces there. First and most important, the state is not a capable capital allocator. If we looked at what happened over the last year, Public health failed, public schools failed, police failed, fire failed, okay, but, federal but government that is, okay, failed, state government failed, local government failed. So I see African where you're going with that, but that, that is wait, an wait, argument. Wait, wait, that's, let me get But let me just all address out. that one point. That's an argument for better governance. That's not an argument, an argument for defunding the government. It's an argument for a new government. It's well, yeah, basically- but, but, the but, thing Which is will more, presumably have to be funded to do all the things that we need government to do. I know, but, but the thing is, it cannot be simply propping up the old corpse. We have to build a parallel government that is far more capital efficient in parallel that, uh, because the thing is that the old corpse is simply not, it's not even functional, right? It's, it's basically, you know, it's literally setting money on fire to give more money to it. And frankly, it's not capital limited in any way because they just printed trillions of dollars. In no way is the U.S. government well, limited. In fact, the bid up, we're gonna I mean, have like to all pay this did is printed all this, go ahead. Presumably, I mean, well, well one, we, we're going to have to pay that somehow. I mean, either we're stealing yeah, wealth, it's, you, being we're going to pay it as inflation, you're, you're, or we're going to pay it as Yeah, you're all being diluted debt. down. That's right. So the state is causing every single problem here, just going one by one, right? First of all, they're not selected for being capital allocators. The guy who wins a popularity contest 
We think of them as supposed to be some brilliant general, some savvy budgeter, you know, some like visionary leader. They're just more like an actor, whether it's Trump or it's Biden or it's or Obama for that matter, going back quite a ways, right? Um, they're not like George Washington, who actually like won a war, you know, and actually had the test of reality, you know. The these are not folks, these are folks who are like 30th generation nepotists that inherited a system they could never build. They're good at making the perfumed invocations. They couldn't put together the Federal Reserve. They couldn't even read a financial statement. They're not capital allocators. And so therefore, giving them money is like giving money to a drug addict. It'll just go up his nose. But that's, it's, that's it's like, an argument, again, that's an argument in my, in my ear for better governance. We're electing the wrong I know, people. I know, but, we're, you know, we're promoting the wrong people but, to positions of authority. But sometimes you buy, okay, so every other institution, okay, it's only because we have a mental hole here. With a car, sometimes you don't repair it. You get a new one, right? With a company, sometimes you don't turn it around. You, you, you go and start a new one. With a, you know, a, a, a media company, you don't necessarily have to keep trying to reform yeah, one. You might start we, a new one. We can't, start a new, but we can't start a new Pentagon. Ah, right? and that's where I disagree. So you, you're going you're gonna to crowdsource a Pentagon and then, then tell the old generals that they're out of a job? Well, so basically, the, this is actually the, the, the most important point, right? that it is possible to start new cities and new countries. We know, by the way, 10 years ago, okay, just to suspend disbelief for a second, 10 years ago, actually 11 years ago, if I walked into a VC's office or anybody's office, even a VC who's supposed to entertain outlandish ideas and said, I figured out how to start a new currency, they'd say, what, are you a lunatic? Are you going to go to the IMF, the World mm -hmm. Bank, or the decentralized digital defla deflation? Paul Krugman, here's, here's Econ 101. It says here, that inflation is good and deflation is bad. And you're going to tell me you know more than some Harvard professor? Ha 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 ha, right? And that entire narrative would basically seem plausible. It would seem completely impossible to start a new currency. It would not seem like something a human being could do. Only a nation state could do it. So you need to win an election or something to get there. And even then, you know, it's like a big deal, right? And they were completely all wrong. And there was actually a digital way of doing that. And not just a digital way of doing it, it was something where five years later, a college dropout could do his own currency. And now anybody can do a currency, right? So something we thought was completely impossible has now become feasible with a few clicks of a mouse and, and keystrokes, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know that you can run an analogy from there to any other brick and mortar thing that requires well, uh, okay. stealth so, bombers. So now here's but, the thing. Yeah. So uh, this is what I'm, what I'm basically describing is the zero to one, right? So we know that you can start a company, you can start a community, you can start a currency. And not, not just you can scale it, you can get it to a billion dollars in valuation, you can get it to a billion users, you can get it to, you know, like the, the billion dollar market cap of these coins, right? So we know that that is possible for those three things, that you can literally start it mm -hmm. in your room with zero capital and get it to those things. And those things are actually, I mean, that would seem crazy from 1990, that today you have somebody like Zuck, who's running a multi-billion person social network. And, you know, he does a video chat with Cameron, you know, who's the president of the UK at the time, he's running a tiny social network of 60 million people, right? That someone from a dorm room could build a communications network that was bigger than pretty much every other country put together. But do you want to live right. in a world where under some paradigm, I don't know what that would be, you have privatized war to the point where there's the, just as you'd make a, an unflattering comparison between SpaceX and NASA left of, left to its own devices. Now, you'd have to make the same unflattering comparison between some mercenary army of billionaire warlords and the, the and the Pentagon. 
Well, okay. So on this point, what I think happens in the fullness of time is that we revert back to the previous known good operating system of the West, which was many different principalities. Have you seen a map of Germany before Bismarck? I'm sure I did at some point, but it's uh, it's not vivid it's in, like my, in my recollection. All, all over the place, fragmented, yeah. all these pieces, right. right? It's fractal, you know? Yeah. Uh, if you... But, but you that know, means... That mean, about, but, but in that world, you, you ride 100 yards outside your door and you're, you're waylaid by somebody who's not living under any kind of governance structure that, that you can appeal to, right? I mean, that's you're getting us closer first to First of all, that is nature. San Francisco today. That is literally what you just described yes, as yes, but San Francisco today. Again, I'm not but, even but, but the dysfunction in San Francisco is being compared against a standard of, of normalcy that we once took for granted. Ah, you know, but how, here's the thing. You know, so I don't actually think... So, so a few, few points. First is, currently we live under like a combination of... I mean, San Francisco's dysfunctionality is being exported to the entire U.S., and in many ways, sort of the combination of wokeness and techness, the, you know, Dude had actually had an article on this as well, where he came to the same conclusion. Wokeness is sort of devouring institutions from one direction and tech from like another. Mm. And what is left is essentially Sentinel. these voluntary, you know, small group associations that will have to rebuild scale. Mm. And it's basically just, you know, just like computers went from centralized big servers to personal computers, to cloud, to smartphones, to huge big data sets to crypto, like there's cycles of centralization and decentralization. In Chinese history, they talk about this as well. You know, some guy unites the empire and then it fractures into the warring states period, and then they reunited and so on and so forth. We are now entering the warring states period. Like the, the, the great de decentralization and great, you know, fragmentation is on. And the map of Germany before, you know, Bismarck, I think is more likely to be what it's going to look like by 2040 or 2050. For lots of reasons, one so, is just so you're so you're picturing okay. picturing the actual fragmentation of America. Yes. How far out on the on the calendar would you put that? Within our life, I mean, like you know, but I think I don't think the United States of America as we currently know it will exist by 2040. Oh, well, that's interesting. All right. Well, that's maybe, a, maybe um, by 2030. All right. Well, I'm I'm. Uh, I'm going to declare that I have a time zone disadvantage here because it's almost 2 a.m. and there, there's, there's a zero-sum contest between wakefulness and sleep. I can attest to it. Give, give me a final comment, and then we will table this for the next five-hour podcast that will come sometime before the country shatters into Bismarckian bits. Sure. Yeah. So, so, so basically, I think the entire post-war order is just, it's like, it's like an era of history. And you know, during that era, the U.S. at a certain point was like completely and totally dominant, the unipolar power from like 91 to roughly, you can say it's now, you can say it till the financial crisis, you can figure out when. But what's happening now is on the borders of empire, and you know, the U.S. has all these military bases worldwide. You can argue whether some of them are consensual, some of them are not, or whatever, but it has all these bases worldwide. And in Crimea, in, um, you know, Afghanistan, I'm not saying the guys on their side are good. I'm saying, however, that like, the U.S. is sort of being pushed back overseas, and it's also less able to control events domestically, where it has these various kinds of, you know, like whether you call them insurrections or in the Democrat side resistances or whatever. So it's like just like this giant centralized state is like kind of getting compacted on main dimensions. And there's good things about that post-war order, as I mentioned in Barry Weiss's Substack. You know, it brought us a lot of peace and prosperity. I'm not like against it in like a naive anarchist way, abolish the police in any way. I'm simply making an observation that it's contracting. And so what takes its place? Well, on the borders of empire, you have 
you know, the Visegrad guys, they're, they're, they're taking their own way. And, you know, uh, Britain just Brexited. And, you know, you have Hong Kong going to China and you have Crimea going to Russia and you have maybe have an ISIS come back in the Middle East. And so the U.S. has like the global police is no longer applicable. And then, you know, the thing is that with the Soviets, when they were when they lost in Afghanistan, sometimes an empire, it has to either be growing or contracting. And so like kicked off a series of events where the whole thing sort of just broke apart within a few years, you know, and within the U.S., you have huge polarization. It's not really a country anymore. There's very few things you can argue that most people value in common. Like some people don't like the flag, you know, like someone wrote that it was like horrible to have the flag. Like the, mm-hmm. these things that you and I grew up with, they don't, uh, you know, affiliate around. The one thing that arguably every American still values is actually just the dollar, you know? And that's like the last tattered thing, the screenback that is connecting people together. It's an economic union, not really even a political union because 50% of the country hates the other 50% and vice versa, and, roughly. But it's, I think that's true. I don't think the center holds it anymore. And so when, you know, if and when the dollar is inflated away, then even that tattered greenback holding people together no longer is there. And so then what I think you get is that, you know, if you think about what was happening during Corona, did you see the bit with the, um, the interstate compacts? Right. Right. So interstate compacts is actually a thing in the constitution. Like it was like the Western States compact, like California, Nevada, Washington. And then it was like the Northeastern compact and like the Michigan compact. Essentially, because the federal government wasn't acting, the states near each other started banding together in these subnational organizations, almost right. out of like a sci-fi movie, the Interstates Compact Clause was invoked, right? And you have sanctuary cities, you have, as I mentioned, different gun laws, you have, uh, you know, different marijuana laws at the state level, you have now, you know, Wyoming legalizing DAOs while the SEC is coming against them, you have lots of states going pro-crypto while the feds are going anti, and so on and so forth. I think you have centrifugal forces. And I think it'll probably manifest in terms of like, you know, I don't know what the trigger is. It's often unpredictable. Maybe it's like the, you know, like a, like China takes Taiwan. Maybe it is, you know, all the Eastern European countries leave the European Union. Maybe it's, you know, some terrorist attack. Maybe it is, you know, like a, like a massive inflation and, and Bitcoin goes vertical. But this is just, if you look at history, this is not something where it's like a stable state. The other possibility is that the troops get brought home and it's not a stable state, but you have like this sort of police state where all the militarized police that people have pointed to, which are real and do exist, you know, there's an appetite, you know, for people to not go abroad and fight, you know, foreigners, mm. but to fight each other. You actually saw people say on Twitter, oh, you know, all the, these military, or, you know, the, the funding should be going after, quote, domestic terrorism. And conversely, you have a lot of folks on the right who want nothing more than to own liberals, right? And So, you know, whether that's civil conflict, whether that's fragmentation, it doesn't look good. So I'm not saying this is good. I am, however, saying that's like the arc of it. Like this thing is going to break apart in some way. I don't know exactly how, but but that's, I think, the general arc. And I think in its current form, as we understand it, it won't exist in 20-something years. All right, Balaji, it has been an education, uh, needless to say. I'm going to invest in Bitcoin and antidepressants until we next speak. <laughs> well, but there's good on the other side of it. And yeah. that's the thing is, during the Renaissance period, just to be positive, like I'm very pessimistic on our existing institutions, but I'm very optimistic on Western values. Hmm. And, you know, actually liberalism itself gets protected via encryption and on the international, you know, programmariat and on all the stuff that we can build abroad. It may turn out that the U.S. as the torch of liberty, it's no longer that state that's the torch anymore, the thing during our lifetime. 
But before the US, arguably it was the UK. Before the UK, it was arguably Greece. Maybe afterwards, it's the decentralized network. It's Bitcoin. It is something that people value globally as a symbol of freedom and prosperity. The orange coin is the new blue jeans. So that's how I kind of think about it. I'm not, I'm not somebody who thinks liberalism is bad. I think it's good. I just think that the current state is no longer a champion of that. Mm. And we can't reform it, but we can build something better. All right. Well, to be continued, Balaji. Thank you. I know it's late on your side. <laughs>